You better be listening to Slezoids or I must you. I find music a useful distraction. A focus tool. Keeps the inner voice from wandering. Hey everyone, welcome back to Boom Talk. Today, teaching myself to make a homemade blasting cap. If this works, it'll be step one. Making our own improvised explosive. Same device. Same hello. You think your wife can hear you? No. And why bother? Maybe I'm wrong. You're going to die. Maybe not. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, to bring in the new year, we are giving one of our favorite patrons, DQ, their chance at the spotlight. And I just can't wait for it. Lions are going to be attacking people, and that's all you need to know about it. So join the sleaze. That's right. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover as well. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we are about to enter our, uh, our we're just completing maybe our sixth yeah. year. Uh, so we're entering our seventh year of bonus episodes. There's like Jeez. 150 bonus episodes as well as 50 uh, going on more bonus transmissions where we talk about new release genre movies over on the Patreon. So again, patreon.com slash podcast if you haven't made the jump to that yet. And speaking of which, we had quite a few people make the jump here just at the end of the year. A nice little holiday holiday gift uh, to, to us. So thank Beautiful. you thank to you. Uh, Gabriel Gaboni, uh, Sean Mellon, uh, Lucas, Wade Freeman, Tom Viggers, Sam Canini, Judith Sandler. Is that the Judith Sandler? Like Adam Sandler's mother? I don't know. Okay, hold on. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying yes. Yeah, uh, Doug Oxland, uh, Darren Merlot, who actually signed up at $10 a month, will be joining us for the monthly virtual screening, which we try to do on the last Thursday of any given uh, month. And we uh, are also upload the recordings after the fact for anyone who can't make the live show. So if you're interested in that, thanks so much to Darren for signing up. Uh, we had Nick Hill uh, subscribe, Matthew uh, Matthew Matthew Zeitlin, uh, Dario Solzman, uh, Jeff Ash. Uh, this guy likes cool stuff. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Very awesome. Uh, Riley White, uh, Herschel Hatcher the <laughs> Fourth. Okay, got some royalty. <laughs> Uh, nice. We had Matt Bat sixty eight uh, sign up for an entire year of the show at the annual tier. If you want, if you, you get a little bit of a discounted rate per month, if you get an entire year of the show in advance. So thanks to Matt for that. And then last but not least, uh, Jeff Coots, who also signed up at ten dollars a month, and is going to be joining us for the virtual screening. So thanks so much to all of you folks. Hope you are enjoying those bonus episodes. We appreciate the support. Yes, thank you very much. 
That is the one plug for the week. The other, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are listening on either one of those platforms, and I can see the stats, I can see you right now listening on both those platforms, uh, give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners, and we appreciate that support as well. And the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that Based Out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. Uh, You can get pillow, you can get a hoodie, you can get a notebook. The link to that is in uh, the description as well as over at slezoidspodcast.com for anyone interested. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller, welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I believe two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, where we would have had special returning guest uh, Michael Chow back on to discuss the uh, legendary American uh, comedian Albert Brooks, both as an actor and as a director. We talked about his debut satirical uh, feature film, Real Life, from 1979, which was this very darkly, sort of prophetically satirized uh, (laughs) sort of reality TV. Uh, style film that really took a look at sort of like the ethics of that, the sociopathy of that, even before it was like way before it was like an actual popular thing that it is now. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we also talked about his attempts to kind of tone down that postmodern cynicism that he was really famous for in his early comedy days and in his Saturday Night Live days and uh, deliver a bit of a warmer, more gentle, yet still existential and witty rom-com Uh, with the film Defending Your Life in 1991, co-starring Meryl Streep after he had been uh, nominated for the Oscar in broadcast news and, you know, definitely was kind of broadening out his his appeal, but still maintaining, I think, what kind of made him such a funny, unique guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was really interesting to to see kind of his beginning and then not not his end necessarily but just where he ended up about like 10 to 15 years later um just because with with real life it's so cynical and and sharp in that in that sense and um he does kind of cut off a little bit of the edges for defending your life but by no means does any of the wit go out the window i mean he's just yeah one ends with him getting the girl and one ends with him burning a family's house down while being (laughs) like becoming completely detached from reality (laughs) Yes, in a clown suit. It's it's fantastic. Like it's yeah, it's like so it's um, to totally cool to see the trajectory of like, you know, mm-hmm. where where his interest kind of became as a as as a filmmaker and you know, he kind of he kind of warmed up and became a little bit more of a sentimental guy it it, it feels like, but you know, still very yep. artistically sound. And of course, now we know him as the uh just the absolute ruthless killer in Drive as well, so that's just also that's true. just fun. He's had such a <laughs> such a strange career. Um, he has very yeah. very happy to watch his stuff. So, uh if you haven't heard that episode, we talked about that with uh with Michael 2 weeks ago over on the main feed. I'd recommend checking that out. And then last week, though, over on the Patreon feed, it was the annual Christmas episode where we went back uh, and talked about some kind of uh, underseen 1972 holiday horror films. Uh, We did a double feature of Curtis Harrington's uh, sort of like tragic psycho bitty exploitation riff on on Hansel and Gretel called Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. And we paired that with John Lewin Moxie's made for TV uh, like murder mystery but also borderline sort of like giallo slasher melodrama film uh, Home for the Holidays. Uh, and, And both were you know 
pure 1970s, uh, you know, just kind of creepy melodrama vibes. Yeah, yeah, big mansions, you know, all of that. Uh, le- less cobwebs and more just like a just a corrupt and decaying family. <laughs> That's really what's going on in those and Christmas um, decorations. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, but it, yeah, they're 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 quite good for for what they are. Uh, Home for the holiday really does take a cool spin once you see the the giallo killer. But instead of uh, you know just like a trench coat, they're in a, a raincoat and red rubber boots. <laughs> but, yes, yeah, it's a, yeah, and it's also a fun uh, written thriller. by the screenwriter of Psycho. So like you yeah. know some of the actual yeah. character work and you know some of the actresses. You know Sally Field is in there. Jessica Walter is in there. There's there's some interesting stuff actually happening dramatically. And whoever slew Auntie Rue, you know. Know, you've got the you've got Shelley Winters, you know, as the mm-hmm. deranged sort of like grief stricken witch who is like literally trying to, you know, hunt, hunt, you know, have these kids kind of replace like her mummified like dead daughter that she hoards like a doll in her nursery. Yeah. It's really creepy little sort of like Victorian dollhouse kind of horror film. Yeah. And there's even a little bit of, of kind of strange. uh I don't know if you want to, it's like delusion that one of the kids is going through in a way where he's connecting it to a fairy tale and most of it almost makes sense the way he's connecting it. But as it gets closer to the end, you kind of question whether or not what they do to Auntie Rue is, is totally, totally justified, at least the way that he's putting it all together. It's connecting to the Hans a little bit of fairy tale. Yeah. yeah, So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that way too. But, uh, but yeah, solid films. Yeah, so if you haven't heard that episode, that was uh, last week over on the Patreon feed. So if you're still in the holiday spirit, you feel like you missed out, go back and uh, check it out. Check out those those films. Uh, they they mm-hmm. were definitely ones I was happy to finally kind of check off my my list. But moving on to this week, oh boy, are we ready for this? Is it time? Are you all ready for this? Oh I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, we're uh, Jamie. And I got to hype ourselves up a little bit here. I'm, pr- I'm, <laughs> I f- I f- I'm a little traumatized from going for four hours and whatever ten minutes, four yeah, hours, we just, fifteen minutes last year. We just know what <laughs> what's going to happen now every single year. I think for so many years we were kind of just constantly telling ourselves, you know, it's 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 going to be a little less this time. We're going to do it, and now we've totally convinced ourselves that it's there's no point in fighting what we do naturally. You know what I yeah. mean? We're just going to let it ride and hope that this yeah, previously isn't a Previously, we were actually deluding each other into being like, we'll contain ourselves <laughs> this year. It's fine. You know, it, every year gets like a half hour longer. That's fine. Uh, you know? And so, exactly. you know, <laughs> it's, but we but hope here, that you like all of <laughs> all the hours that we're about to give you here. <laughs> we're already getting hysterical about it before we even explained what we're doing. Um, yeah, for real. But, as always, when a year comes to an end, uh, which it shall be shortly here for us and and, and for all of you, uh, Jamie and I like to celebrate by taking a break on the uh, main feed from the older movies. And for one week only, we count down our top favorite, best, whatever genre movies that came out over the course of the last 12 months. And also, as always, there are, you know, we have a lot of honorable mentions, which is a segment we both really love because it's the part where we get to talk about the weird shit, the, you know, yeah. the stuff that maybe wasn't the best movie we saw last year or, uh, but, but, but was like the, maybe the most like underseen or maybe underrated in comparison to a lot of mainstream releases. So it's, it's an essential part of the spirit of this episode. But two years ago, it was almost 90 minutes of the episode. And last year we <laughs> opened by saying, we're going to try and keep it a little bit lower than 90 minutes this year. And it ended up being two hours of the episode so (laughs) once again 
we are maybe going to take an, take a, you know, we're going to maybe try to tone it down. Uh, but the history is not in our favor on this one. So prepare no, for two point two point five hours of honorable mentions. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, we will once again be exhausted before we even hit our official list, because that's just the way that this goes. Um, yep. But that is the episode for uh, this week. No more old movies talking about new movies, but some things, as always, to note up front about this episode. Same as last year uh, for anyone who is like, hey, I really liked hearing them talk about that film, but they only talked about it for like three minutes. What the hell is that all about? Uh, yeah. We do a thing called the bonus transmission series over on the Patreon. We're approximately once a month, sometimes more. We drop an episode about the new release genre stuff that we're watching in theaters or on rental or streaming, and we talk about those movies from anywhere for from 15 minutes to like an hour so for any patrons out there a lot of these titles on this list are going to be familiar to you because many of them are stuff we covered throughout the year over on the patreon though as always there are sure to be a couple surprises and films we didn't cover on the bonus transmission that made it on um to our list which i think jimmy and i probably both have some uh in in, Mm -hmm. which is usually just in part because we don't typically do one in december since we're so busy preparing for this episode and playing catch up on anything we missed throughout the year we don't really have time and also there's so much stuff in this case fucking december was packed with theatrical releases of stuff that actually actually Missed a few things because of how packed it was, honestly. Yeah, I didn't get to see poor things, and you probably didn't either, right? Nope, nope. Yep. Yeah, there's a so. couple that I unfortunately missed that, I, you know, people might yell at us. So it's just simply didn't get to see it. I bet it's amazing. Can't wait well, to. <laughs> well, and and the the schedule of the years has not been helpful recently that it's been making the, the last yeah. free episode is always like into December now. Before, we used to actually have until January because the free episode was in January when we first started the show. So mm-hmm. eventually, yeah. we're going to circle back around to the first episode of January is going to be the uh, <laughs> the New Year's uh, best of episode and we'll have an extra week to catch up on stuff that <laughs> yeah. came out on like christmas day and whatnot but did not happen this year unfortunately um but 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 for anyone who is just listening to the show for the first time and we do see the stats on this there are a lot of people who discover our show through this annual episode actually i saw from our spotify rap numbers this year that like 60 percent of our new listeners this year the first episode they ever listened to was the best genre movies of last year Mm. episode so People love a top 10 list, baby. That's right. So uh, for anyone who, you know, is listening for the first time like that um, and you go, hey, I would have loved to have heard them talk about that movie they only talked about for like two minutes while they were listening in the honorable mentions. Go over to the Patreon, search the title. It's very possible that we already have talked about that movie um, for longer. And unfortunately, it's just we don't have the time to do half hour discussions on everything we're going to be mentioning today, even if we wanted to uh, and and easily, you know, maybe love the movie enough that that we could. uh, And sometimes we already have. So look over there Mm -hmm. for that. Um, What's the other thing I usually bring up? Uh, Spoilers. Yes, uh, we probably will have spoilers uh, here. In, I, I try my best on these not to do it too much, um, but there's, there's there's always like one or two details on some of the major ones that you just have to kind of let people know if, if you're giving it the top 10. And I don't I don't know. It's. So it might happen. It might happen. It does. Yeah, like again, we we watch so much stuff throughout the year, and this is a very spoiler heavy show. Uh, typically, yeah. um, on yeah. this episode, we do try to avoid them on this particular episode, just because there are certainly 
people who are going to be hearing about a few of these movies for the first time, especially some of the more underseen stuff on the honorable mention section. Um, so, uh, but, but we are just so used to like not caring about spoilers on the main show. And, you know, <laughs> we do firmly believe that sometimes, you know, you need to get into details about a movie to properly discuss why it works and why you like it. And yeah. so every once in a while, something might possibly le- uh, leak out, which is just an upfront warning, but we are going to do our best to avoid them. Um, you know, on, on here and maybe not just like give away any major endings or, you know, you know, things like of, of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Endings specifically, I try my best to avoid, but there's definitely going to be probably some middle stuff that, that might've been, you know, significant, but I think overall, a lot of the time too, with spoilers, although I do, you know, dislike spoilers, uh, minor ones, I think it'll still make the film work if it's doing it well. You know what I mean? I don't think we're going to destroy any film for you the, uh, in the next few hours. <laughs> That's right. Um, and uh, lastly, also, again, for anyone who is legitimately listening for the first time, the way that this is going to work is Jamie and I are going to go back and forth, each list, uh, listing out an honorable mention or two as like one kind of big segment, uh, trying mm-hmm. to basically just fire out as many underrated or underseen movies as we can possibly think of off the top of our heads. And then from there, we're going to break each uh, uh, list of ours, the, the, the numbered list in, into like an official countdown. And uh, we are and, and each sort of number will get its own sort of like ranked uh, uh, segment. And we'll go back and forth doing those um, as as well. Uh, but but one detail new for this year, because I'm going to assume that quite a few people have maybe been listening for a couple years now, maybe get are used to listening to this episode. And I'm happy that that you're all here. I hope you all have your your notes app out to write it yes. down that maybe you didn't get a chance to see um, your letterbox uh, just ready to go. Just watch list. Watch list. That's what I that's what I used <laughs> to do all the time. Some of my fave critics oh, yeah. would just like post their year end lists and I'd be like, what the hell was that? Yep. you know, so that's why I really understand anyone who tunes in for this episode. Um, but uh, because Jamie and I are idiots um, <laughs> and, and we love doing this so much uh, and felt that this was quite a strong year and felt really bad about cutting some stuff on on our, our list this year. Uh, our mm-hmm. usual top 10 is now also going to be a top 15, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I swear, based on our math won't actually make the episode any longer since we would talk about the 15 through 11 anyway on the honorable mention yeah. section. Um, and it, w- yeah. we just kind of wanted to get get a little bit more of a diverse list going uh, for, for each mm-hmm. of us this year. And I'll say this maybe was one of the harder ones for me for figuring out what technically counts as a genre movie or not. And so, so, so to yeah, feel less bad about the borderline art house dramas or like classy old fashioned comedies, like kicking out a legitimate horror action or sci-fi film or something, we felt mm-hmm. comfortable kind of broadening out the term a bit. If we were to add a few more slots for um, both of us. And also this is our show. We're the genre guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we get to decide we want. what we decide what genre <laughs> movies are. And if you think anything we say doesn't count, uh, our position on that is 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 fuck you. We've d- we've decided. Um, That's right. I, <laughs> that is right. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I speak for Jamie and I when I say that we both took a little bit of a personal kind of vibes based approach to genre this year. Um, totally. So you might even hear us occasionally try to make our arguments for why it counts or what our thinking on it was at uh, at at some point when we get into some of our choices as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I. I um and I'm not sure, maybe I'll just say it now uh, instead of just right before the, the top 15 and everything. There are a couple that I think maybe we're going to get to right now, um, even that we called them, I guess, like 
disqualifiers or, um, you know, just, just maybe it, it's something that we even just want to throw out there because it's not even good. It would, it would never make the, the genre list. Um, some of the ones that I have, I don't even know if I would call them disqualifiers. I just made my list more specifically the obvious genre films. And I think, uh, Josh, you have a couple in there that are on that, that borderline. And I thought that yeah. it would just be better for us to have a more diverse top 15 list each in that sense. And then we can, we just have more to show people more to talk about. Um, and I thought that that would be a good approach. So yeah, I neither Jamie of and I uh, discussed our philosophies when picking this year, and we're just <laughs> yeah. going to surprise each other with each other's lists, um, which I think is a yeah. very fun um, way to do this live anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So, but but don't expect any consistency on what we are saying is <laughs> exactly. officially a genre movie or what is the best one or what consists as one. And, you know, there's there's going to be no consistency here. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> at a certain point, we're, maybe we'll just have to just do like what our favorite movies are. So we stop ruining our brains over this process every <laughs> yeah, year. Just, but it's yeah, me, I was just uh, destroying myself with some of the ones that I'm like, I, I, I want to put it on. But then I also want to shine some light on something that might be more underseen that really is a straight up horror movie. It was just it was I was. Just, yeah. Destroying myself. So, you know, before you yell at us, consider the fact that we've already tortured ourselves over this exactly. entire process. Um, I've and, already waterboarded myself. And, and, and before we end up 15. going for too long, um, I have one section to enter that Jamie, as always, I always welcome to join in if he has anything that he wants to throw in, in here as well, just before we get into the honorable mentions, which is two different distinct sections, which is one, uh, my saving for 2024 list, which is mm. Jamie and I sometimes get to do see some festival uh, releases early. And sometimes those festival releases actually don't get a theatrical release or even like a online release before the year's up. And so no one has a chance to see them. So there's really no point in me saying this is the best genre movie of this year when none of you actually had a chance to see it or can't even watch it right now. So I have three yeah. of those titles for me. Uh, one was Hitman, which was Richard Linklater's uh, new me kind too. of deceptively breezy sort of like dark romantic comedy about uh, Glenn Powell as like a fake undercover sort of like sting operation hitman who constructs a bunch of sort of various identities and role plays as these hitmen that people hire to kill their spouses or family members in order to entrap them. And he eventually gets kind of wrapped up in a perverse, almost like Hitchcockian identity thriller sort of romance, um, uh, thing with 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 one of his targets that gets into some you know kind of hilarious and kind of like sexy rom com um, places and Netflix bought it out of the Toronto Film Festival this year so I was like, sort of expecting it to get released in November December but it, I guess they they just didn't it just never came out so I was like okay mm -hmm. so look forward to that uh, next year the other one was Hundreds of Beavers. Uh, yes, which I will too. be very brief about just because I don't want to spoil it for, <laughs> for Jamie who actually hasn't had a chance to watch it either. And this will be a contender 100%, um, next year, uh, which is basically just this very minimalist cast and crew doing, uh, using a DSLR and after effects and a bunch of like generic beaver mascot costumes that they bought online. And they created this like lo-fi survivalist horror action comedy, like epic about a fur trapper fighting a like a make-believe empire of, of beavers. And it's functionally like a guy Madden Looney Tune. So, uh, I won't say anything else more ab about, 
about it, we'll definitely be talking about it next year because it absolutely like blew the audience away when I saw it at TIFF this year. Um, and then the very last one on this list for me is The Beast, um, which is mm. the new film by the French genre art house filmmaker Bertrand Bonello. And it's an adaptation of a 1903 Henry James novella. Um, and I also don't really want to say much more about this until next year, other than saying that a lot of people have been, uh, comparing it to things like David Lynch and cloud Atlas, um, in terms okay. of it just being kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a romance, a melodrama about people finding each other in multiple, uh, sort of like lifetimes angle. I think that's where the cloud Atlas comparison is coming from. It's like a one third of it is a 1910, like Parisian costume drama. One third of it is like a Mulholland drive style, like 2014 Los Angeles. Uh, and mm-hmm. then the last one is like a sci-fi near future where the sort of these old memories and old lives are kind of being deleted from them because they're kind of traumatizing them in, in the future. Mm-hmm. But it has Leah Seydoux and George McKay in it, and uh, it's just yeah one of the most insane and ambitious uh, genre things that I that I saw this year. That yeah does like a full like incel murderer home invasion section of the film does a whole like weird uh you know kind of like costume drama that turns into like this fiery flood sequence and either way very incredible film we'll definitely be talking about it next year so those all all got knocked off and now jamie do you have anything that you want to disqualify uh or that you Uh, kind of personally maybe decided to leave off your list even though it might have been somewhere in the top 10 yeah, I do have a few of those. Uh, first, I'm just going to say a few um, kind of – it's similar to you. These are more – I just didn't get to see them. There's just like three of them. Uh, okay. And I w- they probably would have made the list, I feel like. So I just wanted to throw them out there. The um, uh, the Boy and the Heron, uh, directed by Miyazaki. Um, I mean, I'm absolutely in love with uh, Miyazaki from what I've seen. Um, I did kind of hear that this was a almost spiritual successor to uh, – uh, or like an unofficial sequel in a sense to Spirited Away. You know, it's very um, similar in the sense of uh, a fantasy where I think it's a boy this time that goes off to kind of a different different realm of some sort. And I, I don't know too much about it, but it just looked absolutely gorgeous from what I've, I've seen. And I heard good things from you uh, as well, Josh. So oh, yeah. um, that was one I'm, I just can't wait to see, but didn't get to see it. The other one just came out, so I... Uh, um, I'm hoping to see this very soon, but The Iron Claw, uh, directed by Sean Durkin, uh, stars Zac Efron. It's about the uh, true story of the of Vaughn uh, Eric brothers. Um, they're from. It's like an '80s wrestling drama, but I imagine that there's quite a bit of of well uh, shot action in it. Um, from the from the trailer, it seems like it'd be something that I'd really enjoy. I, I love wrestling, um, and. Uh, and everyone that I've talked to so far has been really giving it high praise. So that was something I wanted to throw out there as well. Um, and then the last one, I think this one is also on your list of uh, didn't get to see it, but wish you did, um, was uh, Poor Things uh, by... Uh, yeah, that was the one your, that kind of hurt to not see just because that like clearly was yeah. doing like a little bit of like a sci-fi monster kind of thing. And like, you know, it was doing like a, a female Frankenstein was kind of like the concept, like a but sex worker Frankenstein or something. So I was like, I don't know, that sounds <laughs> yeah. interesting. I would have liked to have had a chance to see it, but I didn't. Yeah, and seeing Emma Stone in something this strange, although she does, you know, kind of branch out in, into some some interesting stuff. Like I know she's doing uh, the Curse with Nathan Fielder right now, which I haven't seen, but seems very very uh, out there and interesting and kind of. Uh, uh, I've heard it's it's very awkward and and kind of crude and 
I don't know if mean spirited would be the word, but just the way it makes you uh, makes you feel is uneasy. And I feel like this poor things would have a lot of <laughs> a lot of that in a, in a different way, of course. But anything by uh, uh, Yorgos, um, I'm not sure how to say his last name. Is it Lanthimos? Lanthimos, I think. Lanthimos. He is just. Uh, he has a very, very individual style. I've I've loved some of his past movies, like uh, The Lobster specifically is one of my favorites. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to seeing that whenever I get a chance to. Cool. Yeah. So those are all ones that Jamie and I did not get to see. Um, and 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 for me, a couple that I kind of disqualified. These were ones that mm-hmm. I just couldn't make. I felt like I couldn't make enough for an, of an argument um, for personally. Um, I got rid of uh, the movie A Fire, directed by Christian Petzold, mm. which was pretty high on my list, which I half expected to qualify because his films like Phoenix and Transit, which I love, are these like practically like neo-Hitchcockian, like wartime identity melodramas. Um, okay. But, the, but this film was just not that at all. It was like this pretentious, like insecure, like asshole comedy um, and like a sort of more of like a lyrical, like literary, like European art house vacation romance. And it's it's still very psychologically perspective and 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 tragic, but it was definitely a drama just about a shithead writer who's so self absorbed. He just like makes himself miserable. Um, and I'd recommend people nice. check it out, but I I couldn't justify putting it anywhere. Um, I felt the same thing about sort of like Pacifiction, directed by Albert Serra, which was this kind of like experimental take on like a colonial diplomat sort of espionage quote unquote thriller. But I have a hard mm-hmm. time actually, you know, it, it's gorgeous and glacial and hypnotic and rambling and I really loved it. But I had a hard time actually making the argument that it's, you know, uh, <laughs> it's it's more Zama than it is Miami Vice is all I can say about okay, that. Yeah. Um, I also disqualified personally just for myself. I don't know if Jamie ended up putting his anywhere. Uh, Blackberry, directed by Matt Johnson, yeah. but I wanted to give it a, a, a shout out here because it was probably the best of this new wave of like product based biopics that we've been getting. Totally. Where the drama is about like how good at capitalism the underdog characters are, and <laughs> I, I I really you know liked Matt Johnson's approach where the depiction was just you know it's a bit more critical, it's a bit more interesting. People have been Barsicle. comparing it. Yeah, people have been comparing it to like the social network, only in this case it's about like an angry, bitter, bitter, like marketing huckster, like con man who vampirically like latches himself on to these like nerdy engineers who actually create and develop this technology and he slowly kind of corrupts them. And it was just it was a very compelling and refreshing um approach and it, yeah. it definitely helps that anyone familiar with this as like a piece of Canadian history knows how like unromantic <laughs> it needs to get about it because like the comp- it's just, the actual story itself has so much compromise and and kind of failure involved in it and shout out to Glenn Howerton um who is just like really great uh in 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 in, in the film uh yeah. and and who I thought so was wearing a bald cap but actually did just shave his head so that's you know that's awesome the commitment put, to the side king, baby. That's awesome. He, that's Got right. It. He, <laughs> that's he put he put the effort uh, the effort in. So Canadian boys, we definitely had to give Blackberry a shout out, even if I didn't uh, think it really landed anywhere on my list. Yeah, I, I totally agree because um, this was one of my my favorite comedies of the of the of the year. But it, I agree with everything you said. And there is what I liked about it stylistically is is like within the dialogue, um, there's almost. It, they're not trying to be sophisticated with the social network. You know, it has that very writerly dialogue back and forth. There's so many people just saying fuck you in this to each other in an office that it, it feels um, much more realistic about how they would probably be talking to each other as they're going through all of this this chaos. 
Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed just the kind of how loose it felt as they were um, uh, talking amongst each other in, in the offices and focusing on whatever innovation they're trying to to uh, get onto the BlackBerry or, and uh, as the iPhone is taking over and everything. So yeah, it was um, very funny, but yeah, I just didn't want to quite put it onto the genre list. So um, yeah, another yeah, one great, of great, those great, for great, me. Great, great soundtrack as, as as well on that one. And did you did yeah. you have any? Oh, sorry, did you have anything else in yours for the disqualifiers? Yeah. Well, see, this is for me again. I when I say disqualifier, I'm I'm not necessarily even th- saying that these don't have an argument for being. Uh, having genre elements, but there are a few that I just didn't throw on there because one, I thought you might already be throwing them on your list. So I think one, I was trying to kind of just make a different list and okay. um, wanted to focus on what well, again. If you think the, I'm doing them, we can definitely save them. And when I bring them up, you can say this was on. I thought about this one, but I maybe okay. disqualified this one. Okay. Because um, I think most of them. I'm I'm looking at them and I feel like they would be so I can I can uh, <laughs> this is what happens I, I when we don't wait. exchange notes ahead of time one of the yeah, downfalls if, if of it one of them if one of them doesn't get popped up I'll just say it at the end uh, I'll I'll do okay. that but I I have a feeling that these three I have are on your list so I, I think we'll have a discussion anyway so hell yeah all right well the very last one then for me before honorable mentions was just uh, one that would be pretty high on my list but something about it just didn't seem right uh, to. <laughs> be including it on a on a genre movie list in like a kind mm-hmm. of like an exploitation or an entertainment kind of kind of fashion uh which was the zone of interest directed by oh, yeah. uh, jonathan glazer uh which is a very loose adaptation of the late martin amos's holocaust novel about the sort of banal horror machinery of auschwitz as uh, viewed through the monotonous ambiance of sort of Nazi domesticity, literally uh, sort of living right next door to it, which uh, Glazer conceptually even takes a step further than the source material by kind of funneling it through this sort of austere Michael Haneke uh, and a kind of compartmentalized sort of architecture style of like Roy Anderson, where like we literally see a Nazi family playing or gardening, but we can see the smoke plumes from the camps like just over the fence line of their backyard or constantly hear the of just like executions in the background and um so either way there are a number of scenes scenes in it which were among some of the more upsetting uh that i that i saw uh last year uh but but the true impact for me of the film was just his commitment to the approach um of not just giving you like a single shocking moment um Mm -hmm. but just kind of the overall effect of it how it really slowly and very deliberately kind of sinks you into its management of rooms, its routines, its, you know, garden excursions, the table setting. And, you know, he, he, and he did this by developing a kind of documentary hidden camera voyeurism approach of, Mm. Uh, which for anyone familiar with under the skin and how Scarlett Johansson like drove around with cameras and like picked up real people. It's a little bit similar to that where it's like a multi-camera sort of reality thing. But in this case, it's like complete meticulous historical recreation of the Nazi homes, 100% natural lighting. So no like fake lighting setups anywhere. And then essentially filming the rooms as you would like reality television with like the entire house set up (laughs) and the actors just walking around it and cutting to the various cameras throughout the house and stuff. And he just, he so methodically sticks to that uh, concept 
and so thoroughly leaves the kind of monumental evil of this history on like the edges of 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 his frames that it's just mm-hmm. it's it's such an incredible uh you know sort of extra filmmaking exercise and i know that some people are maybe going to take issue with the fact that it turns this history into almost like this like art installation um mm-hmm. but for for me i really did think that you know it's captured so well how these characters through the careful maintenance and mundane logistics of their houses and their jobs, like really do try to suppress the contradiction of, of, of their lives and everything like that. And it builds to a really, really harrowing ending, which I, I I won't spoil, but it has these, this sort of temporal cutting and it's a, it's a really great gut punch of, of a movie and it would have been fairly high Mm. for me, but something about declaring Holocaust cinema as a genre just (laughs) kind of seemed wrong. So I wanted to get rid of it up front. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Glazer, and I, I can't wait to watch that. Um, it does, like, as you describe it, it does sound like uh, just in the in the feelings like a, a horror film, but I totally understand that, you know, it, it all being on the periphery, having the history that it does, it's like you don't really want to just just line it up with just that, you know? It's, it sounds like a very complicated film. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not under the skin, whereas under the skin, I think, right. would absolutely qualify for the list, you know? And totally, so totally. that was that was just it. That was why I went into it kind of maybe thinking that it that it could. But I I kind of felt like leaving it off. Um, yeah. But yeah. with that being said, we should get into the honorable mentions and yes. hopefully not go for a total two hours. But if it <laughs> happens, so be it. And if you yeah. get upset about it, there's time codes on the episode. You can skip right past the honorable mentions. You can go just to the numbers if 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 you'd like to. But honestly, yeah. I'd, just I'd, I'd recommend hour stick- by hour. <laughs> yeah, I'd recommend sticking it out for this one because there's so many films that you know just barely don't make the list that I go. You know, those were still better movies than some of the things that you know we were forced to see on mass this year, uh, yes. just for discourse purposes or because they made a lot of money or you know whatever. Um, and I'm going to immediately discredit myself by going first and putting one that literally nobody else will have on their list and I just am <laughs> hoping to get a laugh at a Jamie. Uh, Marlo <laughs> yeah, is number go. one for me, directed by Neil Jordan <laughs> uh, which is a pick exclusively for me. We did talk about it on the bonus transmission. Uh, it is mm-hmm. Liam Neeson as a geriatric uh, Philip Marlowe kind of conspiratorially investigating wealthy actresses and nightclubs uh, that, you know, very much felt like watching grandpa get drunk and uh, think he was reenacting Chinatown or like L.A. Confidential. Um, And uh, it was one of those things where if your movie is anything like the video game L.A. Noir, I probably kind of like it a little bit. And um, (laughs) true. So that is the only reason that this is on here. I totally admit shameless, hollow pastiche work that's like barely doing anything that even resembles Philip Marlowe. Like they definitely <laughs> should have just called it like Sam Spade or Jake, Jake Giddies from Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's been hobbled together stylistically. I forget where it was shot, but it, it was not shot in L.A. at all. So it's like a totally digital artificial approximation of 1930s and 40s uh, Los Angeles uh totally just recreated from people's imagination of what it's like in the movies. Um, but, uh, also weirdly graphically violent. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know what? Yeah, that's just, I'm a mark for someone doing some classic noir shit, even in a strange kind of compromised form like that. So that was why it was my, uh, my first one. And it is fun just watching Neeson be a grumpy old man. It's a good time. Um, (laughs) but yeah, you know what? Just because that one was, 
kind of the one to make me laugh. I'm going to do the one to make you laugh. Uh, Hypnotic, oh directed by oh, Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fucking get it, boys. Um, we're going with so the anyway, brain dead. The the, yeah, the, 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 brain, is, the brain smoothing choices is how we're launching the honorable yeah. mentions up front here. We're launching with the smooth brains for sure. Um, so this one, it, the reason that I like this film is just because it is kind of that quintessential like stupid guy thriller script where they have just a ton of convoluted twists and turns, half of which don't make any sense, half of which are just purely like they're very obvious that they're coming. Um, but the but the way that the film takes it is it's incredibly sincere. It's taken very seriously. And um, and to have someone like Ben Affleck star in it is is something else as well, where you're just you don't expect someone of this caliber to be in something like this at this point in his career. And he's you know, he's really I, don't, I wouldn't say he's dedicated to the role. He's definitely kind of sleeping through it. But just for him to try to sincerely give some of this dialogue um, uh, is, is 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 incredible to watch, in my opinion. And I really did have a lot of fun with every fucking stupid twist that happens. And I don't even really want to spoil it. But essentially, it's about uh, a detective, um, and he's he's missing his daughter, and he's trying to unravel this mystery. And as he does, he discovers that um, he's actually kind of in a, in a machine of sorts in which he's doing this this case over and over again so that a, a specific company can discover something that only he knows about. And at the same time, um, there's a, a villain that uses hip, hypnos, uh, um, uh, hypnosis to control people and make like guards kill each other and, and all of this. And it's just absolutely ridiculous. It's so, the bozo version of cure where a, yes. a killer is going around, you know, literally hypnotizing people into like committing crimes and shit. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So if that interests you, I'd, I'd recommend it just on the level that I thought it was stupid enough to be entertaining. Um, and I, I think at least you'll get a chuckle out of it. it. It's it may not be something that you thoroughly enjoy, but I this is the type of stuff that I can, you know, really latch on to. And there's usually one really dumb movie like this a year that I like, and this was that one. So, hell yeah! Uh, my next one uh, is Limbo, directed by um, a Australian filmmaker by the name of Ivan Sen. Um, nice. which is this um, downbeat uh, meditative sort of digital black and white take on like the hard boiled neo-Western neo-noir uh, that traces the cold murder investigation of this indigenous girl, which is being given, um, you know, quote unquote, like fresh eyes decades, you know, too late uh, by this guilt ridden drug addicted uh, former vice cop named Travis Hurley played by uh, the mentalist himself, Simon Baker. Um, also, mm. uh, we talked about briefly in, uh, LA confidential as well, which was his, uh, fir first role that he ever, he ever got. And anyway, he, he's kind of aged himself into like, you know, having some harder facial features, having a bit more of like a scraggly beard. And I, I, I kind of liked his performance in the film as he becomes witness to this casual cycle of kind of suffering and institutional indifference and the kind of festering wounds that are left in the wake of this small desert, um, sort of indigenous Australian community after this murder and uh anyone familiar with this kind of procedural mystery i don't think we'll find too many like narrative surprises as he digs into the various sort of like 
witnesses and suspects and suspicious family members of the girl who want nothing to do with this like white cop. Um, but this, this was my first time watching um, an Ivan Sen film who is also the cinematographer and the editor and the composer on the film. Um, oh. So he, he's doing it all. And I honestly felt that he had a good feel for kind of all of it. Like it has this mundane sort of purgatorial mood to it. It has these very harsh, like dusty sort of landscape photography. That's really nice. Um, and there's a great shot in it that's like especially impactful of like all these holes that have been dug up in the desert that kind of metaphorically speak to what he's doing there and how daunting this task is. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was very like artfully controlled. And um, instead of ending on sort of like shootouts and sort of excitement, it's a it's a movie all about just like a lack of resolution and kind of a dis- disappointment uh, that that mm. this character can't solve this this mystery and that the damages are are so long lasting that even if he did it might not make a difference and so uh if anyone didn't get a chance to see it limbo little australian noir that kind of surprised me this year cool yeah that was on my list actually i just didn't get around to it um uh this one i'm just gonna throw because I, I honestly think i i mentioned it last year um but it got the official theatrical release this year so i figured i'd just throw it out there again uh skinnamarink uh directed hey. by kyle edward ball some more this canadian is, cinema yeah yeah, this this one is is really interesting. Um, I definitely would say it's not for everybody. It's kind of in the realm of that, you know, slow cinema in, in, in a sense. But it's it's about uh, two children. They wake up in the middle of the night, and um, basically, all of the the doors are starting to disappear. Their house is kind of becoming this almost ghostly labyrinth that they're that they're familiar with, but things are changing to the point they can't quite understand it. Um, and they're about the age of five or six, something like that. So they 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 have a very minimal understanding of of the world and reality in general. So it's kind of like going through a um, a, a child's nightmare. Um, and uh, the way that it is shot is you really just get a lot of the things from the ceiling and the floor. You never see the children's uh, faces. It's only their feet, and you kind of hear these whispers. And the way that they um, they uh, record the audio is is through like really high gained um, microphones because a lot of the time the children are trying to not, you know, uh, um, uh, they're they're trying to be quiet because they're very scared and they don't know what's around them, and so they'll actually have subtitles to, to so that you can understand all of the dialogue as well because it's that quiet. It just has a very creepy mood. Um, it, it kind mm-hmm. of for me it reminded I think I told the story last year, but it reminded me of this dream I had as a kid when. I was sleeping in my parents' room and I woke up uh, and it was pitch black and I just, no matter what I was doing, I would go in every direction and eventually just hit a wall and it, it, it was just a reoccurring thing that kept happening until I woke up. Um, and it's, 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 it feels like that. It's just kind of this locked in nightmare. Um, and I think it's very, very interesting. It is slow again, so I'll warn you, but I think if you turn all the lights off and really try to sink into it, it can be a very effective horror film. Yeah, that, that one definitely has one of the most effective, like lo-fi aesthetics of, of the <laughs> year this year where it, you know, very eerie, very fragmented sort of like low light digital photography that they've like put this like 16 millimeter fuzz on top of and this like crackling, as you put it, like over cranked, like gain sort of sound design to it. And it, yeah. it very much takes this like nostalgic childhood home for the filmmaker and really does turn it into this like subconscious nightmare that has been, as we've been hearing from people, like really pulling up these like old memories and old nightmares that um, 
people have been uh, experiencing. But also, I will say, yeah, like it's really successful at it. It turns CRT televisions into you know, uh, and, and like carpeted floors and various sort of like night lights and stuff into this like purgatory things, things that should be comfortable. Like something that reminds you of, of your childhood nostalgia and it's just making it scary. (laughs) Yeah. And, but, and, and that's just it though, is that for anyone who's going into this expecting like some conventional genre thrills, like Mm -hmm. expecting Mm -hmm. some kind of like Blair Witch or maybe Ghost Watch style kind of like found footage maybe kind of stuff like there's a couple good scares in it but beyond that you know you really do just kind of have to get into the abstract repetition of its of, of its mood um, yeah. if you want to you know really get on get on its um, wavelength so yeah. but good movie and good good shout out because it did come out this year finally and we did yeah. briefly shout it out last year so people should be checking it out. Um, one that weirdly says 2022 on it that I was trying to figure out why it said 2022 on it is uh, another one of the bigger horror movies this year. Uh, talk to me, which I imagine is also on Jamie's honorable mentions. We can probably both do it. Definitely. This is another Australian one, Canadian and Australian cinema. We're kind of giving them a shout out out front here. Um, we're killing it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this one directed by uh, uh, brothers by the name of Michael Philippou and Danny Philippou, um, who uh, we talked about this one over on the bonus transmission a few months ago. And my only real reservation about it was its kind of commercial trendiness, um, sure. where it, it, it does sometimes get a little lost in this weird middle ground between being like a modern A24 sort of allegory horror film about grief and drugs and self-harm or suicide, kind of pick your poison, you know, designed mm-hmm. to kind of fit nicely on a streaming playlist that includes something like It Follows or Hereditary or Smile. You can kind of see where it's like these films or how they pitched it that way. Um, And while also being a little bit more of like on premise wise on like the lowbrow like Blumhouse side of like an internet curse or possession horror film like a Ouija board movie or a truth or dare type kind of thing as it's essentially about like TikTok zoomers and their dang cell phones using an embalmed hand that if they summon it, it will temporarily like possess their body like they're doing like evil dead possession as like a party trick or something which i guess they sort of get like addicted to like it's a drug which i'm not entirely sure the movie like totally makes sense of but regardless of that reservation up front what i dug about it what i think we both dug about it was that it was Mm -hmm. genuinely fucking nasty and distasteful (laughs) and it was made by these youtube pranksters who i went into it being suspicious of because i'm like oh youtubers making movies and then i came out of the movie being like wow youtubers made a fucking movie because like and, and and you can tell that these guys at one point made like amateur wrestling videos and jackass type content where they were all about just being weird and gross for entertainment and seeing that energy kind of put into this is and and having that kind of like devilish first filmmaker attitude with the camera playfulness and just the you know the inventive scenarios that they come up with to brutalize their characters and yeah there was just there that was what really kind of struck me about this film and what got it higher on my honorable mentions that i kind of um expected it to especially just that brief moment in the film where uh we see what getting lost on like the other side of this like possession hand dimension thing looks like and it's this really like unsettling vision straight out of like a hellraiser torture dungeon or like that disturbing flashback or tape sequence in event horizon so i went you know i kind of wish the movie was more like that and less like the you know the kind of movies it has to be like in order to make the amount of money this made um but i i i did I was kind of surprised. I, I, 
modern A24 horror film made by YouTubers was actually quite good. And I would be curious to see what they do if they are maybe, you know, given a little bit more um, freedom to, uh, you know, not have to maybe write something that's so trendy. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think when we ended up reviewing it, we were like, this is the type of uh, energy we want these YouTubers to start channeling. It's like, take all of the depravity that you have and the anger towards society that, and, and you know all of the terrible mean pranks that you're doing to the public and just focus it on this, this horror art. And I think that you guys really have something here. It's, it's <laughs> just, just make something this mean spirited again. But uh, like you said, a little bit more detached from you know the, the conventional stuff that we see all the time. I, I think that these guys, honestly have really good potential. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing whatever they, they get to do next, which I imagine they might, because of how successful this was, they, they really might get to do something of their own uh, next time, like wholeheartedly their own without uh, the, the execs down their throat, which I think was still kind of a thing. I remember, I, I'm, I can't remember the specifics, but I think they went on uh, Rogan and I was seeing some clip uh, of them talking about it. And, and there were a couple things that they had to, you know, um, uh, uh, compromise on, but you can tell that for a lot of it, whatever they did get to push through is, is very much there. It's a, it is kind of a, in the line of fuck them kids cinema. So got to respect it on this show. Um, so I agree. Yeah, that was a shout out as well for me. Um, uh, my next one is also a, a 2022 uh, one that uh, just got released this year, but it does have that, that tag. It's a, a sick by John Hyams. Um, yes, hell yes, we are, as well. Yeah, we are big Himes fans uh, here. Uh, he did Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, which is just an absolutely incredible DTV action film that you absolutely must see. Um, yeah, still the only a, movie we've broken the rules on the main show to cover a film in the 2010s. <laughs> yeah, because it was that just good. totally worth it. And it's, it's just the good. best direct-to-video action movie that, I, that I've seen, so... I th- yeah, I think me too. Yeah, absolutely. So... So sick is um it's it's kind of like a almost a, a pandemic spoof horror film uh, in a way but two two people or two girls go to their uh, family's um, b- big cottage house uh, to kind of escape what's going on in the pandemic and um, because of that some some killers go inside their their home and uh, it ends up being for different reasons than you think they're actually kind of these psychotic uh, COVID rule obsessed killers that are um, uh, uh, trying, trying to kill them and teach them a lesson. Um, it is, yeah, that is a bit of a, a, a spoiler because I guess the, this, the first half of it is really just, you think it's a, a, a very typical home invasion kind of slasher film that you've seen before and then this kind of gets unraveled. So I do apologize for that, but it is kind of... Um, it, 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 in, a, in a way, it's kind of the cell eventually of the film because it does become very um, farcical in that way when they start to like, you know, get your mask up and all of that kind of stuff. And Yeah, which is know, obviously I, partially coming from the fact that this is written by a legendary like teen meta horror scribe, Kevin Williamson, who wrote like right. Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. So this was kind of considered a big sort of feature film. Uh, returned by him but also you know clearly written during the confusing hysterical midst of like march april 2020 so it's also as a result like kind of like a covid lockdown protocol uh slasher which yeah 
And some of that stuff, I, I think, you know, when I see anything now where it's like, you know, in the in the COVID era, I usually just give myself a big eye roll because it, it most of the stuff that I've seen that, that's doing that hasn't been very good. Um, and this, you know, it, it has its moments of that, of course. You almost just want to forget those few years entirely. But um, um, there, there's still a lot of, of fun to be had, and it's very well directed. I think that's really what yeah. makes the film uh, as good as it is, is, is John Hyam's direction. He just has such good control of, of the, the actual action sequences when there's the slasher elements and even just kind of... Uh, the way he does um, suspense sequences, like when they're looking for them and hiding, I think he's very good at that. So, um, yeah, yeah, hell yeah, shot. yeah. The, the 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 kinetic like survival chase set pieces of like a masked killer going after them are definitely what you want to go to the the, yeah. the 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 movie for. And because Williamson just can't write another movie, like it is functionally just like. Yeah, 80 minute suspense this. machine like the ringing cell phones the shadowy stalkers the geographical like decision making even right down to like the killers being clumsy and like running around and tripping over shit and like all like it's just every single like ghost face set piece you can think of this is like the direct-to-video uh covid version of and yeah hyams is a good enough director to actually pull that off like he knows how to shoot a cat and mouse you know logistical thrill scene he knows how to kind of cat copy these craven-esque like scope widescreen scope like screen space and doing all the sked steady cam long takes and stuff like that and yeah mm -hmm. and so if anyone hasn't had a chance to see it it kind of came out earlier uh in the year but uh worth checking out for sure yeah uh, the next one for me is uh, one that I don't remember if this officially came out or not, but I'm going to throw it in because I saw it at TIFF, I think, in 2022, and I expected it to come out this year. But it's it's my only mm. pick from uh, Iran this year, um, which is a film called Subtraction, directed by Manny mm. Nagahihi. I actually am not sure exactly how to pronounce his name, but it is essentially this... Um, marriage drama that turns into a mystery thriller as this couple who have kind of grown distant from each other uh, and think the other might be like cheating on them or, you know, as just, you know, just grown distant to them. Uh, they realize that the other person is kind of spending time with is like each other's like literal doppelganger. Um, mm. And at first you're not sure if they're just like crazy or if this is like a legitimate tangible clone situation or if this is all just an allegory. Uh, but the atmosphere and voyeurism of this couple kind of like spying on each other's lives and like role playing is uh, really quite good. And by the end of the film, though not on like the same level, obviously, I was reminded a bit of the end of um, Possession. Uh, which is Ooh, another cool. uh, marriage drama as like genre movie exorcism where Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny uh, get those like pale, like alien versions of themselves um, yeah. that, you know, don't have the destructive flaws of their real selves. And, you know, like this movie doesn't have any sex with giant tentacle monsters or anything. So, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get it. I don't want to get anyone <laughs> too hyped up, but I, I, I ended up with kind of like a similar sort of unsettling feeling of like the, this version of these couples, like maybe destroying the better versions of themselves or something like that. And, uh, mm. the style was quite well done and, and, and quite engrossing. So I wanted to get it a, give it a brief shout out. Perfect. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a two uh, quickly just because they. Yeah, we they might have of, to start doing that already. Yeah. Well, yeah, fair fair <laughs> enough. But these these two also line up uh, with each other quite a quite a bit. Cool. The first one is a uh, uh, 2022, but it was released this year. So uh, Sisu, 
uh, directed by Jalmeri Hellander. Um, and yep. also it's a good one. It's about a uh, a, um, a a man that what do you, what do you call him again? The the he's the a gold prospector gold. or yes, like a, a miner or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and he 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 stumbles um, on like a Nazi patrol, uh, and basically they uh, are are uh, looking for him and and what you know he's he's got I think he finds a specific amount of gold, and then there's kind of these um this uh, this this misunderstanding, and eventually the Nazis are after him, and basically it's just watching him destroy Nazis because he's like this legendary killer. They kind of set him up almost as like a John Wick type of of character from like, it's like he's a fable or something from some, uh, some, some like German lore or something like that. Um, but they know of him and of uh, him Finnish and his Finnish lore. I just oh, wanted Finnish. to highlight. Right. Yes. yes. Sorry. That's my bad. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they really treat him like John wick to the point by the end, he's like surviving things that no human being would. Um, so that, so they very much make him a larger than life character, but it's, it's just watching Nazis get absolutely destroyed for 90 minutes. And so, you know, that's just, just a, a, a good wholesome time um, yep. and uh, this other one which is basically kind of this, a similar premise except for um, they make it so that it's uh, uh, a, a German soldier that was kind of um, forced into the situation he was in and they they take his family away from him and then he's just uh, getting um, revenge um, as the again the SS troops are looking for treasure and so it's it's they're very similar films uh, where it's basically just watching Nazis get absolutely destroyed but this one is Blood and Gold and it's directed by Peter Thorworth um, and this one actually came out this year um, I think just on Netflix it was it, it seems like kind of a throwaway not too many people have seen it but it, I just thought the action was sturdy you know and if you're just looking for Again, ninety minutes of of good action the, and the Nazis people being want to see Nazi murder machine set pieces. Although I will yeah. say with Sisu, I I kind of liked that it was borderline like a Nazi exploitation movie, where True. it was like you know the guy going across the is he's almost getting into like spaghetti western style duels against like SS unit yeah. and killing them in like genuinely like. Inventive and kind ways. of hilarious ways, like yeah, and, and gruesome. Still, like you see a knife go into a dude's temple, but like that bit where he like throws uh, a mine and <laughs> right. you know and he he tosses it over at them and it lands on his helmet and he explodes and it's full chunky like body bag explosion. Like it is a gag. Yes, absolutely. And I will say, like Sisu has that style, and Blood and Gold is more of that. Um, closer to when I was saying that Sisu is kind of this this John Wick character the the way that the style of fighting is is very John Wick-esque with blood and gold it's not as exaggerated as Sisu is it's more just very on the grounds action based a lot of like you know the jiu-jitsu moves and people just grabbing a a, a plate that's next to him and smashing it on their head and that that kind of thing so they, they are different in the sense of the way they go about their their action styles um, but just very similar premises. So both cool. worth a watch, I'd say. All right. Well, that actually goes pretty perfectly into one of the doubles that I wanted to do, which was uh, two that I felt went together because f to me, they felt like direct to video action movies that somehow got like theatrical mid budgets. Um, okay. 
Uh, one was Extraction 2, directed oh, by yeah. Sam Hargrave, which was the follow-up to the Netflix original Extraction, starring Chris Hemsworth as the like tactical military mercenary extraction artist uh, named Tyler Rake, which I will mention every single time that I can because I think it's just an inc- <laughs> it's one of those like generic names, but it's so good. And in the first movie, he like kills a guy with a rake, and I was like so stupid, and I had a blast <laughs> yeah. with it. Um, and That's it's the right it, kind of stupid. That's right. And it's directed by this guy, Sam Hargrave, who I guess used to be a stunt coordinator for Marvel, uh, but who has found mm. a much higher calling uh, doing the Chad Stahelski sort of John Wick style of very cleanly shot, very stunt oriented choreography. But unlike Stahelski, who actually I think has some, you know, illusions of, 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 of grandeur and not misplaced or anything. We'll talk about John Wick for him, assuming at some point today. Yeah. Um, but uh, just, Hargrave doesn't even try to have like class or style or like fit <laughs> references to like class, like to like, you know, old school action movies or anything like that. This is just pure violent brutalizing to a yeah, uh, very disreputable degree. And uh, I do hope at some point he works with writers who aren't like the Russo brothers because the both films have made me like just zone out every time someone starts to like explain the plot or is like crying about whatever backstory they've come up with. But I that but was both something films, that we were saying when we were doing the review that we were just like, you are yes. here to watch Chris Hemsworth fucking destroy people because when they start talking, it is the dumbest shit you've ever heard in your life. Thank you, Russo. Yeah, yeah, and and whereas when it gets to the action, I'm cackling, and it's so gleefully staged, yeah. it's so hyper-violent, oh, yeah. and, you know, like, just seeing things like Chris Hemsworth squishing a screaming dude with a leg press, or that, like, crazy <laughs> yeah. prison yard brawl turned into, like, this massive train gunfire set piece, and almost doesn't make sense, but it just right. keeps going, and it's so physically committed to it, and this guy knows enough of the stunt craft to actually kind of pull it off, and... Either way, simply here because it was kind of sick to see an expensive, like, prestige streaming money go to what is functionally just like a really violent, generic direct to video action movie. And Hemsworth is good. The set pieces are good and quite physical. And the other one was a plane, one of the yeah. big January releases of the year, directed by Jean Francois Richet. Uh, this is the annual Gerard Butler slot that he always earns because uh, he comes out with two or three movies a year. And one of them is always just good enough to make to make the to make the list. I can't wait for Den of Thieves, too. But oh, we yeah. have Plane for now, which was just a very lean, very solid, violent entry in the January programmer um, genre that kind of felt, I think I argued when when we covered it, that it felt like lost from like the Rennie Harlan era or something where it's just like, it's like a, a low rent direct-to-video B-movie like plot that somehow just like kind of escaped onto the, uh, the, the, the big screen where you have Gerard yeah. Butler as functionally Captain Sully diehard, who is just like <laughs> forced to on new year's Eve crash land on an Island due to the fact that big plane bureaucrats were forcing him to fly through a dangerous storm. And instead right. of switching gears into like a typical survival movie, it just turns out that the Island is swarming with militias who want to hunt him and his passengers down. <laughs> of <laughs> course, even just describing the plot. It's just such a stupid idea. Yeah. Um, 
but it, 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 it's, it's a blast and Gerard Butler is very committed to it. And the fact that he ends up having this kind of like a bromance with the French foreign legionnaire uh, character, who's also an extradited murderer uh, played by Mike Coulter. <laughs> and together, those guys are just they're so sweaty, so muscular, and they're doing these really pretty intense like jungle rescue set pieces that get progressively more um ridiculous as they go on in terms of like just the widescreen brawling and the stealth takedown there's like sledgehammers to the head and there's one yeah. set piece that i've has actually stayed with me through the year which is the dirty over the shoulder uh stuff where the dudes are just being turned into chunks of flying meat by the bear at 50 <laughs> cal when he's oh, actually yeah. when he's actually trying to like take the plane off and stuff it's just it's either way you know yeah. it's a movie that is only to be enjoyed watching on tv with your dad um yes but uh you know it's the kind of movie the term three-star classic was coined for so i had to give a shout out to both of those yeah and i won't spoil how but it does have like a big villain death that is very similar to the stuff that you've seen in like death wish films so it's, <laughs> it's a it's a good time <laughs> i agree yeah um so yeah, the next one for me is uh, the Artifice Girl uh, by Franklin Rich. Hell yeah. um, this is a really cool one. It's it's about a, a man that builds an AI system to help to try to uh, uh, assist with the situation of child trafficking, specifically predators online. Um, and what it does is kind of a three part film. Uh, one is when the, the 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 FBI is kind of interrogating him about what he's built because he thinks that he's actually one of the perverts himself. Uh, the second part is when they're trying to kind of discover whether or not the AI has consciousness. And the AI is also representing a 10 to 12 year old girl that's going through all of these predators and, and at, you know, talking to them and, and learning about them and, and uh, evolving as she as she learns. Um, and I guess the, the the question becomes whether or not if she has consciousness, is this OK for us to really send off what seems to be a legitimate 12 year old into these spaces? Well, that's just yeah, if, if you predators. if you've made a computer program that is a little girl and use her to bait online predators, then like how would that program feel about that? And how would it right. feel about, you know, us given that? that is who it primarily interacts with. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, so it's, it's a cool concept for a movie. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's, it's one of those films that I would think like it's very a dialogue heavy. Uh, uh, the first two parts, especially, I mean, I guess it's all practically three parts a are play. Just based in, <laughs> yeah. It's it, all three parts are just based in, in, in a room. Uh, the first is the interrogation room. The second is when they're kind of looking into the systems itself. And then the third one is when she becomes an actual, physical being that can be that she can travel around in the living room as long as she's connected to these wires that are kind of connected to the household. Um, and, um, and it, it's, it's just, it's very well done. It's very th thought provoking. I, um, and I, I thought that the, the performances are great too. And it, it has, I think a pretty, and I won't spoil this either, but a, a very, I think beautiful ending that, ends up being incredibly sad with just a, a second of of a character kind of giving you this glimpse of what they're actually feeling and it's 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 very uh i thought it was very good yeah yeah i remember thinking it was maybe a tad too confined and and expository yes. but like as yes. far as like taking these sort of artificial intelligence ideas like and 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 honestly some of them are also of interest to sort of like the spielberg and kubrick film ai it feels like that was almost mm. a bit of a jumping ground where that one is all about like the this this kid who almost serves as a kind of replacement to like you know uh 
you know, he's he's a a not real boy. He's Pinocchio in in mm-hmm. in a sense. And in this mm-hmm. one, they use it as also an allegory for you know parental protection and sort of a reflection of ourselves. That kind of you know it it maybe this thing if we build it and it's a program, it maybe inherits some of our flaws and our our histories and stuff. But then translating that into more of like an ex machina you know, kind of style, sort of like chamber play where these characters kind of get to philosoph- philosophically like duke it out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like low budget indie sci-fi debut as far as that's concerned. Pretty cool little movie. And also I wanted to, the, the, I thought the girl was great. Like the actual She's child really performance. good. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. Because she does have um, to play kind of a, you know, it's, it's like a, a child playing an adult in a sense because she has to give off the sense that she's not a child so she can continue her job. So it's honestly very complicated and nuanced role and she does. Yeah. Well, and, yeah and the fact that she's on the TV as like another character having to interact mm-hmm. with the three people in the room. And I remember when we talked, when we looked into it, we found out that like they did that by actually having her in another room, like live reacting and performing with what she was right. hearing mic'd up from the other room and stuff like that. So it's cool little idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, next one for me is, I don't, I, 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 I'm switching between big ones and small ones, big ones and small ones. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll do a big one cause I haven't done a little, uh, I haven't done a big one in a bit here. Um, I kind of want to give a shout out to a, a movie called the creator, uh, directed nice. by Gareth Edwards, uh, because I'm a huge fan of Gareth Edwards, uh, and, and his, especially his American Godzilla film from 2014, which I'm sure a lot oh, of people yeah. are, are, are familiar with. I think he is a genuinely unbelievable talent when it comes to just like seamlessly merging sort of like modern epically scaled sort of, um, CG VFX shots with like old school, tangible, like actual location photography. And I think he has a yeah. good control of mood and kind of atmosphere and especially that Godzilla film has like this very clean almost like Spielbergian sort of set piece staging in terms of just the rhythm of it moves and the way it holds its long takes and so the idea of a new original sci-fi film from him was definitely high on my list to check out and I think that him and the director of photography Greg Frazier who also recently shot Dune uh, clearly put a lot of painstaking work into realizing the sort of visual design and and, and texture of uh this uh this movie the creator which uh kind of has this retro futurist american imperialism vietnam war movie meets blade runner kind of sci-fi thing is uh, like what it appears to be trying to do um and uh they've also done it in like this sort of like killer imperialist cop soldier has an existential crisis uh which is the one thing about that that I'll say is that like it's themes about AI and like a soldier realizing humanity and them and stuff. It's it's like it's so ripped from Blade Runner that it, I have sure. a hard time even actually say like original, I guess. Yes. But like plot plot wise, they even steal the more like more human than human is actually like said in the movie. I was like, OK, well, you know, it's just Blade Runner. Right. Um, yeah. But. Um, you know, you can also see him doing some other stuff. Like I, I heard him referencing like Apocalypse Now and like Akira and one of mm-hmm. my favorite Clint Eastwood movies, A Perfect World with this relationship to this, to this kid as John David Washington is like this soldier who goes over to uh, new Asia and he has to like hunt down this super weapon, which just turns out to be this kid. Um, and either way, despite all of these, like clearly, you know, like Edwards has good taste. He has a good sense for directing. I feel like ultimately he really did just make, uh, Neil Blomkamp's avatar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If, If you've ever seen a Neil Blomkamp movie, that's, 
probably closer to what this is than I expected it um, to be. It's more of a concept art coffee table book than it is like a like an actual movie. But I thought it was really gorgeous. And even if it was derivative of a bunch of like better movies, I do always just appreciate that Edwards, his instinct as a director is to be kind of patient and be kind of earnest and really think about the design of his worlds, really careful in depicting it. And because he's a VFX guy first, he always knows what to shoot that what he needs practically and what he can do best on his computer. Whereas a lot of people never get that ratio, right? They always go, we can do that in post. And then the VFX guys are like thinking about committing suicide for the next six (laughs) months. That's that's going to take four years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas he, so as a VFX guy, he comes into it knowing what, it makes more sense to do in post than what makes more sense to get on set. And so because of that, I think his movies are just like gorgeous. And I thought that mm-hmm. the, totally. how thoughtful and upsetting of a depiction this was of sort of like the U S sort of like military action in a sci-fi context was pretty uncommon, I think for a PG movie. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I love the little suicide bomber robots and you know, it's, it, it was gorgeous and I, I had a good time with it. I, I do just wish that it was, you know, got to a, I, I wasn't as moved by it as I am something like Blade yeah. Runner. And I, I, I am not still completely sold on John David Washington. He comes about a little bit as a blank slate in this film, but you know, I liked him in Tenet, mm-hmm. So who knows, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a, a strange actor for me too, so far. Cause I think he works really well in Tenet because it feels like such a, I mean, a lot of the time he's just confused as a character going through all of those different things. So he's kind of what well, he's called the protagonist. I think he's designed to be right. a bit of like a blank slate character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I did. I did kind of feel that a little bit with with the creator. But the thing I do remember is just Gareth's visuals and his. I think his craft is is unbelievable. Like he's he's an incredibly sturdy director. I, and I agree that he has a probably the best understanding of the. Uh, um, the actual location, photography, and 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 balance of CGI. Because I mean, Godzilla itself looks incredible still, and that was like 2014, I think. And I, I yeah. think he had it locked down. Well, and you, um, and, you, and you have and to think about really the fact that too. the creator only cost—I can't remember exactly what it was—but I think it was like an 80 or 90 million dollar movie. Right. And you're like, and you're like, well, how do does it? it yeah, like how yeah. do we have two hundred and fifty million dollar movies where exactly. they can't convince you that there's like a, a fully CG character, and yet I look at these robots that he did in the creator, and I'm like, oh, I couldn't tell if they weren't shot for real or not half the yeah. time. So you know, <laughs> no, totally, no, I, I I totally agree. That was something I remember thinking while watching that after looking up the budget because I could I was thinking when I was looking at it, I'm like, this has got to be one hundred and fifty mil, something like that. Um, and then I, you know, it's, it's only half of that. And it just, it made me realize that I think the, the, the priorities of these $250 million movies are just not, not correct. They need Money to, they need to baby. start. Yeah. They, they need to start giving the people that are making the film look the way it does more time and the proper time really. Um, so, but anyway, yeah, I, I thought that that was a, a good one too. Um, another one for me is uh, evil dead rise, uh, directed by Lee Cronin. Um, I just thought that this was, um, you know, it's an, it's an evil dead, uh, sequel, you know, uh, kind, kind of, a, you know, it is, it is a, a sequel. It, it is doing like the same premise that the first one does essentially, but, um, it has its own kind of, um, you, you know, it's, it's in its own lo- unique location that I think it utilizes well. It's based in an apartment building instead of a, a cabin. Uh, they're using a family instead of college friends. So there's a little bit more of a, I don't know. It feels almost sadder watching, you know, the 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 kids go through this kind of hell and everything like that. 
Um, but it stays true to its its meanness, its gore that that, that an Evil Dead movie uh, should have. And um, it, there, there's a lot of moments in this that I was really cringing just because of how detailed they go with with the violence and how close up they have you uh, have you see it. And I remember seeing it with my my brother Alec, and he actually I can't remember the the part, um, but he was he was just jumping and kind of squirming the entire time. And it, so it is one of those films that that's kind of the the gut reaction that you get. And I just had a an absolute blast with it. It, it, it. Like I could tell you the premise, but it is essentially what you you think it is. You know, they they recite from the, the book the demon complex. comes. Yeah, that's that is what it is. That's exactly what it is. And it has a couple of those like you know fan service moments where it's like, oh, there's the chainsaw, there's this, there's that. But I think they do it well, and I think they they have their own unique things that I I won't quite spoil, but um, their own little unique demons that aren't quite in the the previous installments. So. Um, um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really fun and uh, I'd highly recommend it if you're into that kind of stuff. But it is, you know, very bloody and gory. So if that isn't your thing, you know, but why would you be listening to this show if you didn't like that? Yeah, no, just a, a very disgusting splatter movie. Sometimes that's what the mainstream needs. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, my next pick um, is, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it here. Bottoms. I wasn't sure, sure if this was yeah. on yours or not. Me I kind of like yep. this one. Me um, too. This was uh, uh, one of the other Canadian, I, I don't actually think it's a Canadian film, but Canadian uh, Jewish filmmaker Emma Seligman, um, who is uh, behind the hit indie film Shiva Baby, starring uh, former mm. Twitter comedian turned actress Rachel Sennett. This was their big <laughs> kind of like follow up uh, film that they co-wrote together. And I think that they were able to get funding for based on the success of Shiva Baby. And uh, I thought it was I thought it was decent. Um, yeah, they're of a similar kind of like young millennial sort of age group as as Jamie and I so I was kind of all for their mission to uh you know kind of like clearly you know revive movie, movies like Clueless or like Bring It On or like Mean Girls yeah. or Jennifer's Body of like sort of like girl power sort of like teen comedies and uh there was, was just kind something of kind of refreshing parody twist a little bit a little bit of that as well yep. yeah and, and I, I just thought that there was something kind of mean and lowbrow about it that i um that that i liked even if its vision of like sort of progressive sort of like queer representation and kind of solidarity is is, is all there um mm-hmm. it's just i i i i just imagined that when they were pitching this to someone that the produce a producer had to have been like can this be like a you know you're making like a like a queer girl power comedy film could it be like a grounded like sun dance coming of age like indie dramedy kind of thing you know yeah, they mixed and, the two a little bit uh well two. well but, but but that's just it is that in, in instead they did get they they kind of did go no 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 we want to make something that's more like the studio comedies that we grew up liking and they do do this kind of like cartoon girls fight club thing that they 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 uh approach this story with instead and my my only major hang-up about it honestly was kind of just kind of the look of the film uh which i i felt a little bad dinging them for because it's it's ambitious but at the same time you know if you're gonna make a movie that abandons like realism of a studio comedy like say something like super bad is maybe something you could also compare it to i you know i they just it doesn't quite have the level of visual uh control to pull off some of the set pieces that they try to to um pull off and there's a there's some awkward camera stuff there's some awkward sort of cutting and sort of improv in it um uh but it but it also does have like this heightened chaos and absurdity and 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 violence to it that i that i did like and um 
I I just felt like they maybe couldn't decide if they wanted to make a manic like parody of the movies they yes. grew up on or genuinely yeah. wanted to make like a nostalgic sentimental um, one. And they kind of just ended up doing alternating between the two in a kind of confusing kind of aimless um, way. Right. Um, it, yeah, you can definitely ask. tell that this was a screenplay draft that like these that they came up with as friends and they were just putting every bit they thought was funny and could just kind of throw it in. And, you know, so even if it doesn't 100 percent achieve like the bring it on or clueless kind of level it, it wants to get to, it's uh, it, it was still pretty charming. And I thought that the um, A.O. Edabiri and Marshawn Lynch were very, very funny in the movie and there was some <laughs> very solid jokes in there. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I think uh, as they go on, um, they'll they'll be able to strike more of a balance between the like exaggerated parody elements and the more grounded improvisation, sentimental comedy kind of thing. Um, but it does feel like it kind of just goes back and forth a lot of the time, rather than being completely cohesive. But I still found it very funny, and I think uh, the writing is genuinely hilarious uh, a lot of the time. So. Um, yeah, it was just a little bit stylistically, I think, that they could improve on. But I think with time, they will. So um, I wanted to shout it out as well. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, let me see here. Uh, oh, I'll uh, give a shout out to uh, Infinity Pool, directed by Brandon Cronenberg. Um, this this one I do think people I know weren't as hot on as they were with uh, a Possessor. And I don't know about Antiviral. I actually haven't seen that one. I know you have, but I'm not sure how people genuine, generally think about that one. Um, this one I was hearing a lot of him say, people saying like he's almost doing his own style. Uh, he's almost parodying his own style already. And I think that, you know, that that can be a little bit of like, have you really had the career to do that yet? You know, you're not sure you're, you're not your dad is a lot of the reviews I was seeing, which I totally yeah. understand in a sense. Um, but I did get a lot out of, uh, uh, Alexander and Mia goth, um, kind of, kind of dueling it out eventually more, more so just Mia goth taking complete advantage of Skarsgård, um, which I was having a blast with as she's just using the most obnoxious version of her voice that she possibly can. Um, oh uh, essentially what happens in this though, is they, they're, they're staying at an isolated, uh, resort, uh, James and, uh, is kind of this, this, this kind of hack of a writer to be, to be all honest uh, with all honesty. And he's married to a rich woman who's kind of paved the way for him a lot of the time. And he meets this, this group of, of people who are, are, um, pretty wealthy themselves and often go to this resort so that he finds out can kind of just cause terror and do whatever the hell they want to the people there and, um, and the wildlife and whatever else. Um, and all they have to do is either pay a fine or at a certain point, you find out that they are essentially creating clones for themselves to be killed so that that's the payment so that they can continue to just cause just complete chaos. Brandon um, Cronenberg's the prestige, if anyone. Yes, you know. yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, I, it, it really worked for me. Um, I, it, I think that um, I do understand the, the critiques, but I just thought Maya Goth being as absolutely eccentric and insane as she is in in this film was fantastic James. and watching her break down Skarsgård more and more and more um is is it was a lot of fun for me I really enjoyed it and I did you know the 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 actual visual um kind of metaphor of 
watching themselves be killed and laughing at it and and kind of causing that to be their entertainment i i thought was really i do like that gag of the camera turning around and they're all like yay as they're watching their clones get executed or whatever yeah 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 it's just and i i was really enjoying all the debauchery so um yeah i wanted to give it a shout out i thought it was a lot of a lot of fun oddly enough (laughs) hell yeah uh, my next one is, I don't know if you had the chance to check this one, uh, out or not. It was a film hmm. called Naga, um, no. which was a, a, Saudi Arabian thriller that played TIFF this year. And I guess I think got bought by Netflix and did get put out in time this year. So people did, oh, cool. uh, so people can go, I think, and just watch it. I'm, I'm hoping it's on Netflix everywhere. I, I, I don't know. There was, there was some issue, I think with, um, the 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 release of it the distribution of it that that kind of went went uh, a little strange with it i think like netflix didn't even want to play it at the film festival or something like that i can't remember exactly um but it was a cool little sort of like anxiety inducing like run all night thriller out of saudi arabia directed by uh, a director named michelle al jazeer um that kind of takes the relationship between a rebellious teen daughter and strict conservative father and mines it for like survivalist horror resourcefulness as this young girl Sarah needs to almost kind of find like a safety brother style uh, way home, uh, preferably mm-hmm. before curfew after sneaking out to go to a desert party that ends up kind of like going wrong. And she's like, Oh my God, how do I get home? And so it's uh, for, for me, uh, I, I wasn't totally clear on some of the satirical points that it was making about sort of like navigating a world controlled by these kind of impulsive domineering um, men. There's this whole subplot mm-hmm. about how like all the dads aren't paying attention because they're all watching soccer, which might okay. just be like a, a, a very funny joke for the movie. There was some stuff to do with like Saudi Arabian social media and like radio personalities and stuff that I just, you know, stuff oh, I'm not super familiar with, but I it was it was kind of cool to 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 see those points being made those comedic points being made um and and to see them done also in like what was clearly meant to be focused on the sort of like energy of how scary it must be to you know be disobedient in the moment like that and it 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 shot in this very kind of like motion sick kind of hysterical way that some for some people might be a little too shaky cam but um Mm. it it, i thought that it was pretty you know delirious uh in terms of like deliberately and also that it had like this rapid strobe editing at times too that was a little hard to you know it was a little hard hard on the eyes but in a in a way that you know it was really trying to push at this situation as uh as tense tensely as it could and it doesn't maybe completely sustain itself for the whole runtime but it it's it's pretty playful and and it does keep coming up with funny ways to you know tangible roadblocks for her to have to deal with uh logistically mm-hmm. uh it's, it's it starts with like simple issues like finding a phone charger um, and then it eventually gets to like finding a car and getting away. And there's, it, it all builds to one very memorable set piece that I won't completely spoil involving a rabid camel that kind of like attacks okay. her. And, uh, the sequence is almost shot like a Velas- velociraptor sequence in like a Jurassic park movie or something. Oh. So anyway, c- cool little Saudi Arabian thriller, uh, for anyone who, uh, wants to check it out. That's very cool. Um, my next one is a, uh, a Japanese action film called uh, Shin Kamen Rider. It's also known as Shin Masked Rider, New Kamen Rider, New Masked Rider, and the True Kamen Rider. <laughs> <laughs> Love those AKAs. 
Um, so this one is about um, it's it's kind of like this was the it, new one the the Hideaki Anno one right the guy right, who yes, directed Shin Godzilla him. yes yeah. yes it's the guy and uh, he also did like uh, uh, some of the Neon Genesis finales that I've heard are fantastic right. I I haven't uh, been able to watch those yet but I'm hoping to eventually um, but yeah he's this is kind of it's interesting he's so it's about uh, this this man that's transformed into this like grasshopper hybrid cyborg and and you go along the way you discover that a bunch of these hybrid cyborgs have been made like there's a chameleon there's a uh, I'm trying to remember them all. A butterfly, eventually. There's a, there's a couple of them, and they and he's fighting against a um, evil organization called Shocker, um, and you know it's 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 kind of just him, you know, protecting uh, humanity and, and all of that. But what I love about it is it, it's got this very Power Rangers esque quality to it, where it has like them going in those stances before they fight, and and they each have like their own individual colors and masks. Um, and the, I guess though the difference in it is that when they're doing the, the punching and kicking and you see the impacts, they'll just have just insane amounts of blood just splatter everywhere. Uh, and so it, it almost feels oh, like, shit, a, okay. like an R rated power Rangers film. I was like and, Shin, Shin and, Ultraman, but people explode into meat bags. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was having a, a really good time with it. I will say that some of it looks, um, f- fairly cheap, but just with all of the exaggerated movements and actions that they're doing, you, you, you mostly forgive it. Um, there, there are a couple set pieces that I think they probably could have spruced up a little bit here and there, but I think overall the, the feeling of it and, and the, the fighting and just kind of the, the general, uh, look and aesthetic of the costumes and everything like that. And the motorcycles are, are really cool. So I, I had a great time with it. I would recommend it. Oh yeah. Uh, my next pick is actually another, uh, a double that kind of fits together, uh, under the, uh, uniforming theme of, uh, Sleazoid's legends or like master filmmakers making mm-hmm. late style sort of three-star classics. There were, there were two of these and I'm not sure which ones Jamie saw or not, but the first one for me is the Kane mutiny court martial, uh, which was the okay, last film from hurricane Billy, William Friedkin director of the exorcist uh, sorcerer to live and die in LA. Uh, it was the mm-hmm. last film that he made before passing away this year. And um, though maybe less famous for it, Friedkin spent just as much of his career uh, making more contained minimalist style, sort of like tension pressure stuff of the stage. Like people, uh, what's that movie with M- Matthew McConaughey in it? Killer Joe is a, yeah. is a stage, a stage adaptation as well. So it, he, he frequently spent a good part of portion of his late career. Um, and even doing some courtroom stuff as well earlier in his career. Um, so kind of ending his career here on like a classical courtroom drama play adaptation, one that was previously adapted in the fifties and then also once in the eighties, uh, Robert Altman, I think did that one. Um, this is a, a play all about sort of like the abuse of institutional power and kind of flawed psychology and, you know, a lot of feelings of isolation and kind of paranoia kind of being put into this sort of claustrophobic sort of pressure cooker. Um, and uh, it has a little bit of like a too clean 
digital TV movie sheen to it because it's like a Showtime movie or something like that. So I didn't wasn't completely in love with the way that it looked. But Friedkin does handle himself well in terms of like where to put the camera and where to cut. And like the the austere geography of the courtroom itself is very sharply pointed. There's a lot of great sort of rhythm in the cutting and the performances um, as as we get sort of two competing cases or stories that are being laid out by a young disgruntled executive officer um, and his cruel, perhaps senile commanding officer um, whom he relieves from duty during a dangerous storm is the, 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 the premise of the film. And either way, it makes great use of how the play sort of like subtly and thrillingly turns the logistics of what is functionally. It's a mutiny court martial um, against this this captain who the the underlings claim went insane. Uh, and it turns into something resembling more of kind of like a public flaying of said commander uh, played by Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, who is who's mm. quite good and um, doing so in a way that's kind of like designed to be cathartic for the stressed crew who is trying to justify and, you know, reveal the precise details of how tyrannical and how mad the guy was, essentially. But the movie still, in Friedkin fashion, kind of has a sense of pity and sadness for the commander as well, um, mm. which kind of translates into a little bit of a rhetorically awkward but patriotic <laughs> epilogue that is, you know, is okay. all about, you know, um, it, it, it's a thing that's just built into the play. Um, yeah. and it's something that made a lot more sense, I think directly after world war two, uh, than it does sure. today. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's still well-performed and, uh, Jason Clark is playing the prosecutor in the case, uh, or, or sorry, not, I guess of the court martial, I guess he is the pro I'm trying to remember actually now how, how they mm -hmm. de detail it. Cause it's almost like they're running two cases side by side. Um, yeah. but anyway, for anyone who has liked him in Oppenheimer, uh, as, as far as like a guy being able to like sharp do, you know, as a lawyer, just like really sharply probing, um, the person he's up against Clark does a, a really good job in the film. And also, uh, it's uh, one of the last films for uh, Lance Reddick as well, who also passed away this year, uh, who plays oh, one yeah. of the Naval, uh, judges. And, and I gotta say he nails every dramatic, uh, moment he gets. Like, if you like the courtroom drama, it's Lance Reddick is the guy who gets to keep being like overruled, but you're on oh, thin yeah. ice, you know, like <laughs> he yeah. gets to do that for like half the movie. So, uh, Let's if go. you haven't seen, if you haven't seen that one, the last film from William Friedkin, it's definitely worth checking out. And the other one was Silent Night. Yes. Um, I was about directed, to say this one, actually. Exactly, because they're both in the same boat. Uh, directed yeah. by legendary Hong Kong gunfu action melodramatist, Mr. John Woo. Um, which I will say I didn't love. Um, I think sure. it's kind of a problem that John Woo even has to work in such like a direct to video minded space to get a budget like this. Um, sure. and, and, and as far as like doing macho melodrama and doing his action destruction ballets, I was a little disappointed at how kind of like CG heavy the American industry is, um, which I don't yeah. think was something that, I mean, I think he even said in one of his interviews that he was like, you know, we were able to do what we did in Hong Kong because there was probably some stuff that should have been illegal. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, so at, at a certain point you understand, but, but, you, but, <laughs> but you, you, you can't help but be, see like a CG car crash or fire in one of his movies. And you're like, man, I remember when he would just like throw a stunt man through a fireball or, you know, yeah. and, and so, so that, that's a tad bit disappointing. And 
it also is weird seeing him have to resort to such like questionable material. Um, that, yeah, it's like, a pretty wouldn't... standard. Like, I mean, you've if you've seen um, what's that Kevin Bacon movie that that Juan did um, where he's is avenging it, his it, son. It, it's the same death, thing, basically. Death sentence or silence sentence. or something. Yeah, death sentence. This, this, that this feels like death sentence, but the Christmas version, essentially. Yeah, which was also, I think, a remake of the book that was turned into Death Wish. So it's basically okay. a Death Wish movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. It, it is very much just like you know, the 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 a gang kills a member of your family, and now you're out to avenge that member of your family. The thing that I do love about the way that Wu takes it is that he can't help but be like incredibly sentimental about it, and I, I think that that might bother me in a, with a different director, but he's, he just has this, this, this way about him when he's, when he's doing those moments with the, with the camera, like when, uh, Kinnaman's at the, the grave site and he's starting to build the train tracks around his son's gravestone and stuff like that. It right. just, it's kind of just built into like, you're going to feel things cause it's almost forcing it upon you. But the way that Wu does it, I really do love yeah. Yeah. And it's all about Joel Kinnaman, who as a father whose kid gets caught in like a sort of gang uh, shootout, very sort of racially depicted gang, we'll say, um, mm-hmm. and who gets shot in the throat, meaning that he can't speak. And so thus he's kind of making a quote unquote silent movie, though why no one else speaks uh, didn't really make much sense to me. But I was, you know, it, 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 it still means Wu just gets to kind of go crazy with like the pure cinema, uh, just like. You know, no, there's no dialogue. It's a no dialogue action movie. So it's just pure camera trickery, pure movement. And uh, so so that aspect of it is cool, even though, once again, seeing John Woo having to work within the trendy commercial confines of like his American copycats was sort of interesting, like seeing the fact that this Mm -hmm. was clearly produced by like the John Wick producers and like stylized and kind of marketed to be more like those movies than like his movies that inspired the John Wick movies in the first place. So there's a there's a bizarre kind of tension there, but it but but it's Wu, man, and Wu still has juice. So even though, you know, it's a blatantly ugly kind of retrograde uh, narrative, it's so slickly, stylishly, you know, committed to the gimmickry. And it is really helped along by the fact that Kinnaman is really physically committed to the role. And yes, at a certain very- point, Wu is getting so crazy with the amount of visually inventive, like staging and fluidity of how you tell a story with just the camera that he occasionally generates just like it, it feels like the experimental version of a Death Wish movie. Yes. Um, as as you, you get like a brutal, single minded bloodlust of a revenge character like this. But the style is just so you know, it, there is something expressive about it. Like there's one particular scene in it where Kinnaman is buying guns at like a steel shop and the whole scene is shot in a way so that you see like a reflection of welding sparks over every shot. And yeah. it's just kind of beautiful. And, and, and then, and then you remember that he, what, why he's buying guns and you're like, Oh, I guess we're back to the death wish movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so either no, way, I very totally... weird contradictory movie. And I think anyone with taste will probably be like, that's just kind of a really ugly movie. That's just, made me not feel good about a guy just murdering a bunch of people but it's uh it it is woo and it is unmistakably uh woo even if it is more uh digital and john wicky than you might expect yeah yeah it's more in line of how i liked it when he was working with um with uh dolph on that uh that like vegas card trick right what was it called jack of i can't remember was it was it just called blackjack 
Blackjack. I think that is what it's called. Is that yeah. what it's called? Yeah. I think something movie. like that. But yeah, yeah. It, it kind of reminds me. God, imagine if we had multiple seasons of that. That was supposed to be a TV show. Oh, God. That'd be great. Oh, my Lord. We'd just cover the whole thing. But yeah, yeah so I, I also had this on my, my honorary mentions just because I, I love John Woo. So, and it was a simple enough action premise. I'm like, okay, th- this is very straightforward, but I'm okay with it. Um, my next one was, oh, uh, the Chicken Run sequel, uh, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, oh, uh, directed dang. by Sam Fell. This was, you know, it's not, it's, I really do like the, the original Chicken Run. Um, I think the, it's Me very, too. very funny. I love kind of the crude animation of it all. Um, and this, this does feel like a, you know, it's a lesser sequel for sure. Um, it does, it, it doesn't have a, that kind of, it has a little bit of that sheen of the modern age, which I think is something that I really uh, don't want. I really like kind of how kind of dirty the the original looks in, in a sense of just the, the way that they use the claymation. Um, and but I, what I do like about this is to kind of modernize it in a in a better way um, is that they have it in a like a modern farm uh, factory instead of just a, a typical farmhouse. And so they 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 kind of use the technology against them when they're when they're um, on the run and trying to have everybody escape. So there's just different ways uh, that they went about doing the actual action sequences, uh, and I and I really did like that. And some of the jokes are are really funny. Um, I do think it's 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 a pretty witty film. So I'd uh, I'd recommend it. It's 90 minutes, real easy. So if you if you liked the original Trick and Run, you'll probably get a kick out of this. Yeah. Getting, getting, while we're in the sort of like almost like children's movie mindset, one mm-hmm. that I kind of wanted to throw in that I did not expect to be throwing on this list was uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Uh, totally. Honor Among Thieves, directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. Uh, one of the more surprising studio movies this year because I just thought the trailers kind of looked like January dumping ground trash. Um, <laughs> but it was also, you know, I, I did know that it was by the directors behind the pretty clever and visually dynamic studio comedy from 2018 game night that people might mm-hmm. remember so i, I yep. definitely you know had had kind of some idea that this might be a little bit better than it looked and uh either way it did not need to be two hours and 15 minutes which is like my main issue with it um yeah, but it was a surprisingly nice throwback to like 90s and 2000s block blockbuster adaptations um where uh it didn't seem like it was as interested in like franchise as it was in just like pure world design and yes. pure just ensemble movie breathlessness. Like the way that it, it's just, it is just trying to be silly and entertaining and, and also like it is, you know, kind of, you know, it, it is well-made. Um, yeah, it the is. best parts of it kind of play like a slapstick heist movie version of like Lord of the Rings or something like it has a, <laughs> totally. it has a diversity of like dorky fantasy missions that they go on. The designs and locations are nice. The types of sort of action set pieces throughout that it never really seems to, to run out of one of my favorite stretches in it is the, uh, graveyard zombie bit where they keep like waking up the corpses from like an <laughs> old battle to ask three questions and they keep fucking up the number of questions. Um, Um, And it eventually leads them to that dungeon. They have to escape with the giant chunky, like fat dragon in it. That's basically just like if a fat (laughs) cat was a dragon and starts like destroying everything. It's just, it was, there was so much like visually dynamic choreography and, and camera work and also practical effects that I did not expect, including like giant, 
giant sets, like costumes, animatronic creatures, like eff- effectively hidden amongst all the digital stitching. Like the guys, the full like bird people and the fish people. Oh, yeah. And one of my favorite it, it, shots is when uh, the, it's in the kind of the beginning where they're just they they crash uh, out of a window to escape, and it's it, they're he's holding on to one of those birds, but it's actually a guy <laughs> in a costume or it's an animatronic. Yes. And just yeah. Chris Pine falling with an actual animatronic just makes it that much funnier that it adds a, a layer of real texture to it. I, I think they did a great job with, with all of that design. Yeah. So, so it's a little bit light fluffy, uh, in, in, in terms of, of, of genre movie inclusions, but it was charming. Um, and definitely a prime example this year of how studio branded like IP can actually be fun and worthwhile when it's made by people who actually kind of care about, making yeah. the set pieces and crafting them and, you know, ha- and actually having a sense of uh, wit to them as well. And yeah, the, the sequence of the shapeshifter escaping the castle and like that digital wonder was one of the cooler oh, sequences yeah. I saw in a studio movie this year. So yeah, totally. And, and I think uh, I'm not, I haven't played the games, but a lot of the people that I talked to that had think that they channeled the kind of the feeling that you get amongst friends playing that game. Cause it does get very silly and ridiculous. It isn't like Lord of the Rings, you know? So yes, exactly. I, I think they captured that, that very well. Um, my next one is a, another, it's a comedy as well. Um, I hadn't heard of these guys beforehand, but they seem to be kind of like a new lonely Island that's working on SNL right now, uh, called, uh, please don't destroy. And the film itself is called the treasure of foggy mountain. Um, it's almost like a, uh, it's directed by Paul uh, Briganti, um, but it's almost like a, without a paddle. Um, but if you've ever seen that, that it's like a, I think a mid two thousands comedy with, um, Seth Green and, and a, a couple other guys. Um, and I don't, I'm not a particularly huge fan of that, but it's a very similar premise where it's just three friends go out to find a hidden treasure to kind of mask whatever else is going on in their life. But just stylistically, um, it's it's very absurd and kind of ridiculous, and and it, it feels very much like that that tone that the that the Lonely Island has has struck um, uh, if, if, like a decade prior. Um, they they do have I think their own unique voice, but there are still a few things in there that are very conventional and what you would expect from this type of comedy. Sometimes they play with that, um, and sometimes they they don't. So I still think that they. They have potential to make something that's like truly great because I I was consistently laughing at this for the for the 90 minute runtime. Me and my brothers were thoroughly enjoying this. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to give it a shout out because it was a, a genuinely funny, just straight up comedy. It didn't have any like super genre bend in a sense. You could call it an adventure film for sure, because they're you know, they're going out to discover uh, treasure. But just in the sense of tone, it felt like a. Kind of like you know, like never stop, uh, never stop, never stopping. Where it feels oh, um, pop star, yeah, like, or Great pop movie. star, yeah, yeah. It feels like it's it's a straight up comedy, and it's really just built to make you laugh. And I I do kind of miss that, and I think they did a great job. So yeah, uh, my next one is a little film called. Uh, one of the last ones that I caught up with just because I, I was kind of, it, it premiered at Sundance earlier in the year and I kind of waited all year for it to come out because I it, it had Stephen Dorff in it. And I kind of mm. kind of like Stephen Dorff. I know that, you know, he hasn't had like maybe the career that you would expect to have like super fans of or anything. And I might not describe myself that way, but I like him in Blade. Um, yeah, I do he's like in one him. of my favorite. 
uh, Sofia Coppola film somewhere where he's like the mm. really sad dad to uh, Elle Fanning's character in that. I think he's amazing. Um, I even w- watched his season of True Detective because I like him. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. so I was waiting for like this like little like black and white lo-fi 16 millimeter like sci-fi dystopia mad scientist like monster b horror movie that he was supposedly in at a sundance and it it literally didn't uh, become available for anyone to watch until this month um and uh i thought i thought it was pretty cool it's directed by this guy named eddie uh, alcazar who i guess is a sort of vfx and animation guy who did some video game work at like ea or something like that but who was discovered by steven soderbergh who now produces his movies and i don't know if this is his first feature movie um or or not um but it's very clearly early on in in his career and it's it's centered around this sort of like a dystopia about like an immortality drug that has like these nightmarish side effects and Steven Dorff um, is, you know, kind of playing the son of the guy who invented it, who is kind of tweaking it uh, to, to make it work. And uh, uh, Scott Bakula is uh, played, plays his, uh, his dad who like invented it. Um, and arguably, I think it maybe leaned a little too hard into being like a pre-made cult film where you could tell that like they kind of knew the audience that they wanted to have. And it, it feels like it was designed in a lab to be like, this is the most underrated, underseen, like cool, black and white Mm. you know sci-fi horror freak out that's ever been made and and um but uh just in terms of its style pastiching and the sort of mid it does have some midnight movie levels of sex and violence at times as well um but but i did think that it had a very cool sort of like desert concrete retro future aesthetic to it and uh i did think that it was willing to make some admirably kind of strange detours into its various sort of conspiracies and kind of fetishes of of its world including doing like this like vaguely sort of like cannibal porn sequence at one point and there's another part where there's like an onslaught of tv commercials that almost feel like out of like total recall or something like that or 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 like robocop i guess um Mm -hmm. and uh yeah i kind of have to hand it to a movie that tries as hard as this one does to look like an analog or grainy um you know sort of sci-fi horror movie that could sit next to like a tetsuo the iron man or like an eraser head or you know uh, lynch's uh sound man dean hurley even like co-composed the score which parts of it Mm. actually do sound a little bit like he was kind of stealing a bit from the the uh the uh, alternate black and white dimension in the return. Uh, some okay. of the music kind of has that sort of like spacey um, sort of e- experimental quality to it. And uh, either way, this one climaxes on a stop motion anime fight with like a deformed bodybuilder, like fetus <laughs> Frankenstein monster. Um, That's awesome. That almost, that almost felt like it should have been in like mad God or something like that. So if mm. anyone is interested in that, uh, it's a movie called divinity. I'd, I'd recommend checking it out. Yeah. I'm definitely doing that. Uh, my next one is um, "Bo is Afraid," directed by Ari Aster. Oh, yeah. um, this is this I, is this is this is also on mine as an anxious Charlie Kaufman comic horror double feature with a dream <laughs> scenario. I don't know if that oh, did, did yeah. that end up is that going to be sc- coming up later for yeah. For you? Dream scenario is coming up for me. Um, okay, eventually. gotcha. And um, I'll 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 save that one for the list then. <laughs> okay. 
But yeah, so Boa's Afraid is um, uh, directed by Ari Aster. I have loved Ari Aster's previous two films, Hereditary and Midsummer. I haven't actually seen any of his shorts, but I heard those are more questionable. <laughs> but uh, one day I'll get around to them. Um, with this one, though, it's essentially about a very paranoid man that just goes on this this odyssey, I guess, uh, to get to his mom. And the entire time it feels like you're just in this 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 alternate reality where every single paranoia that you've ever had is just in front of you and coming true at all times. Um, and it's about three hours of that until you, you know, he eventually gets to his destination. I won't spoil really what happens, but a lot of it feels like it's this it's this thing that you 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 go on this odyssey and you realize that the entire thing, in a sense, has been orchestrated by your worst fear. Uh, they, every single fear you've had is just coming true. Um, and to watch that for three hours is, I will say this, exhausting, to be honest. Um, yeah. But I respect the fucking hell out of what Ari's doing. And I do think that a lot of this is genuinely funny. Um, the only thing that holds me back from really loving it is I, th- I, I straight up just feel the length. I think it's too long. Um, uh, I, I understand at the same time by like when you get to the end and he's been through this, I think you're almost supposed to feel as tired as his character. <laughs> so I think it works in that in that sense, but just on a, in a way of real internal <laughs> like enjoyment and entertainment, I, I do get a little bit exhausted. Um, so yeah, yeah. so that's the only thing that kind of makes it different from Midsummer or Hereditary that I love just through and through. Um, so, but yeah, like I said, I respect it. So it's, yeah, Bo was also on, Bo was also on mine and I totally agree that it's a movie that like everyone who hated it, like I completely understand. Like it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it kind of quirks that reaction almost (laughs) deliberately. Um, especially too, for anyone familiar with, as Jamie was mentioning, Astor's like corny sort of comic horror satire short film era when he was like an edgy grad student. Uh, this is very much him kind of, you know, returning to a script he wrote more in that era, um, and has a lot of crazy shit in it that feels like he would have turned into a short film at one point about like the suicidal, like teen TikTok girl or like the (laughs) genital emasculation, anxiety sort of sight gag, like penis monster shit or the whole like penis. PTSD veteran slapstick stuff in it and and of course the insanely mattressidal like Jewish overbearing Jewish mother stuff where like Bo is yeah, like a with virgin like a, with big balls and like <laughs> and a 30 minute finale where the mother is just berating him and I'm like you just have to just take it it's yeah. uh it, yeah. it's it's something else. It really is. But it, but it else. was truly true. Like a singular gargantuan neurotic, like existing is existence is drowning in the womb, like <laughs> spectacle that I just couldn't believe that even with the success of hereditary and midsummer, like why a 24 gave him this much money to realize this screenplay is yeah. uh, kind of flabbergasting. And I, I, I was at a certain point just impressed that, you know, there's a little bit of Roy Anderson in this. There's a little bit of like Philip Roth in this with the whole mm-hmm. just like Oedipal stream of com- consciousness, like persecution and sort of like guilt complex stuff where he's just, it's so punishing and so insecure and such an unpleasant movie. And the fact yeah. that I saw this on an IMAX screen kind of fucking blew my mind. <laughs> um, like the same screen I saw Dune mm. on and Avatar 2. I watched this movie on so like my experience with it was chug paint (laughs) yeah and it was yeah so it was you know it was pretty pretty uh overwhelming and and farcical (laughs) and uh 
you know, yeah. just filled with all the fantasizing about suffering that 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 his movies are. But yeah, the seeing him get to do stuff like the full blown like Jacques Tati set piece of like what if an anxious Charlie Kaufman character lived on the same city block as like Charles Bronson in Death Wish Three, which is like cartoon levels of crime and city decay that haunt him <laughs> right. nonstop. The one joke that has stuck with me about this movie through the whole year is the one where he takes the medication without water and he realizes <laughs> that his building's water has been shut off and he's so scared to cross the street to the convenience store for a bottle of water because of all of the just like he thinks he's going to get the stabbed crime. by a naked homeless <laughs> yeah. man like the second he steps he outside <laughs> and and the and the world that's been designed shows you that he will and yeah. but but and so he googles what will happen if he doesn't take water with this medication and there's he's just greeted with an entire Google page of obituaries from people who have died. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the kind of mean sense of humor it's operating on. And uh, it gets a little bit more uneven as it gets into its various, like the modern medicated American suburb prison stuff and the sort of fairy tale Mm -hmm. forest section and eventually a full on like Truman show defending your life kind of finale to it. But uh, I don't know the sheer level of imaginatively ugly and hateful torment on display for me. Uh, and, <laughs> it's impressive. And, 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 and seeing Aster like clearly put such so many personal anxieties onto such like yes. an epic canvas was it's it's it feels y- very y- honest. you got to be impressed a little bit by it. I feel yeah, like <laughs> it feels very honest. And I do still I, I, I know it pisses a lot of people off, but I do like imagining Ari Aster behind the camera throughout all these films that he's made just smiling ear to ear. <laughs> You know, just going, I'm going to make people sit through this. There is something about that that I like, but I also understand that it really pokes people the, lo- the wrong way. So um, anyway, yeah, fun, fun movie in a sense. Uh, also just relentless and exhausting. So shout out. Yeah, it was. I'll, I'll be honest. It was pr- it was closer to my list than I kind of expected it to be. I I, I yeah. do wonder if on rewatch I'm going to yeah. just keep getting more on it or more out of it or something like that. I I, mm-hmm. I have thought about that movie a lot for like what is you know just a very solid high three for me. Yeah, um, me too. But uh, getting close to the end here, um, mm-hmm. I have um, what do we got? I'll 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 do a double round here. I'll do one of. Okay. Um, I'm going to do a double next too. Yeah, I, I have The Royal Hotel, directed by Kitty Green, which is another Australian film, uh, and, and was the, the follow-up to her very uh, anxiety-inducing, monotonous uh, sort of thriller called The Assistant, which is why I checked it out this year. Oh, I really yeah. liked The Assistant and as, as a film about just, like, a woman working in a film office where, you know, very clearly she's working for a predator and just dealing with, like, the scary hum and the sort of powerlessness of the fact that she's kind of this precarious sort of like laborer, but also she there's so much like gendered abuse that's just kind of accepted all around her. It's a really kind of creepy little film, and there's a great scene in it with the HR guy played by Matthew McFadden from Succession, which is just the slimiest, most disturbing <laughs> uh, depiction I've seen of what cl- clearly does happen of where they go. He kind of goes fishing for what she knows about mm. the boss. And then when he finds out that she doesn't actually know enough, that's like legally useful. He just starts like berating her and being like, you're a fucking idiot or, you know, <laughs> oh, shit. Um, but uh, I, so anyway, that was why I liked that movie so much that I was kind of excited to see her reteam with, um, 
uh, Julia Garner, uh, who's the same actress on, on, on this film. And this one was to do with sort of work travel programs and like service work, um, which obviously both have their fair share of sort of predatory behavior in, in them as well. And mm-hmm. so, you know, as expected, a lot of that is fairly well observed um, in uh, this film where she is basically traveling um, with her friend who is played by Jessica Henwick from the most recent Matrix film uh, as a pair of backpackers who mm-hmm. are just going on like kind of like a, a working holiday kind of deal. And they're they're partying in like Sydney, but they end up running out of money and they do sort of like a, a work and board kind of program where they end up working at like a really, really shitty, like just like rundown Australian outback pub kind of deal mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 in like a mining town. And they sl- you just kind of slowly watch. Uh, in this more grimy setting, these girls who very clearly thought they were going to just be sort of like clubbing in Sydney, um, the financial desperation kind of takes precedent over the fact that, you know, they have sort of comfort limits and they need to kind of be willing to entertain the kind of male attention of a more sort of like rural bar like this, which is like a lot of leering, a lot Mm. of sexist jokes being made to them, a lot of just unpleasant drunken behavior, uh, some of which is even by the bar's owner uh, in a performance by Hugo Weaving, who I was kind of surprised to see, but a great alcoholic dirtbag performance. He's just screaming cunt for half the movie. It's wonderful (laughs) Um, acting. Yeah. And, and uh, my, my only sort of uh, reservation about the film was that um, she does try to do a little, she tries to go and, and the style tries to go in a horror movie direction where it Mm. it does escalate into more sort of like physically threatening horror movie degrees. It feels like kind of like something like the Ozploitation movie Wake and Fright feels a little bit of like the reference point that she might have been using of these girls who get trapped in a purgatory and it becomes a little bit scarier as it goes on a little bit more surreal. But uh, because she's so just committed to being realistic about all of this, um, and it, it, it doesn't quite like she wants this to be very much about real world gender politics and like logistical situations that women would find themselves in. And as a result, it doesn't just get as unhinged as I kind of hoped it would. It doesn't get as like evil and purgatorial as something like Wake and Fright does. Um, mm-hmm. But I but I did think that it was it was quite well made and the performances were quite good. And just all visually, the use of like the beer soaked, like vomit encrusted venue and these girls just being really scared for their safety and being treated like as they say in the film fresh meat in these kind of mm-hmm. like revenge horror style kind of you know it's it's it was a it was a neat little movie i wanted to give a shout out cool yeah i'm gonna have to check that out um i'm gonna do a a double here uh so there's a teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem directed by Damn, jeff Rowe. lots of animation on jamie's list this year yeah yeah i, I tried to i tried to uh, watch a, a few of them because they were being very highly rated and I just uh, I'm always curious when that's happening exactly why um, this this one I do think deserves its 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 praise I still you know it was like a strong three for me but I I really liked um, it, the way that the the four stars that are playing the the mutant ninja turtles um, the way that they recorded them it almost seems like they're in the same room and they have a lot of very natural 
kind of just bro improvisation that feels like it's off the cuff. And I don't know whether it is or not. That might have just been a style they chose, but it, it feels very natural. And you and you do kind of uh, understand their connection as friends. And 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 I I liked their dynamic there. And also you get Jackie Chan as Splinter, which is just awesome. Love Jackie Chan. Uh, and and he's he's quite good in it. Uh, I do like his um, his vocal performance. I think it's very good. But the animation's very cool too because it's kind of um, it's comic book esque just in the sense of how the 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 time frame goes, like how they uh, how it looks within the action. It almost feels a little bit more. Um, stuttery the way that some of the action goes. Uh, it, it's it's kind of similar, I guess, to the the other movie I wanted to pair it with, which is um, uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, um, mm. where it has that comic book esque quality to it, where it's not the it's not like the smoothest um, animation, but on purposely, it feels almost static at times. And I really I do really like that that animation style. Um, with with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it's very typical. It's like mutants are unleashed, um, and they're and they're trying to save the the city from it. And at the same time, they're trying to get um, uh, accepted by the general uh, populace. Uh, whereas Spider Man Across the, the Spider Verse, to be honest, I didn't get a chance to rewatch this. But the thing that I do remember is thinking it was one of the most beautifully animated films that I have honestly seen. I think this thing is spectacular uh, in that sense. But I do remember feeling it's incredibly convoluted in its story, and I, I found myself very detached from it. Uh, and so I, I'm hoping to get another watch in eventually to see if that, that changes. But um, I thought that both of the films were very fun animated films. So yeah, I'd check them out for sure. If you haven't, I mean, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse was fucking massive. I'm sure you've checked that one out, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, was good, too. Hell yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a double um, as as well here uh, of just two. I don't know if I have any reason for these to go together other than I like them both, but I have uh, Suitable Flesh directed by oh, Joe Lynch. Yeah. Uh, which was, was just has to be on here as just a huge fan of Stuart Gordon uh, mm-hmm. because many of his close collaborators um, essentially um, are in, in this case just like finishing and getting over the finish line. I guess what it was supposedly the final project he wanted to direct um, in this uh, in, in this script. And that that includes uh, these uh, one of the stars, Barbara Crampton. Um, who also co-produced the film, uh, producer Brian Yesna and screenwriter Dennis Paoli, who in uh, all in some capacity were involved in many of his classic um, films, including Reanimator, From Beyond, Castle Freak, all stuff that we've covered on the show. Um, and it's not as good as his Lovecraft movies, obviously, um, but it is a playful, nasty little sort of like body swapping uh a uh, horror movie. Um, part of me watching it did kind of go, man, I, I, I wish I could have seen what Stuart Gordon would have chosen to do behind the camera. Yeah, totally. But obviously we don't live in that world where that <laughs> happened. And as far as like someone taking it over, Joe Lynch kind of steps in and uh, he does it. He does a decent job. I thought he manages to kind of overcome some of the generic underlit sort of like shallow focus indie style sheen misgivings. Yeah. I was a little bit concerned about when I first queued it up on shutter. I was like, Oh, I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I had the same uh, reaction I, for the first like 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was eventually won over by, you know, some of the turns the script makes that force yeah. him to kind of energetically pump this with a little mm-hmm. bit more style, including some like more like erotic thriller, melodrama camera tricks, like lots of spinning cameras, lots of split screens, mm-hmm. stuff that almost plays like board 
borderline like De Palma parody or, or something. And um, really like pulpy <laughs> dialogue too. It, it feels yes. like. like you're getting the, the, I think it's like an inner monologue or a journal entry of some kind with Heather Graham a lot of the time. And she's fully committed. She is so fun in this movie. It's kind of yeah, wild. as the psychiatrist who gets sexually possessed by her demon patient. Uh, yeah, she goes for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she really does. And that was the thing about it. I was like the first little bit of it. I was finding it hard to latch onto, just given like what it, exactly it was doing. I couldn't tell what was purposeful and what wasn't. And then as the script went on, I'm like, oh, okay, there's th- this is kind of supposed to be a little bit silly in a way. Um, you're supposed to have more fun with this than just taking it completely uh, seriously. Because um, when it starts to get into like the demon, you know, coming into Heather Graham and she starts to express like, what is this feeling I've never felt before and all that, like it, it gets really fun. Uh, so. Yeah, it, it was. It, it's almost like if anyone uh, listened to us talk about the hidden, when the, sure. the 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 little alien demon would take over a body, and it, it like every single actor would then have to pretend to be like this little like little alien monster that was just yeah. like having fun with the bodies that it was possessing. Uh, mm-hmm. This kind of does a similar thing to that, and uh, Heather Graham is definitely one of the strongest uh, at it in 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 the film. And there's some yeah. there is some nasty little. Uh, there's like a full on decapitation in the film and there is a uh, also a sequence where she's trying to run the demon over uh, in, in her car. And it's shot from like this one where you can just see her like her backup camera just like mm-hmm. hitting the guy over and over again. I thought that was pretty funny. So if anyone didn't check that out, that was pretty cool. And one of the carryovers from. Uh, last year, one of the last ones for me, uh, Sanctuary, directed by Zachary oh, yeah. uh, Wygon, uh, which was this um, claustrophobic chamber thriller that kind of centers itself around a perverse and crumbling hermetic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in 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 this case, uh, between the sort of like boyish heir to a hotel chain empire named Hal, played by Christopher Abbott, and his hypnotic like four higher dominatrix Rebecca, played by Margaret Qualley, uh, who together play these kind of like scripted psychosexual master and slave mind games with hopes of achieving a kind of emotional car- catharsis for him that will make him a more confident and assertive business partner or operator like his father was, and. Um, he uh, the, the film kind of the center of the drama of it is that he tries to cut things off with her, claiming that he's, you know, he's ready to step into his father's shoes. But the financial tensions between him as the employer and her as the employee kind of do start to blur with the personal history and storytelling that they've wo- woven together, leading to mm-hmm. these kind of like what essentially is like an absurd form of like contract renegotiation or like severance yeah. pays kind of the idea, like where she's essentially trying to blackmail and humiliate um, him in order to not lose her, her, her position. And it, there's a whole, like there's a sex scene at knife point. There's a whole thing where she's like bossing him around the bathroom and going over to the toilet and stuff. And like, there's, you know, and there's always like kind of balancing that gray area of what the, either person's intentions are because they're constantly changing them throughout the dialogue the way they act like excuse me you as an audience member really don't know uh what the 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 main motivation of either of these two characters are at a certain point because it just gets so convoluted on purposely yeah yeah and and it was just obviously one of the few like down bad like erotic thriller kind of classics of 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 the year um yeah and and even though it was like clearly like a covid shoot movie it's it, it kind of looks nice. Like it's sharp. The way mm-hmm. that it moves around the hotel room is kind of nice. The, the two performances cool, yeah. 
are magnetic and hilarious and quality, especially just like psychologically yeah. torturing Abbott and all doing all the teasing and probing and like just the, just being so vindictive towards him. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and just the perversity of the shifting sort of like gendered and class dynamics of, you know, him being, you know, he, he is wealthy and afraid that his reputation is going to get ruined by her. And she's pissed that after making him good at his job, she won't actually see like any of the profit, you know, from it. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's, 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 it's well sustained. And, uh, it, you know, as a plain, like oddball, like uh, sub dom, <laughs> like romance, <laughs> you know, BDSM romance type thing. I thought it was, it was pretty neat and worth checking yeah. out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my next one, and I've only got like two left, really, or three, but uh, Brooklyn Four Five, um, directed by Ted Geoghegan. Uh Probably destroyed that, but that's okay. Um, it's about uh, a, a group of veterans that get together uh, December 1945 after the war, and they have a kind of a, a seance. And as the seance gets progressively just more powerful and dark, more truth comes out of their past and what they did in the war, and they have to kind of wrestle with that. Um, and it is kind of a, a a chamber thriller where you're just locked in one room um, with the 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 entity and 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 whatever else happens. I don't want to spoil too much, but I think it's really good because it takes its time to kind of um, connect you to the characters you're about to see. Uh, they they kind of establish almost in a sense stereotypical personalities in a way, but then they create the nuance as you learn about what they're really hiding. It's kind of all a mask that they, that they have on until the truth comes out. So, um, I just thought it was really, really interesting. Uh, it does get to eventually some, some surprisingly gory moments, which was cool. And I didn't expect. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty short one. It's like 90 minutes chamber thriller, pretty easy watch. So I'd, I'd recommend it. It's fun. Cool. Yeah, I think I think I have I have only a couple more left, but I think three of them are all stuff that I'm cool with waiting because I think that there's stuff that's actually on your list. And if they're not on your list, maybe I'll give them a shout out at the end. But I'm almost certain okay. that some of the ones uh, most of the ones I have left are except for I think maybe one. But I, maybe you'll surprise me and we'll find out. So the last one that I'll say for now is uh, Creed three, which was the okay. one that was like the closest yeah. to making it, but didn't quite get there for me. Um, I ended up, I think I ended up putting it on. I, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a little bit of my tabs that I got to check, um, before we get to the the main thing, but I'm, I'm almost, that's like, I think it's in there. I'm pretty sure you think it's in there. Okay. If it's in there, then I think I'll just, uh, I'll hold on to it and I'll have the discussion with you when we eventually talk about it. Cause this was, this was the close, like it was one of the ones where I was like, can I break the rules? Cause just kind of a number 16. You know, I was like, yeah, three, three was kind of like the one that was going to get in there on it. So, uh, if, if you think you've got it, then I think I have nothing else left. That's not on your list. Cause I only have three more here. And one of them is dream scenario, which I think is, is on yours. And Mm -hmm. the other one, uh, is uh, ha- has a, a good friend of ours named Jigsaw in it, so I'm oh, assuming heck that's yeah. you know, so somewhere <laughs> yeah, you know, is. so <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll got, save that too. <laughs> I got one too that I think is on yours because you haven't mentioned it, so I'll just get rid of that one. Um, but the the other one, okay. I th- I'm pretty sure we. I don't know if it would be on there. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be. But the Covenant by Guy Ritchie. Oh um, yeah, you, you just made me remember that one. That that probably yeah. should have been on mine. That was a, that was a cool one. Yeah, yeah. So that that one, it's it's a real well. It's interesting. They they kind of came up with two movies that had like the same premise. The other one was Kandahar. With, uh, yeah, with, was with a, uh, Gerard Butler. Um, yeah, and, surprise, uh, surprisingly, the guy Richie Jake Gyllenhaal version was 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 better than our boy. Jerry yeah, B. I was I was almost expecting the the G butts one to to be a little bit more just that like DTV kind of action movie, but it, it's taken 
a little bit more. It's it's drawn I love how out many a little too much. We have but... for him. Is it G butts? Is it Jerry B? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. We love him. We love him. Um, but yeah, so this is it, it's about uh, uh, during the war in Afghanistan, um, uh, an interpreter is um, uh, working with a, a soldier or a sergeant. And they kind of get lost uh, behind enemy lines and have to make their way uh, back. And um, uh, I just I just find that Guy Ritchie has a really good control over the camera. The action moments in this are are quite good. Um, it is, of course, uh, digital a, a lot of the time, but I think he masks it fairly well. He's pretty good at that. Um, good good uh, Jake Gyllenhaal performance, and uh, the other guy that plays the um, interpreter is uh, Dar Salim. I'm not sure if I've seen much of him he i guess he is in exodus which i'm not a huge fan of but i do think he's a good actor um but yeah it's it's just uh it's it's exactly what you know you, you think it is they they have these long drawn out scenes in the desert uh there, there's there's shootouts uh you know there's kind of the the suspense on whether or not you're supposed to trust uh, this interpreter who could be working for the other side and the, so there's kind of a, a phobia there um but uh yeah it's, it's just a really sturdy action movie that i enjoyed so Shout out to the Covenant. Yeah, it was it was cool, and I I liked that it was kind of taking this sort of like larger political transactional tension, like one concerned about the relationship between the U.S. and Afga- and Afghanistan as like an invading force, and mm-hmm. it kind of funneled it through a sort of like macho action movie sense of like romantic bonding and and conviction for the job of like two professionals on either side who help each other like get out, and you yeah. know it's it's almost like a western like movie tag team dynamic or something like that of like Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim like exchanging powerful glances and one guy carrying a another guy on his back and you know jake and jake gyllenhaal's version of having to like be stuck at home in the bureaucratic nightmare of getting that guy just like an immigration visa is Mm -hmm. like you know it's it's a it's it's a a political reality that it's interesting to see like what i thought was going to be just another like war on terror drama like bring up that kind of stuff you know there's a a couple complicated details in it that were sort of neat yeah, you're right. Um, we I, I should uh, say that real quick is the the first half kind of has what I was saying with that that more, you know, the the action, the actual bringing him, uh, bringing Jake back to where uh, he needed to be in the military base, and then the second half is him working through all the bureaucracy and realizing that even though this guy helped us, they're fucking doing absolutely nothing for him, and it takes him months and months to get anywhere. Um, so so yeah, I I think that that was an important distinction with that one, especially compared to. Kandahar um so yeah yeah well and honestly Richie's like clean tactical violence and like the wide angle lens shooting and stuff also mm-hmm. just kind of looked better than Kandahar for him in, 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 in my opinion even though there was yeah. some like tangent like some of the location shooting in Kandahar was pretty impressive but I just didn't Definitely. think the rest of it was that great yeah I agree yeah. all right well, I think the rest of our stuff and because we're again, we're going long on the honorable mentions and we're trying to trim it down. And I think the remaining stuff is all stuff that are on Jamie and I's uh, lists. So it's all stuff that we can just talk about when we eventually hit it there. Yeah. So I think we are going to do it once again. That is the end of another honorable, lengthy, honorable mentions um, <laughs> section, though. I think we kept it. You know, we had a longer intro this year, and I think we kept it to True. at least a similar a similar space. So I think that's so that's too. that's not that's not horrible. This is still probably going to be an over four hour episode. So, <laughs> probably, you know, Let's, maybe under five. Let's see what we can God, do here. God damn it! But you know, we're <laughs> we're we're doing our best here. Well, the fact that we're at, at like the same length and we're starting a fifteen now, so this will be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
yeah, there were a lot of good movies this year. I don't know. Screw you guys. There were. Um, this year was tough. I, I will say. S- skip to the time codes. You know, there, there's a yeah. bunch of stuff on here. I'm happy that we get to include by just, you know, by extending the list as long as we are. And, um, and, 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 and as, as always, you know, I always find ways to cheat. Um, uh, so I, and I still have cheated, so I'm going to go first on my 15 here, but it was because one of them got added in kind of at the last minute and it was such a good pairing with the other one that I was like, well, and it, it, w- it would have just bumped out my number 15 anyway. So I was like, you mm-hmm. know what? These two got to go together. This was the double feature of aging movie star action spectacle at number 15 for me. One, um, a, uh, a film called Jawan. Uh, from yeah. India, which after the RRR craze last year, we knew we had to try and pay a little bit more attention to some of the major Indian genre cinema. And um, the best that I was able to see was this one called Jawan uh, by a director that goes by Atli. Um, and uh, it is one in which uh, Shah Rukh Khan, uh, the Bollywood actor and producing sort of superstar famous for classics like Om Shanti Om, uh, plays this. It's such a ridiculous premise that I'm going to have a hard it's time insane. even describing. <laughs> we actually had our, Jamie and I watched this one together and we had yes, a hard time did. describing it to each other while we were watching it. Um, <laughs> it but takes from, some turns. From, from what I could, you know, glean Shah Rukh Khan is uh, playing this quasi-feminist socialist prison warden uh, <laughs> slash master of disguise slash Robin Hood um, yes. who is essentially robbing corrupt wealthy Indian capitalists and government officials uh, in a series of like deliberately ridiculously staged terrorist attacks designed to accomplish various political goals and like g- gather a whole bunch of attention and they are staged in sort of action movie contexts. like one of the first ones is like a train heist thriller type thing but ultimately He's staging all of these sort of terrorist attacks to do things like pay off farmers bank loans before they hang themselves, uh, which is uh, mm-hmm. there's a crazy detail where like one guy's about to hang himself and his daughter runs. in. he's like, Dad, don't hang yourself like the bank loan's been figured out by the crazy Robin Hood man. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, oh just r- some ridiculous stuff Cut like that. A prison um, dance of a thousand people. <laughs> yes. Oh, and man. Shah Rukh Khan got it. I don't know how old the dude is, but man, he's looking good. He's looking he, fit. Oh, yeah, he's looking wearing he's dripped out the the musical sequencers are incredible but he's also like doing shit like fixing india's healthcare system with immediate upgrades to government hospital infrastructure in like minutes yeah. um all he's exposed, with the help of incredibly elaborate terrorism <laughs> yes he's exposing corrupt arms manufacturers and in, in dealers and at one point shahrukh khan looks into the camera and just delivers a monologue about the the basic concept of democratic participation and voting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it's all just like connected by this like hyper violent kinetic action sequences. Like again, the train heist stuff, there's like these really like very uh, cartoonishly staged like knife and and gunfight stuff that again is surrounded by rain and fire. It's very much the heroic bloodshed kind of slow-mo stuff. There's like uh, helicopter explosions, giant prison brawls. Uh, one of the best highway chase set pieces that I've seen this year that I guess was apparently uh, stunt coordinated by one of the major like Fast and Furious guys. So if you awesome, like like yeah. the the if you like some of the Fast and Furious movies from like five through seven or whatever, like that's kind of what it's like. It, it reminded me a little bit too of the Matrix Reloaded set piece as well. Sure, yeah, um, totally. But. But also done in this very, you know, in in the 
as we've been kind of watching some of the Indian um, films in that very expressive kind of maximalist musical sequence mm-hmm. and twisty melodrama kind of fashion um, as well, including at one point in this film, the introduction of a cigar chomping former special ops super soldier father to Shah Rukh Khan, who's also played by Shah Rukh Khan and just yes. like with, with with less like he's just made to like embrace like the gray hair a little bit more, but basically looks identical. And then the second half of the movie is two Shah Rukh Khans doing action <laughs> set pieces. And it's just it was it was a twist that you would have seen in like a Jean-Claude Van Damme like twin role movie yes. or yep. or like in a Tom Cruise um I like bringing up the fact that in Mission Impossible movies they were at one point introducing these younger guys he was going to pass the baton off to like Jeremy Renner and then he just never did he just kept being Ethan Hunt the entire time. <laughs> yeah. So th- th- this is th- this is operating on like that level of pure star power egotism where it just like completely takes command of the movie to a delirious and like breakneck degree and it's an absolute blast which is why it felt like such a great companion to the uh, obviously the new Mission Impossible movie that came out this year oh, Dead nice. Reckoning uh part 1. Uh, which was obviously the latest entry in the Mission Impossible franchise and the Tom Cruise Ocherism project and a cool mix, I thought, of the Christopher McQuarrie era uh, of like the Rogue Nation and the Fallout, um, which I have kind of been defining as like a little bit more like brawny and blunt and fluid driven um, uh, spectacle, like clearly designed backwards from like these big stunts that they just want to shoot very cleanly. And the plotting is very ridiculous to kind of get you to these uh, set pieces. And they're just so built around move and just constantly intricately managing and escalating the agendas of all of these rotating bench of character actors that feels like they keep adding two or three more to every time they make one of these movies so it, it feels very much of that era but also because they're clearly trying to wrap things up a bit, they do kind of go back to like the good old fashioned analog espionage, Hitchcockian identity thriller roots that kind of De Palma gave the film. They have explicit callbacks to it with like bringing Kitteridge back and, you know, doing the whole uh, convoluted sort of like train cart hopping finale with masks and double crosses and fights on top of it and uh, everything like that. And there's even a sequence that replicates um the uh, Ethan sort of defining fear of getting his team killed in the original opening, which is like one of the best set pieces in like any of the movies. And they kind of yeah. bring that back a little bit. And uh, I, yeah, I, I just thought this was great. And I personally, I would have thought that trying to merge these two different styles together. So late in the game would have made the movie a bit more incoherent and, and inelegant, but I actually thought that it like, did everything quite well like bringing back all the people who have been in these new movies like vin rames who's doing the fucking wearing hats and doing 90s hacking and simon Pegg, uh who is looking older than tom cruise at this point but is still hanging out with him um and having those like uh, classic dialogue moments in between every action sequence where they're just like asking almost obvious questions like there's there's a t- we were actually me and my brothers were watching it the other day and there's so many moments where they're just like uh, oh my god he's gotten into the system what do you mean he's gotten into the system and then it's, it's a it's a, a way for them to start kind of giving the exposition on explaining Cut to Tom everything Cruise that can, sprinting through a computer or something <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. it's just I, I love like there you almost see a little bit of of the formula but I just think it it's so it works so well and uh, and I agree that th- it does feel like it's kind of mixing Macquarie's 
kind of more modern Mission Impossible that we know with the classics. And that, I thought that was a really cool thing. But it, it did yeah. feel a little more like um, espionage a lot of the time than just straight up stunts that kind of Fallout was doing. Although, I mean, I fucking love Fallout. <laughs> so Yeah, me, was, uh, me, me too. And, and like they tried to obviously give Rebecca Ferguson some stuff to do in this one and Vanessa mm-hmm. Kirby some some stuff to do in 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 this one. But I really did think that like the, the newcomer Haley Atwell was kind of like the biggest revelation of the movie as the third party thief who's like seemingly mm-hmm. just like walked onto the set of a Mission Impossible movie from like a much like lighter crime caper movie. She spends like this right. entire movie just like tormenting and slipping through Ethan's fingers. Like yeah. like she's like Barbara Streisand and like what's up doc. And but then um, also being incredibly surprised at every like tech that she's introduced to like the like the face swapping and all that stuff. So it's kind of cool to have her character be it's like reintroduced to all this stuff that we're already very familiar with. Yeah. And so, so like all of that stuff is, is, is really good. And I also just really loved that, you know, the, the object of the warring attention of all of these characters, including, you know, S.A. Morales, they introduce as, as like the uh, suave, like anti Ethan or like called Gabriel, who's almost like a Bond villain. And, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Palm Clementif is also, um, the, his like a mute, uh, henchman and Shia Wiggum, I think is also introduced in, um, this one, he gets that great line about Ethan is a mind reading, shape shifting incarnation of chaos. And and he gets that recurring bit of constantly grabbing people's faces in the middle of the scene to check if they're wearing a mask or not or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all, 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 all <laughs> that stuff is great. And, and it's so funny that the plot of it is like, kind of so overcomplicated and talked about so much via exposition that I just kind of turned my brain off after a while. And I went, they're just, there's a key that controls a death computer or something. I don't (laughs) know. Get the key. (laughs) That was where my brain went eventually. I'm just like, get that key, baby. That's what, that's the objective. (laughs) Yeah. But it, but it, but it was cool that despite that I was, you know, I was just so into the characters and I was so into the filmmaking and the fact that it is just loosely like the thread in the film of making Ethan's opponent like strategically aligned with with Tom Cruise's in the sense that it's like an AI entity that functions as like this cold calculating unemotional thing that controls and it it, it it's threatening our old school fleshy way that we used to do things and it's it's going to turn us into a digital godless stateless you know like immoral thing and like the Ethan Hunt model is all about he loves his team he loves what the human body can do like it so it's so funny it like it was very similar to what Top Gun Maverick did when it was all about, you know, the it, it, it almost feels like Cruz's anxiety about traditional old school era being overwritten by this new kind of like digital one. And as a result, I loved that the set pieces in this were so focused on like less on guns and gadgets. And it really was more on like pickpocketing and getting into fists and knife fights and going to these, you know, old locations. And at one point they literally build an old school like coal train. Um, yeah. that they have the big like final set piece on. And, and I heard McQuarrie and Cruz both comparing this stuff to like Buster Keaton's the general and John Frankenheimer's the train. And, you know, and so, and, and, you know, to go like old school analog like that and do these like daredevil set pieces that Cruz is like really obsessed with doing now where he's going over the mountain and doing, you know, the, the whole like uh, train cart hopping stuff is, uh, really really good there's a great fucking car chase in it and so despite the the only my only reservation about it was a lot of the part one isms where you know they they did 
luckily they did kind of make a complete movie in the story with Haley Atwell being converted over to the team, even though they had to do a lot of weird retconning and in the writing to kind of make that the story. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, But, but if anyone wants to hear more about that, we, we theorized all about that on the bonus transmission. So I don't need to get into all that for, for me, it was like, just lots of Im- of Im- impeccable sort of slapstick stunt heavy, um, you know, like the train fight, the train cart stuff. Uh, fuck, there's a part where they literally dangle a grand piano over Tom Cruise's head. It's like yeah. a cartoon bit, and it's just it's great. And uh, I really did uh, have a have a good time with it. And uh, I do believe that Cruise is going to kill our computer overlords. Um, and this yeah. movie, or is, kill that's what it's suggesting. Trying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it'll be entertaining. Um, (laughs) So, okay, Joan was kind of one that I had on the on the fence a little bit, too. But I figured that it was going to be on your list. So shout out to Joan. That one. That one is awesome. I really uh, do like that one. Uh, My 15 is also uh, an an Indian action film uh, called uh, uh, Jigger Thunder Double X. And it's directed by Kartik Subaraj. Subaraj. Um, and, uh, it's starring Regava Lawrence and it, basically what it is, it's a, it's a, this premise is this, he's kind of this notorious gangster. Um, and there's a director, um, and he, the, the filmmaker wants to use the gangster to kind of influence people, um, to, to, to do certain things. And as the, the movie develops, it turns into them kind of saving this, this uh, village from a, a very militaristic police force that's within the the, the area, um, and essentially the film is just about the power of of filmmaking and how it can be used to um, to convince people of of truths in the world that they would otherwise not be uh, that that they otherwise wouldn't know about. Um, and there's an incredibly powerful ending that I will not spoil, but it is just very blunt in its way of expressing that that idea. And, um, uh, the, but at the same time, it has everything that you kind of, uh, at least I'm used to. I haven't, I haven't watched a ton of, of, of these, um, these films, but it has that same maximalist kind of musical feeling at times, which honestly can be very strange because of the, the, the themes and, and the content that you're actually watching is right. very, you know, very heavy. But then they'll also have scenes where the, him and the boys are just at the club, like doing, awesome humping moves to the to, to <laughs> with a hundred extras behind them and and like I, I will say this too is just speaking on the dancing uh the the lead g- guy that plays the gangster um uh, his character they have him do so many variations of hip thrusts within his choreography that i was just oh, hell yeah. losing it every single time the guy is an innovator in hip thrust dancing it's it's unbelievable um so but but yeah it's got these awesome images of them using like a super 8 as a gun cuz it has the trigger and there's one awesome image that i i very much remember of of the one of the guys using the gun against the guy that's also using the camera opposite him as if he's about to shoot him and it's an actual like uh, a, a defense uh, that would work and and it's just a really cool image um, and and basically that image kind of encapsulates the theme of the entire film but it, it does it over and over again in, in a lot of great ways so I'd highly recommend it and it's uh, it's on Netflix actually so at least Canadian Netflix I'm not sure about the states but uh, my number 14 is uh, a little film called Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, oh, cool. I didn't get to watch that. I was really disappointed I didn't. 
Yeah, directed by Justine uh, Treat uh, out of out of France. This was uh, kind of a last minute watch for me because I mm. I missed it when it played the Toronto International Film Festival, and it kind of took a long time for this one to, you know, finally kind of come come become available to watch. Um, but it is a very cleverly constructed and very well made two and a half hour long French courtroom drama and murder mystery film um, about this successful female author played by German actress Sandra uh, Huller who I'm glad to give a shout out here because she's also in a zone of interest this year. So she's having one hell of a year. She's actually mm. kind of in, she has two movies near the top for me. Uh, she's, and, and she's a huge reason why both are amazing. Um, but essentially, uh, her husband uh, falls off the second-story balcony window um, of of their house to his bloody death in the opening scene uh, to the like snowy ground below. Which, if anyone who's seen the poster, you'll have actually seen the image from the film when they find that. Um, hmm. And uh, the only person in range of the house other than her is actually her blind son, who only heard some of the commotion and uh, found the body. And uh, part of the commotion is also hilarious: uh, is th- that the husband is like annoying blasting PIMP by 50 cent on repeat, um, (laughs) which is that's awesome. Just kind of hilarious hum to the opening, <laughs> cold open of the scene of the husband dying. It just, I found it hilarious. Oh, I loved it. Um, that is funny. Uh, but, but it's a very pulpy premise. Uh, one that might've made for one of those like nineties, like John Grissom era courtroom dramas with like a cold open on like this actual death that strategically hides the information that's, mm-hmm. you know, going to get, if not revealed, then at least examined by the actual court procedure. Uh, but what's cool about the film is that even though it does all of the sort of like court back and forth, then it does have lawyers and cops kind of looking into this mysterious death. The movie instead kind of is building that stuff out to, a uh, not necessarily a like traditionally satisfying closure of the case and like who did it. It just it, it becomes a lot more interested in just thornily and very slowly revealing um, itself to be more about a depiction of sort of like long term relationships and marriage. And it's very harrowing in how it's like you know, the wife and the husband have two different realities that they live in. And they're almost like these conflicted sort of crafted sort of subjective narratives where it's like these people were never going to resolve this pain. There's something kind of inherently unknowable about a person who's not able to speak for themselves anymore. And you only Mm. have like the evidence of the people around them and how they interpreted their actions and all that stuff. Like that's way more of what's interest to the film. And, um, So much of the movie is actually just us learning about her tumultuous marriage and the fights and resentments that they have that kind of scream motive for why she might have done it. Um, But it's done in this very realistic kind of, um, you know, uh, melodrama way where like, you know, Mm. it's about sharing of household labor and like mental, emotional health and like lack of artistic fulfillment and like childcare. And we just, it basically, it's like almost these concepts and how they divided that stuff up comes up under in the trial more than the actual murder because there's no weapon, there's no evidence or anything. It's literally just like, you know, the only option is that she might, she must've killed him or he committed suicide. So it becomes kind of like who can prove which case, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the manipulated procedure of the court just becomes kind of like this uh, theatrical attack on her possible selfishness as a wife or, or as an author. 
Um, and maybe her husband's perhaps like sensitivity and maybe cowardice or, you know, maybe depending on which side you kind of land on, but it, it, it kind of lets both sides kind of like strike at each other. And there's an entire complex history of just festering wounds and that the court just has no way of comprehending. And that's, you know, uh, so much of what the movie is about instead. And, uh, it's also worth noting that for anyone who's maybe never seen a French courtroom drama, this was one of the first ones that I had ever seen. Mm. Uh, you'll see a lot of people telling you there's no way that's how the French court system works. Like I, I saw so <laughs> many reviews of people being like, is that really how it works? Cause it's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's, it's fucking crazy. And I, and I have no idea if it was manipulated just for the movie or not. Um, so you're saying I, that my I, I, alien resurrection review remains true. The French are out of their fucking minds. <laughs> the French are out of their minds, genuinely, because if this is real, like both sets of lawyers, the judges, the witnesses, and the defendant can basically all talk or be cross-examined at any given moment in the court. Um, it's like Jerry so like Springer. they'll have the, yeah, like they'll they'll have a witness on the stand and, you know, they'll have like the defendant people will just say the witness is a fucking idiot and a liar or something. And the judge will jump in and say, like, yeah, we kind of agree or, you know, like it's just like it, it, it was actually I, I could not believe what I was watching um, half, half watch the time. That. You made me and, even more interested now. Yeah. And 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 they could also just like fucking like they could just like make shit up like it was like wild i couldn't believe like it was they could say anything without an objection coming up at one point the prosecutor reads one of her books where uh the character is describing thinking about killing her husband and enters it as evidence into the trial to which the defense has to be like is stephen king a serial killer like what do you mean like what how yeah. is this like what do you mean like <laughs> holy hell that's um, wild there's also a part where they find like a tape of her husband secretly like recording a fight they had and they play it in court and the film cuts between like the tape scene and the audio of people hearing it in the court. Just a really incredible piece of like editing and mm. and 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 filmmaking that like throws you into the heat of this moment. And, you know, they they save it for playing it till like really late in 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 the film. So um, but uh Anyway, we, we never really, it's not a spoiler to say that you never, there's a sense of ambiguity to the film, uh, okay. even by the conclusion of the film. Um, but it, it, it is so much about just this marriage being on trial um, and uh, the staging of events and the crafting of narratives in, in our own personal worlds versus our worlds as a relationship versus how that looks to the outside world. It's just so much uh, interesting sort of theatrics and subjectivity, uh, but using sort of like a genre sort of a sort of concept or procedure to kind of get you to that kind of um, um movie and i won't say anything else cool. about it uh other than that except to warn anyone uh there's a great dog in the movie and it's a great performance by a dog in the movie but there is a very harrowing scene involving a dog that kind of comes out of Damn nowhere it. and might upset you if that upsets you so just yeah. figured i'd give people a warning that is a good warning to have yeah <laughs> um okay sweet my next uh, one number 14 is uh, creed 3 directed by michael yeah. B. jordan um, I thought this was an amazing debut, honestly. I think that Sleezoids approved director, Michael B. Jordan. Yes, yes. And he does it does seem like he's coming out with four eventually. I'm not sure if that's next year or not, but I am looking forward to it. Um yeah, I think that he honestly has a lot of confidence behind the camera, specifically 
Um, although I do think the the dramatics of this film are, are quite good. It has it's it's Michael B. Jordan and uh, Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors plays a character that is coming back from uh, B. Jordan's past, uh, and he was in prison for a long time. But during that time, he's used it to uh, hone in his skills as a boxer and train himself. Um, and become just like an absolute beast. This it, Jonathan Majors is huge in this movie. It's it's crazy uh, the physical transformation um, and, uh, and and quite good as uh, as um, as Damien. Um, but you know you discover through uh, flashbacks what happened uh, to them, and and really it's about how Damien never got the opportunity that um, that uh, Adonis has, um, and it, it's kind of him battling that and and there's a lot of uh uh there's a lot of guilt that creed feels because of of the past and he wants to give him an opportunity but at the same time it seems that jonathan major's character kind of has uh, a mentality that might not work as well in the professional uh ring um so there, there's a lot of complications there that i think they that he does well they, uh, they kind really of make him superficially on. similar to like the mr t character in rocky three right where he's like fresh out of prison but he's like a lot more hungry and cutthroat as yeah. the underdog and there's inspir- more experience so much more in indignity and now the lead character like creed or like rocky and rocky three is now like the kind of wealthy superstar who's like forgotten where he's come from kind of deal yeah, and I will say that with Jonathan Major's character, I think there's more nuance uh, to to his character than what they give Mr. T in that one. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, especially like a lot more emotional nuance, out. at least. Yeah, you know? yeah, like it's a uh, lot more sympathetic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you know, just besides all that, the Michael B. Jordan doing action is awesome. He he said that he took a a bunch of of kind of frames and shots from anime that he was really inspired by, and you can tell because he he's always like swooping the camera along with the body as they're doing a hook shot, or um, at a certain point he's even doing like full fantasy fights where he's in a completely different space. Like you can get kind of in their headspace as they're fighting rather than just in the ring with the spec- spectators and um there's just a lot of of really great ideas and it kind of you know it refreshes you watching a a boxing match because at this point i mean we've covered quite a few of the rockies um and and there's uh uh it, it almost seems like there's only so much you can do and i think that jordan actually found a way to kind of refresh uh me watching people getting punched in the face really hard in a boxing ring not that that isn't always entertaining and i love stallone's uh uh the, the way that he shoots it. Um, but this was, but this was really cool and new and I liked it a lot. So yeah, Creed three. Yeah, no, totally agree. Cause I was like huge fan of the uh, first Creed, like B mm-hmm. Jordan and Stallone's performances are so good. You know, Coogler is doing so much with that, with the iconography of the franchise and how elegantly shot and like conceived it is in terms of its drama and it's sort of like crowd pleaser kind of stuff, but still being just really well made. So this was like, for me, a huge realignment after the, the second one, which yeah. I did think kind of dropped some of the character psychology for a little bit broader, more formulaic sort of script beats that didn't just feel like they had as much voice and identity to them, in in, in my opinion. Whereas this, I felt... connection to the, the the past in a way where it was like the first Creed felt like it's 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 it really giving the torch over. And the second one was almost like, let's go back a little bit for, you know, n- no, no real reason in, in a sense. 
It, yeah, I, I remember thinking that the Dolph stuff in the second one was way more interesting than the Michael totally. B. Jordan stuff. Whereas in, in totally. this one, I actually felt that, you know, Michael B. Jordan came up with a, a crisis and an existential crisis for his own character that he understands well. And he did finally, this is the first like one Stallone's not involved in. So like mm-hmm. th- there was no Stallone overseeing, you know, the, the, the script or the characters or anything like that. So he really did have to like step out of Rocky shadow a little bit. And uh, he did so while also, yeah, like being visually bombastic and kind of expressive with it, like doing the most like wild directing that one of these movies has had probably since like Rocky four, just in terms of, uh, you know, like actually visually depicting this like dual faded dynamic of these guys kind of hashing out this emotional history, but are like, they're bad at verbally communicating it. So it's a little Mm -hmm. bit, you know, they got to like beat it out of each other kind of deal. And he, he, he kind of, um, excelled at that with the directing chops like the flashbacks the montages this was the one where i felt like michael b jordan being like an la kid like the la location work in this was clearly more personal to him like that training montage uh, sprint through the hollywood hills uh, feels like you know a little bit more special for him and even just basic framing like the compositions of like the two men separated by like a wall crossed mm-hmm. by you know oh, yeah. that they, they should go over it and talk to each other but you know they've hurt one another so much that they're not going to so they're gonna get it into the ring and hash it all out uh there where you know boxing has always kind of stood in for a little bit of like a therapeutic suffering or like this yeah. extravagant sort of like public stage of emotion in these movies like even in the first rocky that's what's so um moving about it yep uh, is that even though he loses, it's like there was some, there was more going on there emotionally and psychologically for that character to just like take that shot. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, in, in this one, you could see, you know, B Jordan clearly understood that. Um, and the mm-hmm. way that he exaggerated and just animated with like the, you know, the actual, you know, the steady cam shots, like actually in the ring, the slow motion close up inserts, which was like where I got the most anime out yeah. of it, where it was like sudden, like boom, you know, shot to the, ch- you see the sw- wet get punched off a back at one point or <laughs> yeah. you know and uh you know the the the, the, the close-ups of eyes or bursts of just sudden color and lighting or that bit in the finale where you know they the crowd literally disappears and all of yeah. their anger and hurt and history just like turns into this otherworldly void where like you know the 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 ring corners become the stained mattresses from like the group home they were in or the, mm-hmm. they, they get surrounded by like the prison bars around them while they're fighting each other and yeah it's just you know as far as rocky creed boxing drama formula goes this was really good and i was actually kind of disappointed that it just barely got cut off on my on on my list because it's it's yeah. uh quite well well directed yeah yeah I, I really enjoyed it really looking forward to four yeah bring it on let's see it uh my number 13 is uh how to blow up pipeline Nice. Directed by Daniel Goldhaber, which is we'll be a, uh, that one white... a little later in mine. Ooh, okay, let's go. It's a, a white knuckle eco thriller by a filmmaker, as I just mentioned, Daniel Goldhaber, uh, whose debut film Cam was kind of like this timely combination of you know sort of authentic reality of uh, sex work and parasocial sort of online horror filmmaking. I tried to kind of merge those two things. And, um, but, but I thought that this was a pretty big step up in terms of uh, his directing skill by adapting this nonfiction manifesto of the same name by a uh, human ecology lecturer and climate activist, Andreas uh, uh, or Andreas uh, Malm, 
which is, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and taking many of its sort of like revolutionary political arguments about the viability of sort of violent sabotage against as a tool against fossil fuels and CO2 emissions and climate change and, you know, placing it, these sort of, uh, arguments into a sort of dramatic logistical practice and a kind of righteous act of sort of Mm self-defense tracing this kind of fictional group of activists led by a radical and determined sort of college dropout whose mother tragically passed away during like a heat wave uh, who's played by the co-writer of the film Ariella Bearer um, and and forming a kind of narrative around her that deftly cuts between the nuts and bolts direct action of this mission to blow up a Texas pipeline. It is instructional <laughs> how to blow yeah. up a pipeline. Um <laughs> Right down to the recruitment process, the literal building and sort of tense transportation of uh, IEDs and the tactical planning of property destruction with like, you know, with with a focus on diminishing human collateral damage, obviously, and Mm -hmm. the various sort of sympathetic backgrounds that brought this crew uh, together uh, to kind of... uh, generate weight out of it and uh and and stuff and yeah i just thought goldhaber's depiction of the sort of unbearable tension of the work um which is uh you know people made a lot of comparisons to like sorcerer or like good time uh i mean sorcerer obviously the fact when they uh, if they hit a bump it'll explode like obviously this they're transporting very rickety bombs as well so that is just kind of a literal comparison but it does, um, you know, it, it, it does, I, I, I really think that it's, you know, the, the political project here is, you know, depicted with a very rigorous kind of action heist quality to it that really mm-hmm. does chew through its uh, suspense sequences of, um, you know, b- the strap threads tearing as they're carrying things or like, you know, it, the explosive powders over the bumpy roads or the tires being slashed. And the closest companion uh, ultimately was something like Kelly Reichardt's night moves for anyone who's seen that movie which was um another movie about eco-terrorism but that mm. movie for me is all about the kind of dispiriting moral compromise of that those characters kind of have to make and this one is all more about like conviction you know the script mm. and everything about what it does with the, with the characters and everything it, it's all about the sense of pain that has inspired these people to actually act and then you know and the rest of it is you know a sharp sort of non-linear uh, you know, series of, you know, uh, montages that kind of give you those, those, those feelings. And they do stuff like the sort of acidic rain, uh, stuff. They do the sort of land seizure stuff for some characters as well. And they take all these personal histories and just find a way to make them emotionally inform, um, a more of like a, like an action context. And it is a a neat idea that the filmmakers have even said that like oceans 11 kind of inspired them like that kind of editing structure and that kind of you know and it's it's uh it's it's a very neat um little movie that i was uh, quite surprised at how well it actually fits its personal stuff its political argumentation and actually does package it in something that is um you know uh quite uh quite suspenseful and mm-hmm. uh you know quite quite enter entertaining um and 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 not sacrificing one for the other um yeah which is which was kind of important uh, to me because so many movies that are made like this, they'll do like, well, you know, they they had good ideas, but, you know, then but it, but, it, you know, they they wanted to 
you know, the, the, the human element is all about them being flawed and it being, you know, you know, it, it's, it's not about getting the job done. It's actually, you know, these people went about it kind of like the wrong way or something like that. And there are certainly opposing voices heard in the film about yeah. what everything that they're doing, but it, it's doing it in that way that, uh, you know, th- that it's not just to like poke moral holes in the mission. It's just yeah. kind of reaffirming that it's kind of complicated and it kind of doubles there. And it, it reminded me of um, Battle of Algiers. Sure. Which yeah. is that, 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 which is just one of the greatest pieces of like guerrilla resistance cinema ever. And I don't think it's quite on that level, obviously, but it, no, it's just no. the, the way that it's kind of blunt and unglamorous depiction of like sometimes, you know, violent conditions and achieving political goals is not easy. And this movie tries to make it like tries to depict that while also like not trying to discourage it either while being like, you know, the methodical genre thrills thrills are actually quite um, cathartic to actually watch them go through. And uh, it does have spoiler alert, I guess, like a a happier ending than you might expect of a film uh, dealing with this kind of subject matter, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. 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 I have a a couple more things, small things to add, but I'll I'll just wait until it, it hits on the list. Um, cool. But yeah, so my, is this 13, I believe? 13. Yeah, 13 is uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part Hell 1. Hell yeah. Um, I pretty much just agree with everything that you said uh, uh, previously. Um, I like the the fact that they're kind of using the more Macquarie modern Mission Impossible and kind of fusing a little bit with the almost hangout espionage vibes of the, the, the first one, I guess, specifically. Um, uh, and I do like the additions. I think Haley Atwell is really good. Vanessa Kirby specifically. I liked her in, in, I, she's in fallout, correct? I believe. Um, she is, she, she's introduced in that one. Right, right. As and like I the deals like broker or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, but in this, she actually gets a scene where she's playing someone that is face swapping her. So she kind of has to have a little bit more of a, like she's acting like Haley Atwell acting like Vanessa Kirby. So that I always enjoy an actor trying to, uh, take that on. And, and she has a really great, uh, uh, scene where she's kind of uh, where she's doing that. So I thought that, that was fantastic. And I do like a little bit more of the slapstick elements that they're doing um, with Tom Cruise because he gets a little desperate at certain situations. So he's still doing his his really awesome physical uh, uh, stunts that, that you're used to. But a lot of the time, like uh, one of them is when he the, the famous one that you've all already seen in the trailer is where he goes off the cliff and then skydives. Um, he ends up like landing in a train and he just crashes through the window. He's completely such a great gag. Yeah, yeah, it feels like it's like the coolest fucking stunt that Tom Cruise is actually doing. And then they they just landed into like a, a more like a, a physical gag or something that you'd see in a um, Buster Keaton movie or something. So it was uh, it was very cool. And, and, and he's still trying to keep his Ethan Hunt like I've got everything under control where he's just like, I've you know, I've come to save you. But you can tell he has no idea where he is. Like there's there's plenty of moments where there's um, room for him not being just this perfect action hero. And I think they do it in a way that doesn't undercut him uh, as well. So, um, yeah. And, and just watching Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg do their buddy buddy thing. I absolutely adore. Um, They do a lot of cool things where we've established the relationship amongst all these people. So the AI starts to take advantage of that when they're using their comms, like, uh, they actually use Simon Pegg's voice to try to get Tom Cruise to go somewhere that he shouldn't be, things like that. So I, I, I like that they use the built-in trust uh, against them a little bit. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, of, of great moments in this. I highly recommend it. And I can't wait for part two. And I agree with you as well that for the most part, 
you know, there's a couple part one isms, but for the most part, I think they have a, a pretty um, uh, a story that wraps up in its own it's in its own way, but still setting up for the next two and a half hour extravaganza. I'm sure. So yeah, um, even though you've heard that they're apparently not going to call it part two now or something like that, it's just oh really sounds stupid. Yeah, that I don't sounds know. Stupid what's going just because you've already set up with part one, you might as well just go for it. You know that 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 seems a little strange, but. Because um, especially when you're going to look at it in a row, it's just like part one and then this one. You're like, what happened? <laughs> you know, it just doesn't it doesn't feel right. But anyway, uh, strong movie. Really enjoyed it and uh, recommend if you haven't. Uh, my number 12 is uh, one that Jamie unfortunately didn't get a chance to see. Oh, uh, the boy and the heron. Yeah. Uh, directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Um, this is the obviously his uh, comeback from retirement uh, from obviously the legendary Studio Ghibli animator and, and, and director behind Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, and Too Many to Name. Mm-hmm. Um, a... Uh, much sweeter animated film than Mad, Mad God, which took my animated slot last year. Um, this one uh, has has a plot that will sound familiar to anyone who's watched one of his his movies before. It's about a young child, in this case, a World War II uh, era Japanese boy who's dealing with a family trauma and who cathartically kind of channels those feelings into this like strange fantasy dimension that's like right next door to ours. Um, in 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 this case, an ugly sort of like practically body horror man who lives inside a heron and who drags this kid in as he might be like related to the guy who like runs the world that's on the brink of like some sort of apocalyptic uh, collapse and Mm. he's dealing with a whole sort of like stepmother situation. And either way, the narrative and character and sort of thematic concerns are very familiar for anyone who likes Miyazaki. Um, And undeniably, this movie is at least in part like a self-referential kind of victory lap that's in conversation with many of the uh, movies that, that, that he's made before on these very Mm. sort of dreamy, expressive fantasy worlds. Um, so I, I said in my review at TIFF that I could see people either finding this like a really nice warm bath that they're like, oh, sp- more spirited away B-sides. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so or you maybe might feel it's a little derivative and you might think that he's done some of this stuff better and this isn't quite uh, to the to the level of, of him previously. I think that that's going to be kind of the prevailing reactions people are, are going to have to it. Gotcha. But personally, I was really taken with just being back inside this animation uh, animation style back inside this kind of material um and 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 but did also feel that there were some new feelings in it of like a much older man that there is like kind of an aging precarity and sort of collapse baked into this movie where you know it's there is one element of it this very like smeary fiery sort of like trauma element that it opens on that i thought was sort of interestingly new for him Mm -hmm. and um and it also serves as sort of like the grounding for the coming of age uh, uh, sort of storytelling that you're going to eventually um, see him do. And it, it's complete with the stuff you want rendered watercolor landscapes that are just, you know, just so lovingly done. Um a you know very strange supernatural world and creature designs with lots of cute little guys uh another un the most important in my opinion another unreal uh joe uh hasaishi uh score uh that will just make you cry without even having to watch the movie that's the guy who obviously did a lot of miyazaki's films but also did takeshi kitano's films like sonatine and stuff like just one of the Mm -hmm. best composers of all time so hearing him at work again wonderful um and uh, 
yeah it, and 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 the world itself it's really cool it's very majestic it's uh also importantly described as quite old and unbalanced and my favorite mm. uh element is created by a man who read too many books and went insane um <laughs> which when we when we eventually meet the creative man who invented this world it obviously feels like a stand-in for miyazaki himself who's like i i can't okay. like really like the reason the world's falling apart is like he's like i don't think i can be the one making this shit anymore i need someone oh, else wow. to kind of you know take over um that's awesome and it so so there is like a sort of a meta component to it in in there and in typical miyazaki fashion just astonishingly beautiful animation a lot of tenderness um on display like you spend a lot of time uh and sometimes bleak tenderness i guess you could call <laughs> it like he spends a lot of time considering how like the labor of this world works there's some astonishing right. fishing sequences in it there's some stuff to do with the food chain of the universe where you see a bunch of cute little guys getting eaten by herons that'll make fucking kids upset and you know <laughs> and uh you know, there's an odd fable like quality to it that sometimes is funny, sometimes is scary, sometimes is is moving. There's a whole subplot about like evil and cannibalistic like parakeets with like okay. gags of them like wanting to chop up and cook the little boy and they're like running around with like knives behind their back and shit like that. There's a whole parakeet king and empire and castle and stuff. And either way, it 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 all it's it's all what you would hope from Miyazaki and it does build in my opinion to a kind of touching observation of the ways that you know these worlds are all kind of connected and we all kind of affect one another and you kind of need help to keep it propped up and and sometimes unfortunately you know mortality like sometimes these mm -hmm. things just uh they these these worlds die and sometimes the guy who holds them up is uh you know he's too old and can't do it anymore uh which uh I immediately left the festival and had a subtextual reading that it's all about his son's Goro's failed filmmaking career. <laughs> I don't know if that's true and that he has no one to pass his, his legacy on to. <laughs> um, I don't know if that, son. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> Oh my god! So, so if you want to, if, if you want to read it that way, I think you can. <laughs> I was just about to mention before I got to my next one. I was just like, I love his sensitivity. Anyway, and then you ended it with that. That's just so funny to me. I mean, oh it's just god. it's so obviously a movie about a guy who builds these magical worlds, who's old and the world might die because he can't do it anymore, and yeah. no one, his son's not interested in taking it over, and he <laughs> tries to get the grandson interested in taking it over, who is the young boy, and just like no one wants to do. It. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh my god, I can't wait to see and, this. And 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 the the son, like the the father of the little boy, is like a, just a a total idiot who just gets like shit on by birds and stuff. I just it's so funny. That's awesome. I, oh <laughs> Either way, god. great movie um, and my uh, my animated pick for uh, this year. Hell yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, my next one uh, is uh, Red Rooms, directed by Pascal Plante or Plant. Um, mm, it is actually a actually. Canadian-made film. Uh, I believe it was filmed in Quebec, I think. It is French. Um, it stars uh, Juliette uh, Gerippi. Gerippi? Um, I'm not, I haven't seen her in anything else. I imagine she's... Um, uh, uh, it's, it's more in some like underground indie French films, but... Um, basically what it's about is it, it's a, it is an attack on true crime girls <laughs> is what this movie is in a sense. I, I'm, oh, I'm partly kidding, but, uh, it's, uh, about a, a high profile serial killer case. 
And this uh, this character, the lead character, Kellyanne, becomes absolutely obsessed with it to the point where she's going to the trial, even though she has no connection to it. She's just sitting at every single uh, hearing that they have. And it kind of it, the the opening of it is is. Uh, really quite incredible where it has this opening one long shot of the entire courtroom hearing and it's just kind of showing you the family of of the person that was murdered the 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 prosecution the defense the serial killer the judges the girl that's obsessed with the case um, and it's kind of just establishing all of the characters that we're going to be seeing throughout um, it does have a particular a focus on Kellyanne uh, and her character. And what her main objective seems to be is to try to, you know, help with the case. But what it seems to become is this more perverse curiosity on what happened uh, on that murder day. And what she ends up doing is trying to collect the actual murder snuff films that the serial killer uh, created uh, uh, in particular in um, in reference to this case that he's been arrested for, and so you basically see her trying to collect them, and then there's these sequences where honestly the film isn't gory itself; it's all the implications where she starts to watch them, and you basically just watch her watch them, and it has all of the audio. It doesn't cut away from that at the very least, and it is pretty. Uh, harrowing to watch in, in those moments. But what, what it is is basically you're watching her become more and more obsessed with the actual violence of the case rather than the let's discover who the real murderer is, let's get justice for the family. It's really the perversity of it. And I, oh, and, and, and I, what she's I like getting, it She's so getting much. turned on. <laughs> yeah, it, there's, there's, some, there's some wild images that sh they just use with the lighting from her computer screen and a red light. And it's just all of these implied, just, just horrifying things that she's looking at that you can hear, but can't see. And then they'll do like a freeze frame of her computer right before she shuts off the, of the thing of just the room, the aftermath. And it's just all of these things that make you connect it within your own brain. And, and it's, it's really, I found it to be very unsettling. Um, and, uh, and, and and to be honest, I've known uh, just just on social media more so of of certain people that are obsessed with true crime that I think are obsessed with it for all of the wrong reasons. Um, and uh, and I think that this kind of points to that a little bit. And I, I thought it was really good, really good and underseen, I believe. So we'll check it out. Hell yeah, I'll have to check it out. And we'll be definitely be talking about some more uh, filmmakers doing subtweets at true crime people <laughs> later on. Uh, we yeah. got at least two more movies that also took this as partially their subject matter <laughs> yep. that are going to be coming up. Uh, my number 11 here is my last cheat because I felt like I could was comfortable doing it in the 11 spot that shouldn't Hell exist, yeah. uh, but does exist this year, um, which were two movies that I really highly questioned whether I was going to include or not. But I said, fuck it. Let's go. I like these movies a lot. I did put them further down the list so that I could try and highlight some like pure genre stuff uh, as much as possible uh, for for some of the top 10, even though there's obviously some ones that are borderline there. But these ones were uh, the, uh, the, the the tears in your eyes dramedies by 90s indie darlings. We had two major ones. We had the holdovers uh, directed Ooh, yeah. by Alexander Payne. That would I'll say this now. That was one that I'm like I would wholeheartedly put that on the list. I just kind of 
just didn't to leave room some for some more specific genre stuff but it is yeah awesome. i, 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 I kind of thought that you would do that but i was like you know what i thought about it enough i've i really liked this movie Hell um yeah. this is it, the I think indie it dramedy too it's just it, it's you know it, it is like very drama comedy heavy in that sense but i think like it is something that we would we, it's the type of film in the '70s that we would have covered on the show, kind of thing. Exactly. That's just what. That's when 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 Jamie and I were talking about it. I did straight up go like, "Look, at some point we'll probably end up covering Hal Ashby, like Harold and, right. and Maude, or something like that, and we won't think twice about the fact just because it's like such clearly, you know, like a you know, like owes to that sort of like '70s era of of comedy that we would be like, yeah, what it's it's a comedy film. So, and this harkens back to that so much that I yeah, I was like, let's let's do it, and it was. Totally by alexander payne the director behind like election and sideways um and uh really nice to see him reunite with paul giamatti uh, after sideways because i love that film i think they're both uh, great together um and um this is a film that's on this list because it, it is it's a very old school comedy that people have been comparing uh to to people like hal ashby and it also for me played like a very nice cozy throwback to like those 90s boarding school dramedies as as, sure. as well and Payne does a really good job uh, did actually i think i believe digitally recreating the uh 70s style here like this is like yeah. this is all like fake grain and the, the but even like the, the zooms and the fades and the wipes and everything like it's you know it's it's a very done well done little recreation that i was almost convinced was like 16 millimeter or something yeah it feels um, very authentic for sure yeah and and it's it's also one of those um you know uh like very warm movies that has just enough bitterness and kind of woundedness to it that uh mm -hmm. you know it, it it really does kind of hit you even though it it is you know adhering a little bit to a formula and Paul Giamatti is great as the so pretentious good. grumpy monk like ancient civilizations teacher at the boarding school who needs to spend his holidays with all the misfit kids whose parents like don't pick them up over the holidays which is the concept and it approaches some this of the material best, uh, truly some of the best dialogue that I've seen throughout the year, like funniest dialogue coming from Giamatti's mouth. It's unbelievable. You vulgar Philistines yeah, or uh, so boorish cretins or you know, all the things that he's, <laughs> you, know, he's yelling like, you at are the children. human representation of penis cancer. <laughs> like that yeah, that's what a Just, great. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I, I got to see it in a theater twice this year and people lost it at that line both times. <laughs> like it, 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 it really plays well with the crowd. It was a great holiday watch. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it approaches this material with just like a great mix of like a little bit depressed, a little bit nostalgic and the snowy Christmas sort of Massachusetts vibe is 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 really nice. And it's just it's a very patient and warm film with with, with its characters who are often kind of clumsily and messily trying to find a way to move forward despite having these very painful uh, pasts dealing with like abuse or mental illness or uh, losing a kid in Vietnam is something that 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 comes up and sort of like there's a mm -hmm. little bit of class anxiety in the film as well. And, uh, it, you know, it's not quite as mean as something like Sideways or some of the other films I've seen from Payne, like Election. Election is a very oh, yeah. spirited movie. Very. Um, but uh but, you know, any movie that allows me to spend this much time with Paul Giamatti just like smoking a pipe and, you know, get, drinking bourbon and farting and <laughs> just hanging out with a teenager and just calling him names and shit. It's it's very consistently um, funny 
And it's while being funny, it manages to also be very thoughtful and lonely. And some of those details end up kind of surprising you kind of later on in, in the film. Like it's he's, he's so good at being sneakily tender, but also being just like immature and 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 some and like hitting you in the gut sometimes. And yeah. so that's why the holdovers was definitely one that that stood out to me. And in a sort of similar vein of just like movies that kind of just made me, you know, feel it, you know, both. I there's something light and something funny about them, but just very sneakily kind of made me feel emotional. It was the new Wes Anderson film this year, which I ended up thinking oh, yeah. about quite a bit. And I'm I, I want to go back to it at some point, too. But it was uh, Asteroid City, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, had had more reason to be on here, actually, than the holdovers, just because it's also like, you know, like not only is it another one of his, you know, funny and sad, intricately handcrafted like diorama movies about a collapsing family unit and a drama about divorce and death and the precocious kids. It has all that stuff that you're used to seeing in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a gorgeous like mid-century, like pastel 50s sci-fi retro future, like desert kind of uh, aesthetic with the whole like meteor element and the nuclear bomb anxiety element and Jeff Goldblum stops by briefly as a stop motion animated alien. So there is like a B (laughs) sci-fi element to it in terms of like design and texture, which I thought was really neat and a little bit different for him. Yeah. Um, but uh, as he's been exploring recently with things like the French Dispatch, there's a level of kind of nesting doll meta reflexivity to the to this film. In this mm-hmm. case, like a the, the the whole like sci-fi element of it is actually a play that exists within a play that ex- exists within a broadcast of, <laughs> yeah. of the entire thing. And you know, which I could I think I could find some people finding a little bit distancing or a little bit confusing. That was kind um, of how I how I felt about it in, in a way. I, I think that like aesthetically this thing is incredible. I love like the the yellows and the bright oranges and all of that like because of the desert. Um, and I do all love the billboard all the signs and, and it, it looks like they exist in like a cartoon universe. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, you know, love the deadpan. I love like all the actors and actresses that he chooses to work with are fantastic every time. I'm just finding myself a little distance from his, his previous, his past two previous movies where it, it's kind of this meta you know, play within a play. It's almost like uh, the, the the stage itself is, is he's commentating on like the stage itself and all and all of that. So I just I yeah. feel a little more disconnected than I do with something like the Royal Tenenbaums or um, uh, the uh, the one in the ho- the Budapest Hotel. That's that kind of stuff. But I think it's still fantastic. He's a great filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really like I, I, I totally get it. And I for some reason, there's just something about how he's kind of letting us in on the process and like sure. where these kind of sad, painful feelings are coming from and how the characters are kind of almost getting sick of being put in these plays and having <laughs> to do these things over yeah. and over again. There's there's something about the tableaus and wrestling with the construction process itself. And and that is um you know, it's it, it's I've been finding it actually kind of moving seeing him almost like not quite maybe critique himself, but at least think about it while still doing the great ensemble comedy stuff with all these great actors and doing great gags. And there's you know, there's lots of stuff to to like if you just traditionally like uh, his his aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it, it is interesting to see him like uptake ideas and anxieties about, for example, these 
characters wrestling with the great mysteries of the cosmos and aliens maybe coming down in existence and, you know, turning them, mixing them with his sort of comic melancholy familial farce stuff that he that he does because mm-hmm. like Jason Schwartzman is also here playing a you know a recently you know uh, I, I think the wife is dead or it's hard to say whether is it, a, is it a breakup because of death or is it a breakup because of divorce <laughs> they're almost interchangeable in Wes Anderson films yeah um it's usually where they all start, though, um, and and so you have a little bit of a distancing auto critique kind of kind of thing, but you also get like a dancing little stop motion animated Roadrunner in the film, and you also <laughs> get like some of the atomic paranoia of how people uh, feel when they've experienced loss and in, in in this kind of way. And I recently rewatched the film Rushmore this year, which maybe was why it worked so well for me mm. because it's one of Wes Anderson's best movies. And I haven't it's all seen about that Jason's one yet, actually. It's so good, and I highly recommend. It's almost like for me, like the the key to kind of like unlocking everything that he's done in a way, because okay. it's Jason Schwartzman, uh, who's also the lead in Asteroid City, uh, playing this like precocious, like genius asshole student named Max Fisher, and what Anderson has basically acknowledged that it's a stand-in for him in his own childhood. Um, okay. And it's a kid who, like, very clearly, he's so precocious, and he he's already declared himself a genius, and he's really annoying, and um, he can't really. He's very clearly dealing with some like some real hurt and and heartache at home to deal with his family life and everything like that, and he has no way of. And he's forcing himself to, like, as a result, be more involved in the adult world and adult conversations and with his teachers. And he's kind of trying to romantically pursue one of his teachers in the film. And he channels all of these feelings into, like, these little plays. And uh, it's I've just I found that so informative because in this case, Schwartzman is once again being asked to play a playwright. And at one point in Asteroid City, it actually, they actually stopped the film dead to say, where, and Jason Schwartzman goes, I don't understand this play that I've written. And Adrian Brody comes up to him and he says, yeah, it doesn't matter, man, just keep telling the story. And <laughs> I just found that such like a heartwarming moment of sensitivity and doubt from, from Anderson, who it's sure, like, yeah. you know, I've constantly been this guy who's turned my feelings into plays and... You know, I don't know. Do, you know, and finally, he's kind of stopping and wondering and thinking: Do I keep going? It mm-hmm. Is the, the future is so uncertain? Like this almost has the same kind of uh, apocalyptic f- uh, future paranoia that we saw so much in movies this year. Of yeah. like, you know, like I just talked about it a bit in the Miyazaki. I'll talk about it a little bit uh, later on with one of the big films uh, for for me as well. But so much of this is like, what do you do when the future is so uncertain? Um, and uh, yeah. In, 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 in this case, you know, we'll, it's, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Clearly, you know, something, you know, you're, you're in, you're hopefully enjoying part of it and you're feeling something for it. And I don't know, I found it really nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I, it, it is one I also wanted to tackle again. I only watched it once and I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the, I'm getting used to his new kind of meta quality of his work. Uh, and so I, I want to retackle it. Um, but my next one is uh, The Killer, directed by David Fincher. Um, yeah. This one, I, it's like I, I understand some people's preservations of just saying like it's a very, you know, generic script um, that Fincher's just kind of punching up. And, and I mean, in a way, I would agree, but I, it just totally works for me. I think that his precise digital style works so well with this character and this, uh, and this, this script that it just, it, it ends up, uh, 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 propelling it a little bit more than, than your standard, like DTV, uh, thriller that I think that this normally would belong to. 
Um, but essentially, it's just about a, a hitman that uh, has a, a botched job and he goes on the run from the people that hired him. Um, and it's what the interesting part of it is that you're constantly getting this narration from him, this first person narration where he's telling you what his philosophy is and, and what his rules are so that he can get the job done in a very precise way. But everything that you're seeing him do on screen is the exact opposite of what he's saying to you in the narration. And that it's constantly interesting to watch him adapt, but still try to keep a cool head and still try to keep this philosophy intact that he's been doing for so long because it does kind of appear that this is the um, in fact actually he outright word outright says it at a certain point that this is the first botched job that he's had so you're you're watching him you know be forced to get out of his calculated mindset a little bit and I thought that that was really endlessly fascinating and and fun um, and I do love that it's very procedural in the in the sense that Fincher, he shows you like the fight sequences and stuff like that and, and him killing people and, and, and all that. But a lot of it is also um, just very precise movements that he's doing, whether it be just parking a van, taking the keys out, putting them in, back into the rental box, uh, picking up an Amazon package to use to kill somebody, things like that um, is I thought very important to it because even though it's very blatant, they do, they have a lot of very blatant uh ad placement in this they kind of use it in a tongue-in-cheek way where it's like mcdonald's is fueling this killer you know amazon is giving him the tools to accomplish his job of murder so i i, I kind of ended up really appreciating that it ended up working for me um but yeah i think fassbender is very good in this a very cold calculated character that still is able to find uh, some humor every once in a while, very dark, very deadpan humor, uh, and I think he does a great job at that. So um, yeah, yeah, I would I would highly recommend The Killer. It's a it's a Netflix film, very easy to access. So check it out. Hell yeah, I'll be talking about it a little bit, a little bit later on. Nice to set set that up. Uh, my number ten is uh, When Evil Lurks. Hell yeah. Directed by... Uh, That'll be a Demian, little later uh, for me. Just Rekha. a little. Okay. All right. Um, but it is the uh, latest horror film from uh, Argentine filmmaker Demian Rugna, whose 2817 film, I believe, Terrified, um, was, a, was a neat little... Um, you know, sort of paranormal investigation, sort of like haunted Argentinian suburb um, film that had a lot of very lean and mean sort of like exorcist and J-horror style like possession set pieces. And mm -hmm. it was done in this kind of like overlapping sort of anthology context. And it was an impressive little scare machine uh, that that put When Evil Lurks kind of on, on the map for me when I was at the Toronto Film Festival this year going to the Midnight Madness program. But uh, he he really did take the best qualities that he honed in that uh, that film, particularly the kind of like grim confusion and kind of despair that comes with characters finding themselves in a situation like this where they're being forced to just like witness their family being torn apart and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, and, and I found that he really managed to cohere it and channel it into uh, just a true old school Euro horror uh, movie framework that recalls like, 
you know, the the surreal and tangible manifestation and descents into evil of like Lucio Fulci with like his Gates of Hell trilogy, stuff like City of the Living Dead or The Beyond or House by the Cemetery, stuff, stuff, hmm. stuff of that era. And uh, he basically takes this uh, simple sort of like farming village narrative where two brothers are investigating the sort of like torn in half corpse of a of a cleaner, uh, which is like a member of the rural community with skills to rid a rotten or possessed body of a demon. It's almost like a, you know, functionally sort of like a priest who could go and get rid of a of a demon. Uh, who they think there is one nearby trying to like give birth to itself. And some of the pleasures of this film is just seeing kind of like Ar- Argentinian folklore horror and seeing yeah. how, what their vision of possession looks like. And the fact it's so funny that it's like such a tangible thing where it's like, it needs to get into your body and then birth itself through your body um, yeah. in like this, that it almost looks like a disease where, you know, where you're covered in like boils and you might like explode suddenly or anything. So either, either way, these two brothers take the body to the outskirts of town and dump it um where where they can and uh obviously that goes wrong and it starts spreading the infection across the town and into the suburbs and you know and and what transpires is kind of like a series of geographical shock and gore horror set pieces that are just brilliantly executed and like you know and and some of them are you know really so nasty that it's funny like there's a child rag doll dummy effect in this movie that made me like almost jump out of my seat um (laughs) and but it but it also just does have such a commitment to its haunted miserable almost like dusty horror paperback kind of mood to it that it that it 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 really sets up and there's some nasty animal horror there's some like fable like axe murders in it there's some vehicle carnage that uh takes a place in the film and yeah it it, it it almost started to recall like a Romero movie in that way where like the characters are constantly trying to like flee the apocalypse and like Dawn of the Dead or the crazies or something like that but yeah. it, they just keep getting stuck in these situations that are just like completely guilty and doom ridden and just like inescapable and, uh, and that's so the element. So mean So mean spirited. It, it, <laughs> it is and it like the, the back half of the movie really is just like the, the two two brothers just like reacting in pure confusion and shock (laughs) at just how awful and perverse the destruction being visited upon their, their families is that they just can do nothing um, to, to defeat. And there's, again, there's, I, I, I won't spoil all of it, but like there's a part where one character is like picking brains out of another character. Like it's uh, like with their hand, like it's like Turkey stuffing or something. And Mm -hmm. there's a whole, bit involving uh school and and children that reminded as we went over in the bonus transmission it reminded us of a film we've covered on the podcast the spanish horror film who can kill a child oh yeah uh, which is like a very grim bloodthirsty movie where you're practically cheering on a dad unloading a rifle or an uzi into like a bunch of children or whatever (laughs) um so like it's it's a fuck them kids classic obviously and yeah it's just it's, it's very apocalyptic and um all about the grim sort of like rebirthing process of like a, 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 a demon. And it's all just, it's so based on duration and inevitability and just making mm-hmm. you feel really horrible. And, and uh, I, I just really have to respect that there's a horror film that's kind of working at like that tempo and that pacing. And uh, you know, was in, it is just, it's, it's not like a, a winking cult movie recreation of an old movie. It's just plainly being, a movie like that and uh i i I thought it was great 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's a, it's a little further in mind, but um, we will get there. Uh, yes, yeah, so this is number oh, yeah. 10, I believe, right? 10. Um, this is uh, Thanksgiving, directed by Eli Roth. Hell yeah, um, this was one that also just barely got cut off that I saved. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I just, I ended up having a surprisingly incredible time with this. I just had so much fun. I wasn't exactly sure if he was going to be able to balance uh, the the kind of comedy that he's doing with actually giving you a kind of intriguing whodunit slasher. And I think this fuses it very well. This It, it very much reminded me of uh, Scream, uh, just in the sense that they have that, you know, it's a, it's a mass killer on a certain uh, uh, holiday. And, and there's, um, it, it just... But but it has all this commentary that's very much Eli Roth. I would say with Scream's comedy, it's a little bit more grounded. Whereas you can kind you can very much tell that Eli Eli Roth is poking a lot of fun um, at the at just the 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 style itself. Like having um, it, for, I'll just give you an example. There's there's one part where it cuts to one of the kids in class. Um, and this is after a, a murder's happened, and he's reading a an essay incredibly passionately, but but obviously just full of shit. And he's like, "And that's why I will never celebrate another Thanksgiving again." And and he's probably and he's speaking on um, the relationship of the pilgrims and the natives, and. You know he's he's acting all sad, and then he lifts up his shirt and to reveal this like insane eight pack, and these two girls just start like comforting him and going like, "Oh, it's okay, it's gonna be fine." So it, it does feel very much like um, a parody at, at certain times, but then when he dives into the horror elements of it, it is just pure Eli Roth grittiness. I mean, it, there's a ton of gore, um, it, it, and it's so over the top that it is funny. Like it opens up. With uh, uh, the opening scene is fantastic because it's actually not a slasher. It's just watching a mob kill every each other, but with like a slasher style. So when someone's being trampled by the Black Friday sales, uh, you know you're seeing like actual heads and eyeballs come out as they're being trampled by a bunch of feet, or there's a jagged piece of glass that's come uh, that's sticking out from the broken window as people were forcing themselves in, and it cuts some guy's throat. And the I like the hair you know, getting caught in the grocery cart and scalping Gina Gershon yes. from uh, Showgirls. Oh yeah, like it's just it's it's insane. And what's funny about it is that that kind of creates the uh, the whole premise of of the movie where. Um, you know, there, there were certain people that were in that Black Friday sale that, you know, the killer feels like it was kind of their fault that all of this chaos and murder or, or I guess just killing, uh, needless killing happened. Um, and so it, it does, like I said, it does a good job of kind of balancing the comedy and the horror. Um, and yeah, it just reminded me of Scream and it, it was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Roth is back yeah. full force. It, it is crazy that Re Eli Roth doing an adaptation of his own parody trailer from yes. the Grindhouse movie in 2007 about a Thanksgiving theme slasher in the same vein as like all the Halloween and Christmas theme slashers is like an actually good movie. It's it's really surprising. Like like Eli Roth has been like I like I I like Eli Roth and I generally am warmer to him than other people are, but Me he too. hasn't been on his best uh he doesn't have his best record right now. And sure. this was easily like the best movie I've seen him make since like Hostel 2, just yep. in terms of like doing his goofy, mean, bro-y kind of political satire sensibility and merging it with just like pure nasty assholishness. Um, yeah. And I think one of my where, favorite aspects of it is the fact that he just 
He takes every little thing, every like piece of iconography that you'd have from Thanksgiving and just makes it into a murder fest. Like at a certain point, you know, he's collecting heads and certain body parts to create the Thanksgiving dinner of the people he thinks are at fault. Uh, He's he's literally which is actually a a reference to um, cooking her happy birthday the movie happy birthday to me, which is like kind of okay. like a pretty underseen right. slasher where it's like a, 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 someone sets up like a birthday party to kind of look like this big, like sort of like table setting tableau of just like, you know, orchestrated bodies and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like, like Eli Roth knows his, his, his movies. So despite the joke movie origins of this, he does get that screen balance, right. Of like clearly stuff on the page is like, it's winking and it's funny and it's, you know, it, it is almost a parody, but he is directing the actual sequences and the actors as if they were in like a real earnest movie. Yes. Um, yeah. it's so, yeah, the thing yeah, about so yeah. the like almost exaggerated parody stuff is almost like side characters, which makes You'd think that that would create this kind of uncanny valley thing, but it doesn't. It almost just feels like uh, it, it, it feels like these characters are used to this exaggerated world, but they they have to take it seriously because all of the horror aspects and the violence is very realistic looking. Oh yeah, the, the, I mean that's the thing you go to a Roth movie for. It's disgusting. Yeah. It's squirm inducing. It is very much a throwback to like the torture porn era of just like gore and and sadism and like practical blood and like dummy like the, the level of like screen intestines and like neck twists and scalp tears and <laughs> yeah. you know just like wet sounding stabbings and all kinds of in, in, inventive kill. My my fa- I still think that the uh, the final destination ass kill of the parade uh wooden stake smashing mm-hmm. through the back of that guy's head and coming out the front of his face and him just like bleeding all over the kids in the car and so and like <laughs> th- that's what defines eli roth is like the yeah. gag cut back to the kids who are screaming and having blood squirted on them yes like that that, that, totally. that kind of mean spirited gory detail is for me what roth is all about you know it's not just like you know, the, the eventual table dressing climax where they put the turkey on the, you know, which is one of the character's wives who he's actually cooked in an oven and, <laughs> right. and everything. It's fucking gross. And he chops her leg, a piece of her leg so that they can eat her and stuff like that. It's obviously it's disgusting. Yeah. But the Roth element of it is when the one character sees it and he vomits like through his gag at <laughs> yeah, the sight of it. Exactly. And you're just like, uh, you know, it can't just be like, he, yeah, he always has to take it a step further. That has been classic Roth. And, and, and that is at a certain point what people I think dislike about him, but that's always what I respected about him. So yeah, there will be no leftovers. And he's like <laughs> smashing a fucking dude's like head in and shit like that. It's just, oh, yeah. it's, you know, and, 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 and I will say he does a good job with the Craven style, like nineties cat and mouse filmmaking craft intention of the actual um, totally. set pieces, like the steady cam movement and the framing and stuff. It was very cool that when he was shooting this film, he, he shot this in, in uh, like near Toronto. He shot it, I want to say in like Port Perry or something like that. So he's in Ontario, uh, which is why there's so many hilarious Canadian as Boston, Boston accents in the movie, oh, which yeah. is just something that you'll either hate or find charming about the movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, he he came to a screening that I was at on a print um, that made its way into the movie because uh, we were watching Mute Witness. Oh, yeah. Um, which yeah. was all, all like 
very 90s-esque, like, widescreen sort of, like, suspense filmmaking. Um, and uh, I actually saw in interviews that he said, like, going to that, like, helped him inform some of the visual vocabulary of how he, like, moved the camera around, you know, like, the killer chasing people in certain sequences in this. And, like, the, oh, yeah. the moments where, like, you can see the killer's mask, like, in the background at a focus. And it's kind of a blink and you miss it kind of moment. And, yeah. like, just paying attention and using screen space in that way. It's just, you know, it's it's nice to see a slasher made by someone who knows the history of these kinds of movies and cares enough to put that level of craft in it. Cause like this and sick were so much better than like either of the rebooted, like actual screen yes. movies we've been getting recently totally. like by a lot. Well that, yeah, that, that was something I think that jumped out at me. I was like, I got to watch my scream movie that I wanted, but it was just by Eli Roth and it was Thanksgiving. <laughs> so yep. um, I, I, yeah, that, that was partly why I, it also really, really worked for me was I, I got the scream movie. I, I didn't get before. So yeah. Number oh, yeah. 10. Well, there's our bonus transmission on it. Cause we never got to do it. <laughs> yeah, true. True. <laughs> All right, my uh, my number nine here is uh, Master Gardener. Oh, dude, that's mine too. <laughs> Let's go. We Let's can do go. that one together too. I love when this happens. Me too. That's great. Jamie yeah. and I get to both be. We get to knock out number nine together. Uh, yes. Paul Schrader's latest uh, quasi crime revenge movie. Uh, I was gonna say a pick exclusively for me, but apparently not. Uh, this is a. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie's right up up here with me. Yeah, I felt like this um, one. I mean, because I get there's a lot of uh, it, it's a much slower movie for Paul Strader. Even though I would say like there's a lot of uh, meticulous and there's a lot of uh, meticulous qualities and slowness to the card counter as well. It's just a more with with all those flashbacks that you get with the card counter. It's 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 a much more obvious um, genre film in a sense. But what I really got from this is like the the suspense that's kind of built with with unraveling his past and then eventually we do get to some outright crime moments um so but but i do love how patient this movie is yeah and i i mean i i said earlier in the year too that i i do think that for like other like how many people are going to have this on their year-end list is uh, probably pretty <laughs> i don't think small. there's going to be too 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 many um because you know it's just it's hard to imagine this does anything for anyone outside the specific circle of paul schrader devotees yeah. like jamie and i and even when i saw it in the theater there were like multiple it wasn't even that many people and there were multiple walkouts at the movie that i saw it at <laughs> right. which to me is always a sign that the man still got some juice left damn um, straight <laughs> And, and and Master Gardener, for those who don't know, is, you know, kind of the, the I mean, who knows how many more of these he's going to do. But it, it's kind of seen as a little bit of a, uh, you know, forming a trilogy of late style Bressonian portraits of lonely, regretful, violent American men who are sort of confined to their the existential crises that they're having in their austere rooms, including films like first reformed and the card counter. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just so bought into this entire project of this like <laughs> purgatorial too. space that Schrader is in and that he's trans. And I, I love that he's sort of transformed these movies that have such a genre concept to them. And normally would explode in a sort of like violent genre context, but he's just so such a changed man from like yeah. the sort of like hateful young guy he used to be into someone who is like wearier and warmer. And it's kind of made its way into his um, character studies, which in, in this case, the heart of which is the kind of formal control over the routine of the 
titular sort of gardening of Joel Edgerton's former neo-Nazi turned witness protection informant who is like literally trying to turn over a new leaf, uh, which is depicted with a sort of sense of romantic sort of meditative spaciness. It's meant to kind of highlight the rejuvenating and healing beauty of plants and labor Mm -hmm. and the sort of time and care and attention this kind of work needs in order to flourish. And it's a premise you can tell he liked metaphorically because it's like an ancient elemental relationship and something that occasionally requires violent pruning, uh, which we do see later in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And uh, but I don't know, there's something that's just been so affecting to me about this kind of mode that he's in where he just he used to be so venomously angry. And there's something so kind of relaxed and great and 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 graceful and kind of like seeking absolution and less so in the sort of bonding, cleansing violence and doing more so in this kind of contemplative um, way that we see uh you know more more recently and the only thing i could imagine for some people i don't know you know like some people i think might argue that the protagonist in this one is given not quite as much of like harrowing existential weight or or punishment because when we start the film he's kind of already made a lot of his transformation yeah and he's actually a lot of this movie is about him actually trying to help someone else get out of a bad situation in a sense but it's uh, yeah and when i say get there it's in a different context because this is a, a a black woman that he's um kind of uh I guess at first just learning how to uh, do the job itself and then eventually kind of falling in love with. Yeah, um, well, and, and, you, and you can see him being, pre- like, premise-wise, you can see him just being, like, a provocative little shithead. The old course. Paul Schrader sure. we all know and love, man, where he's like, what if I give, like, the most irredeemable background of, like, any character I've ever had? Like, a guy who actually is a neo-Nazi murderer. <laughs> right. Um and and then have us, you know, not reveal that until a little bit later in the film and kind of save it as a little but not quite a twist. But like, you know, we really get the full depth of it when we get the first shot of like the tattoos on his back yeah. and we see all of that element. Whereas yeah. prior to that, you're like, oh, this is just a nice guy delivering voiceover about you know, like writing in his journal and doing gardening on a plantation. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's small little details like the buzz of smelling flowers is sort of like the buzz of pulling a trigger. That's where yeah. you get like the, oh, what is he? Oh, and, and Paul Schrader, he fucking loves that shit. And he loves <laughs> like he loves the idea of like this character finding forgiveness by doing like a plantation, like Lolita fantasy where he, Mm -hmm. there's like a young zoomer black girl that he gets into a relationship with. And he's like, you can almost hear him being like, you got to let love grow instead of hate. And, you know, and, and there's, there's part of me that if anyone reads the film that way and just can't get past that, I kind of get it, sure. But yeah. I think that his movies are actually are just so much weirder and so much more interesting. And there's something kind and inelegant and kind of optimistic about this that I just really took mm-hmm. to. There's something fable-like about it. I think Ed- Edgerton is really good, and whether yeah. it makes political sense or not, I think. Trader genuinely believes in this vision of like an alternate life being possible for someone if they are just like willing to put in the hard hours of dedication to yeah. actually becoming something else or to help someone else. And yeah, and yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of a beautiful idea and, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's just something that, you know, has really stuck with me about this film in terms of, uh, 
the way that it moves and the way that it sounds. I, I really do like the song that it ends on. Oh, yeah. The, me too. Uh, the I it. never want to leave this world without saying I love you, which when I first heard that, I thought that was Paul Schrader saying that <laughs> himself, <Yeah. laughs> which he kind of made it sound like he was. But then it turned out that he just really loved the lyric from the song and put it in the movie and everything, too. And I don't know. There's something interesting about watching the guy, the taxi driver guy still writing the same character, but trying to actually spend time with him and find an out and find a happier ending for him that has really stuck with me. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I, I think it is very complicated because of the, the past that he gives this character. Um, the way I saw it was kind of just like after you're seeing him at this point in his life, when he's gone through the kind of the self-reflection and I'm sure the very painful burning of the dead wood inside him, metaphorically speaking, um, I, I, it, to me, it seems like this kind of character, I said it in my one of my first reviews, but it's, uh, it's like after being nurtured by hatred, you can either change or die. And it feels like Paul is giving this character at least a chance to change. Um, and it, it seems like if, if we were to have to just have it in a, a black and white stance of, you know, this type of man or character either just dies or changes and does good for the world, I would like to think it would be better for him to change and do and try to do good for the world. Um, as, as impossible as that may seem like there is, that takes a lot of, you know, empathy, uh, and sympathy that I don't necessarily, it, even maybe it, he it deserves. Does. And, but, and, and, yeah. And, and one thing but, you have to give Schrader, I think credit for is how openly confrontational he is actually about the Nazism. Like he yes. doesn't try to be like, Oh, he's kind of one of the nicer ones who got in by accident or something. Yeah. It was like, he shoots no, a dude he, blank in the face. Like it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like so he, he's, he's done incredibly horrifying racial murders. And so he's establishing that. And so I can understand someone just being like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to be challenged by that. Cause I, I get it. Um, but I do think that if you're, if you're looking at something this ugly, it, it's, it's either change or die. And I'd rather someone be able to have the capability of changing, even if that is impossible in the, in the real world. I mean, this could be just, you know, a film fantasy in a sense, but I think that this that is the, idea this is, is an very old, powerful. Old man film fantasy, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that idea is very powerful and very beautiful. And even though maybe I don't wholeheartedly believe in it, I would like to believe in it. And I think that that says something. So I think Schrader, I, I, I love Schrader. I think he's just a, a master. So, yep. Yeah. Number nine. Hell yeah. Uh, my number eight is uh, following up with with Paul Schrader, uh, a longtime collaborator and friend, Mr. Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That one's a little later uh, on mine, but I mean, yeah, top top ten for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is Martin Scorsese's uh, true crime uh, sort of like Western sort of epic adaptation of David Grand's shockingly detailed and deeply depressing account of uh, the reign of terror, which was the deliberately plotted gruesome murders of oil-rich members of the Osage Indian nation in 1921 through 1926. It's a really 
a great book, um, a nonfiction book about, you know, these, you know, this, this, uh, the, the, the Osage people who were nearly, um, run off like 100 million acres of their ancestral, uh, land and, you know, given instead the sort of like small slice of property in Oklahoma that was deemed, I guess, like rocky and infertile, uh, not knowing that it had a huge oil deposit beneath it resulting in, you know, them getting leases and royalties that turned them into some of the wealthiest people, uh, in the country and as a result there were just hundreds of like essentially you know uh, racist murders uh that were sort of like orchestrated by um you know sort of like local white people who were trying who were really upset that they you know these people had nice houses and nice cars and things that they didn't have and uh, many of them were uh, orchestrated by a prominent and corrupt local white cattleman and businessman um named William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro in the film, uh, and a bunch of web lackeys, uh, including his impressionable World War, ridiculously impressionable World War I veteran <laughs> nephew, uh, Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who he managed to uh, actually persuade to marry and have children with local Osage, uh, Osage women, um, uh, like Molly, mm-hmm. uh, played by, uh, why am I blanking on this Lily right Gladstone, uh, I believe. Lily Gladstone, yeah. that's right, from... Um, uh, certain women and uh, first cow, very great actress. Um, yeah, really good, and so good in this movie too. Um, yeah, and they uh, depict uh, the sort of elimination of of her family in in the film and the sort of kidnapping and shooting of one of her uh, older sisters and the you know slow poisoning of uh, I think another one and and her mother uh, Lizzie and another sister who had like a bomb planted in in inside of her home mm-hmm. all over the sort of like valuable head rights um, which could not be uh, bought or sold uh, which is why they had to kill them they had to marry into the families and actually inherit the uh, the the wealth that way um, and Either way, it's just an astonishing sort of like largely forgotten and ignored true story about just blatantly legalized like racism and corruption and yeah. sort of murder uh, with systemic implications so vast and 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 brutal that like it's it's crazy that this isn't like taught in American schools or, you know, it's crazy that we needed a Martin Scorsese movie and a David Grand book in order for some people to learn this stuff. Um, And it also just like naturally lends itself to so much of what Scorsese has been doing as a filmmaker for, for a little while and stuff that's been like swirling around in his mind for, for a long time. You do get a little bit of the economy of violence, sort of like mob movie stuff with the guys orchestrating these crimes. You do get the grand tragic sort of American sort of like Western. He's always talked about how, badly he wants to make a western like the searchers is one of his all-time favorite movies and he gets a little bit of like that idea of you know making a a a western specifically about sort of like racist institutions and racist cowboys i guess in a way um and then he also manages to make the sort of gothic marriage melodrama out of all of this um too Mm -hmm. um you know merging this material and 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 history with a kind of sort of procedural vision of grand's text which was more about uh like an fbi texas ranger cowboy uh by the name of tom white who was like i think at one point scorsese admitted the film was going to be about this and it was going to be like henry fonda and my darling clementine rolling into town and like solving a mystery and prosecuting the bad guys and all that kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. he at, at, at a certain point him and eric roth decided to rewrite this film and really, really wrestle with the sort of like, uh, 
the 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 ruthlessness of the sort of white supremacist characters and yeah. you know to really get you into the shock and the guilt-ridden nature the the sort of inward element of of this story really try to get you into the betrayal of trust and the poison sort of romantic tragedy between Ernest and Molly serving as kind of like a microcosm of the broader historical relationship between indigenous Americans and sort of white settlers. It's like, here's one example of how this went really, really horribly wrong. Um, and I think that he's done it, you know, uh, really, really well. The the book nerd in me, and we went over this a lot with the right. yeah, uh, bonus transmission. So I so if, go to that if you want to hear about some of my sort of like hesitations about some of the stuff to do with the, um, uh, you know, centering of the Ernest character over the Molly character because right. you know the, the the book is like really good at making Molly's you know, perspective just like so confusing and horrifying that I had to kind of adjust on my first watch to the fact that they kind of reveal the conspiracy right at the beginning of the movie and they go look at how like brazen and obvious and you know that De Niro and DiCaprio are are being about you know really infiltrating Lily Gladstone's um, family and slowly poisoning and killing them and latching themselves onto it almost like vampirically right? While acting Um, like they're just another part of the community there's actually a love between the two being that close with with somebody and then that's what you're doing to their actual immediate family like it's just I understand it kind of how why he went to that perspective but yeah there's a little bit that you you almost want a little more from from Molly's perspective because of that yeah so it, it focuses just more on a character who was like a blank slate who we didn't know much about because you could tell that Roth and Scorsese as guys who you know they they wanted to do this material they wanted to move it away from the fact that it, it's not like a white savior cowboy Texas Ranger movie but they're like we're also not like you know we we don't have an indigenous perspective that's not who we are so they were like let's make it about the sort of like the weak Catholic man who's tormented by his own sins and I was like yeah that makes a lot of sense for Martin Scorsese. And, <laughs> yeah. and it, it does lead to some really incredible sequences. Like I've, I've talked about it before, but the sequence where Ernest is like, he's poisoning Molly through so much of the film and he can sense the suffering. He can sense that something's wrong. And he, so he actually poisons his own drink mm-hmm. to kind of like, to actually try to under, it's a very Christian vision of like guilt and self punishment right. to, you know, try to try to do that and, and to Alleviate have him like sins. then, yeah and then to do that in the sequence while like the hellish like black sabbath dance is happening outside of robert de niro like burning his ranch down for the insurance money it's just it's so greedy and so evil and the mood is so is 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 so um well done that uh despite my misgivings that maybe a master filmmaker you know what felt a little plagued by doubts and hesitancies just because of the massive nature of the material and whose story it is and yeah. you know like i i i, I told Totally, you know, uh, I don't I'm not saying I'm someone who could have done it better. Um, <laughs> it just there's there's there is a little bit of an element to me, which is why it's not quite as high um, on on my list. But I mean, yeah. what I'm not gonna, I'm not going to put Martin Scorsese in the top 10. It's just not going to happen. The guy, his worst movie is probably a top 10 contender in a <laughs> yeah, given year. For real. <laughs> like, I just I don't it know what I don't believably you know, talented. You know, and and as far as taking on a particularly barbaric and racist piece of foundational American colonial history, this is grief stricken and it's all about, you know, how complicit we are socially and economically even today. And, you know, it really does combine 
foundational sort of cinematic imagery that no one on earth has better encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of the Westerns and crime films. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's great. And there's a yeah. million things that you can say, I, a special shout out to the Robbie Robertson score, which is haunting and mournful mm-hmm. Thelma Schoonmaker, whose editing is always incredible. The legendary production designer, Jack Fisk, who fucking did like there will be blood in the early Terrence Malick films. It's it, the little, the, the set and the recreation is, of the, you know, the sort of historical location looks amazing. Uh, Rodrigo Prieto's photography, gorgeous. The dude's a, the dude's a master. And I, I do plan on um, rewatching this and seeing if my feelings change and even become more uh, positive in, in the future. Cause that's definitely happened. And I have found myself, I will say thinking about the, uh, the ending of the film a lot, which yeah. I, I, I won't spoil the exact details of, but, uh, it really is Scorsese acknowledging as, uh, Jamie was kind of mentioning with red rooms. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a certain limitation to true crime and, uh, what we can actually do with it. And part of this whole project is him acknowledging that even if he tries his absolute hardest in some ways, he's still kind of making a tacky corporate sponsored, uh, entertainment product. And Mm -hmm. whether that can actually do historical justice or not is, uh, you know, it's uh, unclear. Yeah, he's still got to make that money at the box office. <laughs> That's <laughs> Which right. Unfortunately, I don't think he did, but I think Scorsese knows full well what he was doing in that department, in a sense. But well, that's anyway. just it. You, you have to you have to think of it a little bit as they the whatever Apple spent two hundred million dollars, and half the time when the, these streamers spend that much money, they just don't even give it a theatrical release at all. So as far yeah. as I'm concerned, this is just money they would never that Netflix just doesn't get yeah. on their big movies. So yeah. you know, totally. does that make it a huge bomb and a failure? failure Failure for them when fucking uh, what's whatever what was that Ryan Reynolds and The Rock and Gal Gadot movie that didn't play in a theater yeah Yeah. did did that make zero dollars at the box office then it cost more than the Killers of the Flower Moon yeah for (laughs) real and that looks like garbage Um, but yeah anyway I I agree fantastic film I'll I have it a little bit uh, later in my list but um uh, my number eight I believe is a dream scenario directed by Christopher Borgley Borgley. Um, starring Nicolas Cage, uh, Julian Nicholson, and Michael Sarah. Hell yeah. Um, so this, <laughs> this one, I ended up watching it twice. The first time, I, I unfortunately kind of had a, a very distracting movie theater experience. and it was. Really I wanted to hard. ask you about that. Are yeah. you going to talk about it? There's, there, uh, half of it I can talk about, and the other half okay. I'll have to tell you after the, uh, after okay. the show. <laughs> Sorry, audience members, but it's just can't, can't put somebody under the bus too much. Um, but the, I, I did have a, a bit of a distracting just audience in general. It felt like... I don't know, people, I think it's the Nick Cage-ism thing where it's kind of like, it's Nick Cage so I don't have to take it as seriously and so I can kind of just Mm. talk and laugh at inappropriate times. Nick Cage meme watchers, which the movie is directly addressing in its subject matter, but. Exactly, exactly, which is, I mean, I will say that, you know, me sitting there and them having that reaction at times and having the film directly kind of talk about that was an interesting thing to experience. I will say kind of, it it was meta in itself, but it it, it was um, distracting nonetheless. But so I was trying my best to engage with it. And this film I find is very strange um, tonally uh, and on purposely. So it kind of goes everywhere from like comedy to, uh, to, to, to horror um, to much more of a, 
it has it has drama, but I guess you could you could kind of kind of call it a, a dramedy in a way. There's also a bit of a, a romance quality to it with him and his wife, and kind of what he yearns to once have with her. Um, and so the, the, it, I found the movie to be hard to latch onto the first time, uh, even aside from some of the stuff that I was just distracted with. But the second time through, I really uh, did start to to kind of connect to his um, performance itself. I mean, Nick Cage, he is well aware of the the memification of Nick Cage, like you just said, and he mm-hmm. was even commenting on it in interviews and saying like he he found that he kind of lost himself. He didn't really know how people were interpreting his art and his work anymore. And if it was all just a joke, if that at at a certain point should also be flattering just because people are still taking on his performances and, and it's, it's still meaningful in a way. It's just not exactly what he was trying to do maybe. Um, And so he kind of wrestled with that and brought that to this character, which is very, it's a man that's going through this weird phenomenon where everybody in his community is dreaming about him. Um, but he's kind of just this very passive character in their dreams and he's not doing much. So he becomes famous just for being a man that everybody recognizes, but he's not famous for any specific thing except for just being that man. And at first he kind of takes on that fame, uh, with a little bit of like excitement. Um, he is very nervous about it still. He's not like a very outspoken man, um, or a very confident, uh, person. He's, he is a, just, he a just wants to write his a, book about ants, man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so people start to try to take advantage of his fame for for monetary purposes, and he's trying to do kind of the same, but to propel his book instead or advertise his book instead of just his fame itself. But then, of course, it's about him um, uh, getting used to that fame and kind of enjoying it and embracing it, although he's not very good at it. There's a lot of complications to it, but it, uh, essentially, it's kind and of and then just getting milkshake your- ducked. That's the premise, <laughs> yeah. which is hilarious. It is it is hilarious to think that the like the it is a meme ready premise for a movie that Nicolas Cage is a neurotic, pathetic, like Charlie Kaufman style professor who suddenly is like basically Freddy Krueger and can infiltrate people's dreams and everyone's dreams every night, which eventually turn into nightmares and people get freaked out and yeah. they start trying to obviously kind of like they hate him Distance and try to themselves. cancel him in the sort of like public, you know, the, yeah. the, the, it's a very online kind of ready movie where, yeah, it's first everyone loves the, the nerdy professor who's in our dreams. And then it's like, everybody hates him and we should destroy his life. You yeah. know, like and that's it, the, <laughs> and, and, and I do think the, um, I, I did see a lot of people, commenting on the actual uh the the stuff that they're saying about cancel culture for me that seemed more of a like a surface level thing where it was just the idea within cancel culture whether or not the person deserved to be canceled or not it's kind of just it's out of their hands at a certain point and i think just it's like letting go of how people perceive you is a very difficult thing to do and to handle Um, and, uh, especially when you think that you have maybe done nothing wrong or you're an innocent person, but then at the same time, those reactions and the way that you handle them can kind of dig yourself a little deeper. Like there's a moment where, you know, you feel for him in a way he is just going through these, he's in these dreams that become nightmares in which he's killing the people. So they like his friends and family and all of his community are scared of him. So you understand why he would be like, this has nothing to do with me. You're just dreaming about me. Um, but then the way that he reacts, you know, it, it becomes a much more um, selfish kind of a uh, 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 only benefiting himself. It, at a certain point, he just goes online and starts like just 
having a mental breakdown and saying like, this isn't my fault. I'm actually the biggest victim here, which you could probably the, argue yeah, maybe the, the, is. The apology it, is the funniest thing when he records the video and they go, dude, that's just makes you look so much worse. Much worse. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, and that's it. Yeah. And I think that his just lack of understanding on how to navigate these very, very rough waters are, um, are very interesting. And then it kind of turns into a more personal thing by the end, which I won't uh, spoil, but it's b- between him and his wife that I thought was really both sad yeah. and, and beautiful. So I, yeah. uh, I, I, this is one that honestly, I've been thinking about it even after the previous time I watched it just a couple days ago. And I, and the first time I watched it maybe a month ago. Um, and it seems like something I'm going to come back to, uh, a couple times, honestly, cause I think there's a lot of, a nuance within it and especially within Nick Cage's performance. He's, he's fantastic. He's firing on all cylinders. It's great. It's every aspect of Cage that you kind of want. Um, but I do feel like he's very grounded. It's not like you don't actually have a lot of the Cageisms, and the, and the stuff that he is doing that's within that is actually very true to his character because his character has some like kind of eccentric quirks to him. Um, just the way he delivers lines and stuff, but it's, I think that this is a very, just, just a very grounded performance from Cage, considering what the film is about and what they have him do every once in a while. Yeah. Um, considering the premise of the film was the director going, wouldn't it be funny if Freddy Krueger got canceled? Like that's yeah. I, that, that we'll seems that like Cage. where the movie was born from. <laughs> yeah. And then Cage so. read it and it was like, dude, that's I, I, I totally see how I could put this. my own. Yeah. Yeah. Like my own, my own feelings about losing control of my image and sort of self perception. And he talked about like watching the Nicholas Cage loses his shit, like meme video. And yes. he was like just completely out of context, making him seem like a bad actor who didn't, right you know, didn't, didn't make deliberate choices to get to that space and him just feeling like, is this, you know, just again, just completely losing control. And part of it is being like, am I kind of a vain asshole for thinking about it that way? Should I just appreciate this like attention that I'm getting? And there's a whole thing in the movie where they try to like be, see if he'll like sell Sprite in people's dreams. (laughs) And like some of the comedy is like quite, mean-spirited and almost does get to the point where they're like you know they're like well now you're a right-wing culture war you know discredited ac- ap- academic yeah, overseas no mainstream will like, touch you so you just have to go to the to the like uh yeah the culture war people now <laughs> even though he doesn't I, I want do, to he just has they, were, to. they were like dude we can dude we can get you on tucker yeah, you know, Obama's not really an option anymore, but we can get you, you know, an interview with Tucker Carlson. Yeah. And, and I just love Nicolas Cage's extremely whiny. I don't want to be controversial, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man, his his he that's the thing, too. He has a very good understanding of like you, you kind of want this character to not be going through this this hell that it turns into. But then he adds little nuances like the whininess and that where you're kind of like, OK, man, like. Shut up, though. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. So it's, yeah, uh, yeah I, I really enjoyed it. I, I yeah, it's a very it funny good. movie and Cage is very good in it. And it was so, it was really close to it was that was one of the honorable mentions that I skipped because I figured yeah. it would be on your list. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, my number uh, seven um, is uh, Godzilla minus one. Nice. That'll which, be a little uh, later for me. Oh, even higher for you, too. Yeah, okay, let's go. Um, this was, this was one that I was surprised at how much I, uh, at how good it was. And I was stoked that I got to see it in, 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 in IMAX. It's the first major release sort of like Japanese studio Godzilla film, I believe since Shin Godzilla in, uh, 2016 by, uh, um, 
Hideaku, uh, Hideaki Anno, who did uh, Shin Kamen Rider that uh, Jamie was talking about earlier. And that one was this very sort of like post-Fukushima, sort of like bureaucratic political farce reworking of a traditional Godzilla sort of disaster movie uh, mm-hmm. scenario. And um, this one uh, is was seemed more hellbent, um, I guess, with director Takashi Yamazaki uh, on delivering a much more sort of like classic and unreconstructed take in terms of sort of narrative and in terms of um, design. It really does harken back to like the original World War II time period, the original kind of amount of screen time that Godzilla gets. It really is a like a, like a human story first, and Godzilla is just kind of this like dispassionate, unnatural force that kind of yeah. stomps around and is used more symbolically. Um, and but but the set pieces are so fucking good. The opening one is like this Jurassic Park style one that's like all stomping and biting and, you know, Godzilla grabbing people and throwing them through the air and stomping on planes. It's this ground level sort of like island point of view set piece. It's it's very menacing. It's very loud. And uh, it, it, it it sets up this story about a um, uh you know, this very sort of like downbeat post-war period drama of essentially sort of like living in the ruins of of World War II. So it's not as much about sort of like the nuclear anxiety or the environmental anxiety and sort of existentialism we've seen more recently with Godzilla. It is really about this orphaned kamikaze pilot who, you know, was only on that island because he couldn't, like, go through with the suicide um, mission attack that he was supposed to be on. And the guys kind of started to realize that he was a coward and he was pretending that his um, his plane was broken. And as a result, he, you know, was there to watch a whole bunch of people get killed. And so he kind of deals with this sense of sort of failure and cowardice and feeling like he's been shunned and like he didn't carry out his honorable, you know, job that he would duty that he was tasked with doing, uh, which, you know, obviously we feel a little bit different about kamikazes and suicide missions uh, now than we did in the 1940s. And I like how much of the drama really does reckon with that that you know that he we see him forced to you know he can't really do any work in a in a post-war setting except for this really dangerous mind sweeping we see him attempt to like rebuild a home and sort of build a family with with this woman and this child that he kind of brings into his house and actually starts putting money into the house and trying to literally rebuild and figure out what a future might look like beyond the horrors of Mm -hmm. all of this war and destruction and so so much of the movie is that but it's also a fantastic old school action Godzilla movie. So yeah. there is so much destruction visited upon these characters. And I love how often they go, it's a dinosaur like monster. And you know, like <laughs> I just love the, the, the way that they're kind of dealing with him for like the first time again, or yes. like just like hearing about him vaguely through like legends and stuff like that. And there's a whole bunch of amazing set pieces. One of them, is an excellent sort of like mind sweeping cannon fire boat chase uh, yeah. where the guys are like literally like trying to throw a mine into his mouth and blow it up with a, you know, like a, a sort of chain gun on the back of a boat. There's a very old school full city sort of demolition sequence that almost feels like straight out of the original film where he's like yeah. picking up train carts and knocking buildings over and the design of him where they are, they, even though he's CG, they do bring back some
some of that like man in a suit physicality a little bit totally. and, and where he's he's a little stiff and he's a little awkward and, it's, and he it's has beautiful. my favorite physical detail of it was that he has the classic kind of dopey smile that the old Godzilla always had just because it's like the, yes. the way the mask just kind of was and and it it's so amazing because they'll have shots of him uh, like looking directly into the camera before he's about to destroy something and it looks like he's got this evil smirk on and I, I love it every single time. Yes, it's 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 so good. And then they'll also throw in like more what feels like a very like modern moody shot, like the fact that he destroys that whole city. And it and it is like you're watching people fucking die. Like oh, it's yeah. like a brutal like it's a full on disaster massacre type scenario. And you get like characters like screaming as like ash rain is falling on their faces and stuff like that. And uh, it, it, it eventually all builds to a uh, the, the the pilot um, getting a quite movingly conceived sort of second shot to redeem himself via of a very straightforward and really well done and rousing men on a mission final third. And I, I, mm-hmm. I watched it with my buddy Alex and we were both briefly mm-hmm. concerned that it was building to him getting to do the suicide mission <laughs> and being like kamikazes were good and I'm glad he finally got to kill himself for the for <laughs> God and country or whatever, you know, and briefly it kind of feels like it's building to that. Luckily, it doesn't quite. Um, There's a good uh, little twist on it. Yeah, it does a little twist on it. And uh, the actual men on a mission final third is just great. Like there's a yeah. there's so much attention paid to some of the side characters like the scientist character named Doc or the sort of interlocking procedural sort of military sci fi logistics of what they're going to do to actually take Godzilla down, which is this whole elaborate thing involving gas and balloons that I can't, I can't even spoil because it's so ridiculous. Yeah, um, yeah it's awesome. And, uh, and and I will say hands down the best use of the original theme uh, of oh, yeah. Godzilla, the music, the, uh, the, the score in, I don't know how long. Yeah. I, Cause I, I mean, maybe it's cause I was watching it in IMAX with like a packed audience, but man, you could feel people being like, let like people head bobbing yeah, to being like, look at these guys. In. Yeah. Look at, look at, you know, look at these guys oh, fucking yeah. going in. They're going to take Godzilla down and the buildup and the payoff of the, like the teamwork mission filmmaking is just incredible. Um, and, uh, so I was, I was stoked that there was like a brand new, like genuinely great Godzilla movie this year. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's a, it's a little, uh, further in mind, but I, I totally agree. I, it was, it was so just lovely to love a Godzilla movie in theaters. It was awesome. I got lucky too. Cause I'm, I moved to my, uh, smaller, hometown and we don't get everything but i just looked online one day and they just happened to have godzilla there for a few days and i was I well was it was so slowly excited. expanding it was making so much money they were putting it in more theaters on a yeah, weekly basis here which was incredible to it, see it's a great sign if it's coming to chatham ontario let me tell you that so i'm, I'm glad <laughs> i'm glad that it is um yeah so this is number seven i believe number seven yes cool so my number seven is uh, when evil lurks directed by oh, yeah. uh, Demian Rugna. Um, yeah, I don't have too much to add. I just loved how absolutely mean-spirited this thing is through and through. It's completely relentless. Um, it has some of the most, again, memorable fuck them kids moments I've seen, especially in in, in modern age. Um, Josh already mentioned it, but you straight up see like a six-year-old get ragdolled by a, a big pit bull and then dragged down a neighborhood uh, sidewalk. And it is just 
it, it is harrowing. Like it, it is absolutely one of the most violent, uh, depraved, just um, blunt things that I've seen the the entire year. Uh, and I, so I, I have nothing but respect for that. Um, I just love how it, it feels. It feels like a hopeless, hopeless film. And sometimes that can feel a little bit, uh, I don't know, like too much. But th th there's something about the style here that I that I really enjoy. All of the color is just like washed out completely from everything. It feels so much like it's just it's just like browns and grays and piss yellows and vomit <laughs> colors. You know, like there's just there's nothing to latch on here that's that's beautiful. Um, and I, I, I love that. So yeah, this was my, my number seven. Um, I actually got coming up a, a few horror movies in, on my list here. It seems like I kind of liked all of these, uh, around the same. So yeah, when evil lurks, check it out. Uh, my number six is, uh, knock at the cabin. Me too, dude. Let's go. Let's go. We can, another one we can do together. This happens sometimes. Hell you know, yeah. We're, we got some brainwave connections going on. M straight. Um, M Knight's back, baby. Not that he ever went yeah, anywhere because I mean, old was awesome too. So, yeah, he's on a roll. Jamie and I are like some of the few. I mean, I'm. I've got. This is why partially why Jamie and I are are, are friends. We, uh, <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, there's just something we are just in complete total agreement on that we feel completely baffled by the rest of the the world. Uh, <laughs> you know, so yeah, the rest of the world's relationship. Because this is another one. This is a. This might be our one of the lowest rated movies we're going to include on the list because it yep. has a two point nine on Letterboxd, and yep. I'm just like baffled. I am too, um, especially this one seemed like it was a, a lot more um, like like an easier accessible film uh, for him. He's not doing that much experimental stuff. It's a pretty straightforward, I think, intriguing premise of just uh, four strangers coming to uh, a couple in their uh, daughter's house. And they're just like, it's the end of the world and you need to choose who you're sacrificing to save the planet. And it's just a matter of of trying to prove that they're right and and trying to find that trust within each other that that's actually the case and it's incredibly suspenseful has a lot of great uh, mystery elements just to the unraveling of the narrative and I, I am shocked that people didn't like that dislike this I thought this would have been a home run for him and a, a really easy easy one for people but yeah and gorgeous like shot on yeah, film oh, yeah, shot by looking. uh using 90s lenses for like the those like classic sort of like off kilter sort of like thriller looking uh you know sort of distortions and the wide angles and and things like that and you know shot shot by like robert eggers the cinematographer who did like the lighthouse and like yeah. the witch and stuff so i, I kind of okay. figured that like People were going to be more into this, but I mean, it, it, it as always, it's just it's M Night's uh, sentimentality and his Probably, sense of yeah. um, drama that really just I feel like un, undoes it for people because you can see so many of his career long interests of just like you know a, a family being put through sort of like this sort of chaotic tragedy and whether and and stuff to do with sort of like faith as well and like you know I thought a little bit about signs um, where sure. it's like do you choose do you kind of accept this reality or th that could be supernatural or does it like reaffirm your faith or stuff like so many of the things that he's kind of dealt with through his entire career but I really did think that doing it in a more sort of tightly conceived and constructed genre context would be something that people would you know kind of latch on to because it's, yeah. it's part home invasion thriller it's part sort of like religious zealot like cult movie which mm -hmm. gives it a sense of anxiety to it and then it does eventually go genuine biblical like apocalyptic disaster or, horror stuff yeah. 
you know? So, yeah. and, and, and I, I get it. Like, you know, as always with Shyamalan, like emotional cogency does sometimes outweigh sort of like logistical ones for him. Sure. So every so often you kind of have to just buy into a big swing that he'll take with about, about a character like, yeah. um, uh, like, like the, the, the detail of like the one, uh, dad getting, um, uh, like hit really hard in the head and concussed. And it's like, is he having a spiritual reaction and, mm-hmm. or is he just like sensitive to light due to his concussion and stuff like that? And, you know, every once in a while you really do, you know, just kind of have to go with it. And I think if you, if, if you did, I found this like really exciting and, and, and menacing and, and the time frame aspect of it, uh, worked, worked really well where it was like, yeah, you have like a couple of hours to make this decision. And every time that you don't, like one of our guys is going to kill themselves to prevent like an apocalyptic thing yeah. from, from, um, happening in the outside world. And at first the family is obviously incredible, incredibly distrustful, because right. they're like, why should we even believe you? And are you also one of you is like someone who com- at one point committed a homophobic hate crime against one of us. So mm-hmm. how do we know you're not just like torturing like a gay couple who has an adopted daughter or, you know, and uh, yeah, it's it's it's, you know, it. I I thought that this was, you know, really sharp. Um, yeah you know, really harrowing and the sense of uh, feeling like your sort of safety and control or your space is kind of being invaded by a force. I found really powerful, especially when Dave Batista is the physical representation of that force, but also playing really kindest, most gentle, sensitive person that you've ever seen. It's one of my favorite performances of this year still, because he really weaponized his physique in a way that makes him feel imposing and dangerous so much so that you are really left unprepared for how kind of kind and rational of an actual character he is as the guy who's delivering this proposal or this binary decision that they feel is obviously absurd and very unnaturally um, violent. And they go, well, we're, we're not going to kill our daughter and we're not going to kill one of one of us to to do this. We would rather all be alive and the end of the world happen than than do that. And all of these characters are each taking their turn, like begging them or demonstrating their belief to them yep. of being like, you guys really need to make this choice. And then the sort of questions and doubt and fatalistic coincidence start to build up from there through the actual uh, thriller um set pieces which yeah. is yeah just r- really really well done and eventually builds to a theme that i was talking about again about this sort of like uncertain future aspect um where it, it, it does kind of have a bit of woundedness about this idea of yeah like the, the world might be apocalyptically ending and you might be having a kid in a world where they aren't gonna make it so is it worth just killing someone off so that they can live comfortably or, you know, we are kind of put in an unfair world with an uncertain future and it's forcing these two dads to kind of have to, um, wrestle with that. And, and credit too to Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge. I thought they were great too. Oh, Uh, how they react. They really sell Um, it well, especially all the nuances and complications when it comes to the, the sacrifice that they're eventually going to have to, or possibly going to have to make. Um, and specifically with, I think it's, I'm trying, I got to just 
double check, not Jonathan Groth, it's uh, Ben Aldridge. Um, his character going back and forth with uh, Dave Batista about the 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 logic of it all. Like, well, he starts to like break down the timing of everything. He starts to break down the news stories that they're showing them. They're like, well, this could be pre-recorded, and just that back and forth that they do until things are completely uh, unveiled are are really compelling. And um, and I just I, I thoroughly loved this movie even from the beginning it, it was very easy to love i think m night is just incredible uh and i i hope i don't know it's weird because i thought this was going to be the movie that people got kind of back on his team with um and i i just it's not that he needs it i'm thinking that he'll be able to make movies and it seems like at this point he's just making whatever he wants but um well I he has a great deal with people- universal where he just keeps he, he keeps his budgets relatively low and they keep making money like this was still yeah. this was still a, a pretty solid That's- hit for him uh i think what's wild too is that they keep making money because m night Shyamalan's name is still the sell like you can go and be like i'm gonna go see the m night movie but oddly enough it's become this very middle thing where half of the people are going because they genuinely love his style and what he does and then half are going to see if it's a train wreck and i'm just i'm hoping that people get more on team m night over the next few years you know but uh yeah it's it's fantastic check it out if you haven't it's awesome yeah, and we did a bonus transmission earlier when it when it earlier in the year when it was still fresh too, where we we went into a lot of the stuff that we, uh, you know, uh, really really liked about it that I'd I'd, I'd recommend as uh, as well. Yeah, yep. Um, I still I still think about that scene with uh, Batista that slow zoom on him when he's like reciting what the news broadcast is saying or whatever, like confirming that it's like all true and oh, all that yeah. stuff. And, yeah, so that good. is it, it, that is a really great moment. Um, yeah, just just very like skin crawling in a way because you you start to realize what the truth is in that it's it's really good. I agree. Um, yeah. So that cool. was both of our number sixes, right? Yep. So we're moving on to five. Did we did did we have it happen again? My number five was John Wick Chapter Four. No, no, this not the same we one did for not. me. So go ahead. Uh, John okay. Wick's uh, further in for me. Okay, that's I mean, yeah, I mean, I I knew that this was probably going to be a top five um, for for both of us, because, yeah, I mean, it's it's I don't know what else you can what what else we can say. We did a long bonus transmission on this one as well. Everything you need to hear has been recorded, (laughs) but but it's fantastic. Oh, my God. But it but it but it, it has been amazing to see this franchise go from like John, the original John Wick, which was, you know, historically it was almost a direct to video movie. Sure. Yeah. Um, Even in its style, it feels that way, too, regardless of the success that it took on. And and now the fact that this fourth one is just like a globe trotting epic. Yeah. Uh, that just yeah, that just like the you know, like just decades of genre style and just like pure action movie worship monument. It's just it's yeah. it's really crit- kind of um in- incredible that they've managed to, you know, just maintain this style of impeccable detail oriented action craft. Um and, you know, doing this whole sort of like bleak, mournful revenge movie tone, doing the bloodthirsty sort of like gun foo that's like staged in a way that's very, very uh, entertaining and sort of gleeful and continuing to expand this world of just the economy of assassins and how it operates in almost like this old school, like samurai influenced codes of honor and the discipline of warriors and you know, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, um, you know, doing that in the martial arts and the stunt craft and, uh, you know, 
clearly taking inspiration from Hong Kong and from sort of silent era uh, filmmaking and managing to make that all fit into this like production design element as well, where it's all like ancient architecture and neon synth wave lighting. And so, you know, he's he's through the second one and through the third one and through the fourth one, like Chad Stahelski has really. I think began to form something that is, is, is kind of, um, uniquely, uh, his own. And I've just been, I was really taken with the fact, cause I was, I will say after the, like the second one is probably still my favorite one. The third one I really, really, uh, like, but I was starting to feel the wheels spin a little bit. And I sure. was like, dude, I, we, we're gonna, <clears throat> you can't just, you can't just keep having him deal with this every time. You're going to have to come up with some sort of ending for this. Yeah. Um, and so I was really, really stoked that the fourth one, you know, uh, maybe p- they heard people cry fatigue a little bit or something, but they were like, let's <laughs> kind of try to wrap this up and let's actually <laughs> Let John do Wick it. rest. <laughs> yeah, well, and, 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 and I mean, it's, it's hard to say that you, you know, you, you kind of have to argue that fatigue is built into the mood. Like the character is tired. The character yeah, yeah, has right. been straining for, for this long. Like it's, you know, it's, it's just the, 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 so much minute physical progress being made by this character, uh, to just like keep ending up in these like never ending rippling cycle of destruction, despite all his like Herculean effort to it, to escape this world. It's, it really is just like an abyss. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, despite all my wariness of where these movies were kind of going, uh, I was pleasantly surprised by John Wick Chapter Four, which I just thought had a level of scope and commitment. And it just it, it really earned every sort of like movie nerd reference it was making. Like this is one where John Wick practically goes to the Lawrence of Arabia desert and gets into gunfights. This is one yeah. where they, they full on recreate a sequence in, um, France, uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, Walter Hills, the warriors where John wick is literally being chased by like an entire radio broadcast of people hunting him down. They're doing a whole thing to do with bond and a little bit of Sergio Leone where there's this whole like central trio dynamic of bounty hunters who all respect each other, but are all cutthroat and in the same business model that it, and it literally ends in a fucking duel, yeah. a fucking hand to hand duel, uh, straight out of a fucking Leone movie. So I was just like, the fact that he can do all of these things and I'm not like rolling my eyes being like, dude, you're not those movies. This is like, I it's, 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 it's impressive. And the location yeah. work from Jordan to Germany to Japan, to, it's, it's gorgeous. The, you know, the, 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 some of the uses of some of the supporting actors like Ian McShane and Lance Reddick, who obviously passed away and uh, Sonata uh, that come back are, are, are very good. And the new characters like Bill Skarsgård as the fancy lad asshole and Rina Sawayama as the, um, the, the, the dot Sonata's daughter at the, uh, sort of like the, the Japanese continental. Um, she's very good. Um, fucking Scott Atkins in a fat suit fighting in like a, an, an ax waterfall nightclub, uh, Shamir Anderson who shows up with like his high tech, like Western repeater rifle. Like they're it, it, like the, the Scott Adkins doing the sort of like Batman crime boss, like Sammo hung routine was, it was incredible. And I'm, how am I forgetting Donnie Yen, the fucking God doing like Zatoichi, like blind fighter physical antics while wearing a turtleneck and sunglasses drip throughout the entire movie like it, it is it's it's a really really um 
just fit like it, it for me it, it it really was the like action movie of 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 the year it was the movie that really stood out in terms of its style in terms of how big in scale it's getting and the fact that you know they 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 really did pull off the fucking firing pistols on horseback in the desert the you know the 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 the, the final 45 uh, minutes is maybe the hardest in the entire fucking franchise um where you know they they do the um uh the sort of interlocking set piece that is like the the just the logistics of him like getting to the church for the flintlock pistol tool and the the chaotic like frogger level that he does at the arc de triumph and the fucking the hotline miami dragon's breath shotgun i'm just remembering all of this shit now <laughs> like it's fucking crazy. The, the Buster Keaton like stairs sequence, the fucking the 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 Barry Lyndon actual duel itself. It's just like, man, like this was like I actually watched this at like a not packed noon screening and people were still fucking hyped on this movie. Um, and uh, it, it, ha- it has really stayed uh, stayed stayed with me. So John Wick chapter chapter four, number five for me. Uh, all right. So my number five is uh, Saw X directed by. Kevin Grutert. Um, so yeah, essentially, the reason that this one made it so high is because I am just an absolutely massive fan of the the Saw franchise, and I do think that this film really captures everything that the that the films do well and what I love about the films. Um, it does have Kevin uh, Grutart coming back, uh, like we said, and he's the one that did uh, Saw Six. He did do Saw 3D, uh, so we can forgive him for that. That's okay. We forgive. Yeah, you, he directed Kevin. three of them, but he's also edited nearly every single That's, one in the entire um, series. So, like, yeah. this is like the 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 studied saw expert is who we needed to revive this franchise from the kind of clean kind of you know uh, the, the new era it's been in that hasn't quite been working for it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He just has an understanding of how to like. <laughs> the kinetics of of making you absolutely disgusted th- through these traps all of the all of the zooms and the the weird pans that it does as they're like shaking and and you kind of see the, the the multiple figures of them shaking because of how like faded it and it, it all is um, I really love the editing style and I'm glad to see that it's just back in full force um, uh, Kevin is is thoroughly doing his thing on this and I and I love that and then also bringing back Tobin Bell who you know he, he dies in kind of the the mid um, uh, saw entries but um, he's, they always find a way for him to come back retroactively by usually having a bunch of pre, uh, taped recordings of himself because he's such a mastermind that he's planned this for like 20 plus years and, and all of that. But what's nice about this is that it's based between the events of saw one and saw two. So you actually just get Tobin bell on screen being jigsaw. Um, and what they do with this one too, is they kind of leave him completely unmasked. Like they, they get rid of the whole it's not that they don't have the pigskin mask to to capture people, but because he's working with Amanda, who is also coming back, um, uh, he, he's more able to just be freely Tobin Bell Jigsaw. So he gets to actually act and uh, have all of these really amazing deep voice line deliveries that he's so good at. Um, and uh, it, it has everything that you want. It has the twists and turns. It has the the build up to some finale where they have a ten minute monologue of explaining every twist and turn you didn't think was coming, even though you know it to is. Ten seconds earlier, yes. to sh- <laughs> yeah, to remind you of things somehow you didn't remember. Yeah, just just fantastic stuff. And and it was fun for me as a huge soft fan and someone that is constantly like deconstructing these movies as they're going. 
to see those things and go like, oh, I can't wait for that to be in the flashback in the last <laughs> 10 minutes. And and honestly, nine times out of 10, I was completely correct. And I had a blast with that. So I just think that this captures a, uh, a very uh, a, a true form of what a Saw movie should be. And um, we haven't it's had dirty, a great one It's in rusty. A while. It's squirm-inducing. Oh, yeah. My <laughs> brother said that he was feeling absolutely nauseated uh, watching this thing. And he, he just... That's told right. me while we were watching it so it was very funny. but also tearing um, up for the I'm, I'm assuming the terminal illness drama that the movie starts as <laughs> of course. for most of the movie yeah they're really like that's the thing is they make tobin bell to be technically kind of the the good guy and it's very and and you know there's always that stupid philosophical question of like is he really a killer because he's not actually killing them which is dumb of course he is but but to just give you that sentimentality 45 45 minutes of it um, which still includes him fantasizing about killing certain people before he actually does the 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 traps is just I I think it's it, it understands why people love these movies um, as perverse as that might be and and I uh, yeah. I love it they, they love do it. push as far I, as they can making Jigsaw the protagonist of the movie and having you identify with his bloodthirst which they which you know Kevin experimented a little bit with in the sixth one when he was killing like health insurance executives who were like screwing people over yeah there was a little bit of revenge element to it in this case it's the experimental sort of like medicine scammers who defraud terminally ill patients like him and yeah just watching him then put them in just the nastiest possible traps and really fucking like chopping limbs off forcing them to do it with like the wired pulleys people using intestines as fucking ropes at one point in the movie it's just just a disgusting little movie they're the types of traps too that like every single trap has i would say four or five layers to it and each one is you're sitting there just like one of those layers could have been the trap. This is just outrageous <laughs> with how much you're making them do. And what's great about the the way that they uh, show you every single trap and it's every single one. You think that like if there's five people, you'd think one out of the five would get it done in the first minute rather than every single person never getting it done. And you get to see them until the tail end. Like they, all, every single person almost gets through their trap. And it's just so that you as an audience member can see what would have happened throughout the trap until inevitably they die and it's just so cruel and mean-spirited and gratuitous and i love it so uh yeah that was my number five yep and uh jigsaw bonds with a little child by bloodboarding so he's a father figure as we know yep and a hero yep damn straight (laughs) can't wait to see more of them can't wait (laughs) all right my number four is Ferrari, uh, a kind of last minute addition that I was happy to, um, you know, get get around to uh, la- last minute here. The new film by Michael Mann opened on Christmas Day. So and we're recording this only two days after. So I, yeah. I had to see this one fast. Um, but I, I, I really did want to want to watch it because I knew that even though it was a, you know, a, a biographical film about, you know, the uh, as they put it, the automotive mogul. Enzo Ferrari, who, uh, you know, behind the Ferrari uh, brand, behind the F1 team, behind the cars, obviously, uh, I, I, I knew that there would be some element of it where man would have to get in that obsessive sort of death drive engineer element he always uh, gets into his films and he did not disappoint. 
This has all the level of craftsmanship and sort of psychological portraiture and sort of operatic romanticism you kind of expect of him, and uh, it, especially of a project that he's been trying to get off the ground for literal decades. He first uh, had uh, got involved with this prior to Heat in the 90s, and for obvious reasons that this you know character almost does work as self-portraiture for him as a sort of technician as artist and uh and uh he, it has all of the sort of elements of the sort of personal life threatening the professional life that you even saw him explore in the 90s with things like heat and the insider mm. it almost feels like a little bit of a spiritual successor to those films even more so than his more sort of recent digital experimentations and for a lot of people who have maybe been getting annoyed at the digital experimentations <laughs> like black hat or public Public Enemies, um, which for some reason are the only movies he's been able to get funding to get made in the last, like, basically, like, 20 years, practically, other yeah, than my advice, shame. I guess. Um, you know, this one is going back to that 90s era for him. It's a little bit more elegant. It's a little bit more classical in, in, in approach. It has a sense of sort of nostalgia and a little regretfulness to it. Um, and uh, Adam Driver is playing Enzo uh, Ferrari and is apparently, I guess, maybe now going to be in Heat 2, maybe even playing young well, De Niro yeah. because man liked working with him so much and he felt that he was like a really committed actor. That's great. Um, so that that's kind of exciting. And, and Ferrari is seems like a, a, a pretty cool little test run. I hope it kind of works out for him because it's, uh, you know, it's just it's it's a very um, bleak drama. I'll put it. I think there's a lot of people who are going to go into this on Christmas Day, especially being like, <laughs> we're going to go watch a biopic about like a really successful man. And it's going to be also a motorsports drama where there's going to be lots of <laughs> the guy's going to win races and is going to save his company. And, you know, he's going to he's going to and and to be fair to those people, there are elements of that in Enzo Ferrari's life and there are parts of it in this film. But what makes this movie so man is that he really, really does condense himself to uh, three months of Enzo Ferrari's life in Modena in 1957 when he had already retired from racing and it was fully committed to just being on the engineering and manufacturing side. And, um, when he was dealing with a very sort of transition period in his life where he had had a son recently pass away and he was having an affair with a woman who had another son for him who was kind of replacing that son. And there's a, he sets it up with a prologue where they show you Enzo Ferrari in like the 1910s or 20s when he was this really romantic driver and it's Adam Driver really young smiling racing having a great time and in 1957 he's just a very different man he's hardened he's repressed he's hiding behind his you know he he wears his suit and his sunglasses almost like armor and all he cares is about serving the egotistical kind of progression of his brand and the logic of you know the power of the engine and the beauty of it and there's so much stuff in it where you could just literally like hear man reading the dialogue like himself it almost sounds like it's him yeah or you know you have adam driver saying shit like two objects cannot occupy the same point in space at the same moment in time <laughs> and like this is why you need to learn to pass and why you need to break later and why you need you know <laughs> he's teaching all of his drivers 
that kind of uh, animalistic determination you have to have to actually be good, how cutthroat you need to be, uh, and how fully concentrated and kind of violently expendable you need to be in order to push the relationship between man and machine truly to its limits. And so, like, that's so much of what this movie is about instead of... And, and it's it's kind of just a more unsympathetic portrait of this character, of this guy who had so much success in his life, but it's so much like, what's the tragedy and what's the pain that kind of got him there and it is so much more not about winning races and winning podiums it's like how many racers did he kill you know that's so much of what the movie is about or this identity crisis he's happening where his past self who used to be warm and loving and had this family you know due to the loss of a child he has you know that heartbreak has just made him a harder kind of more cutthroat more detached person which is what made him good at being a businessman so that's kind of the diagnosis that man is kind of going through movies I thought about where like Martin Scorsese's The Aviator the depiction of Howard Hughes in that and the like obsessive drive that he has but Mm. also specifically that plane crash sequence in that film i don't know if you remember that the one where it's like super bloody and he lands in the field and how just you know fragile we are in these like metal death boxes that's kind of the depiction of like race cars in this where it's like yeah you can it's it's a metal fucking box that you're gonna die in yeah Uh, it's a it it is a coffin that moves at inhuman speeds (laughs) that's the idea so that's so much about what this is. And yeah, so I, I, I won't spoil, uh, you know, where it ends up going like specifically, but like the fact anyone who goes into this, knowing the history of the race that it's building to will, uh, I, th- their stomach will be churning watching this movie. And anyone who doesn't, we were, were already hearing, sh- you know, reports of people being kind of shocked in the theater about where this movie is going because it's it's just what is uniquely man about all of this is that he really is not he's not interested in the guy's successes he's not interested in the wealth he's not interested in in the passing of the racing because the racing is really cool it is all shot like digital cameras as you would expect placed into these super fast cars these recreations of the 50s f1 cars that were not safe at all and it's like literally in the cockpit where you can feel like the fucking like oil hitting the camera and you can feel the you know like one little hiccup where they nick a rock and all of a sudden they're a driver's fucking cut in half or something like that like all that element is uh is is in there and it just it builds to all that stuff in just such a downbeat kind of unsettling way and it is it is really kind of meant to be this uh this operatic melodrama about just you know a guy who at one point was a romantic racer and who eventually became a much more ruthless business competitor and uh that's what the portrait actually kind of becomes. And uh, I was uh, obviously really taken with it. And it's, it's, it's a, it was a bleak way to ring in Christmas for anyone <laughs> yeah. else who ended up catching totally. it. And uh, I would, I would highly recommend man is back <laughs> a bleak Christmas present from man. We love it. That's right. Um, <laughs> nice. Uh, my number four is uh, killers of the flower moon. Uh, by Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Kind of already covered it, but I, I did think, um, I, really for me, it was the significance of the story that I had no idea about. And I just think for Scorsese to be the guy to tell it is just perfect. I mean, he's just a, he's a masterful director. Um, he's a very sensitive and uh, uh, empathetic man. Um, and you can, you, and and although I, like we already talked about it, but focusing on, 
De Niro and DiCaprio's character, you know, there's some things that maybe get a little bit uh, put to the side that I would like more focus on. And that's maybe why it's not like number one uh, for me of, of this year. Um, I, I definitely would have liked them to to focus a little bit more on uh, Molly, Lily Gladstone's character. And just the way that you, Josh, uh, told me of the way that the book kind of operates with, its, the, with the narrative and how it uh, un, uh, shows you the information is a little more intriguing to me, but this is just so true to Scorsese and and his past and what he's done with with um, with narrative before. So I I think that although I understand the critiques coming from the focus of of the idiot Ernest, <laughs> um, I I do I think I I understand what he's trying to I do. I sure do love really money. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and Robert De Niro especially like his character. Be, he's so Fucking blatantly evil, evil, evil that any time yeah. he enters a room in that movie, especially after maybe like even the first, I think it's like because they like you said they they tell you the truth pretty much right away of what's happening. So the moment that he's interacting with anyone, you think that they're at the risk of being killed. Um, and that tension just automatically gets put into the scene as soon as his character pops up because he's just ruthless with with his uh, his disregard for human life. It's it's unbelievable. Um, and for that to be a true story just is is unbelievably depressing. <laughs> so uh, I think, but I think Scorsese uh, really does it well, and I like that he's still. Uh, we were talking about the ending with kind of this little. I don't want to spoil it entirely, but there's this stylistic switch that kind of happens with how he's telling the aftermath of the story. And I think it's a very good commentary on just how he can't, he can't fully express what he wants to express with this type of film, just given the industry that he's making it in and he's doing his absolute best to do so, but there's only so much that he can do. And I think that recognition is a very, uh, I think, I think it's telling of just how, um, how sensitive of a man he is and and really he does take the time to try to try to understand his his place in this that is i think mostly positive because of the story he's telling but he also understands that there's a little bit of exploitative factor in this too so um yeah i think it's i think it's fantastic though i i really wanted to rewatch it i only got to watch it once um and i just didn't have time it is three and a half hours so it was it was tough to get in again before the top 10 list but awesome so uh, my number three was a uh, kind of a a surprising one for me because I it was one of the last ones where I really did I was like does it count does it not count I don't yeah. know and I said fuck it I liked it it felt the same way about Ferrari where I just kind of turned off the 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 caring at that point because I was like it's kind of a sports drama whatever <laughs> yeah. fuck it you know I like it but but these are movies that are really high on the list for me and ones that I've been really thinking about and so one that I threw on here despite. I think people being able able to argue about mm -hmm. its inclusion. Uh, May December, oh, directed yeah. by Todd Haynes, which was um, you know the, the the new film by one of the sort of seminal filmmakers in the '90s queer film scene, whose uh, unnerving 1995 masterpiece "Safe" with uh, Julianne Moore as a middle class um, housewife who experiences a series of sort of like vague, possibly psychosomatic, like environmental illnesses, is like an all time favorite film for me, and has basically made him like essential watching for me since then. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, who since has made a career out of capturing psychologically kind of poisonous environments that his characters are, you know, painfully trapped in through sort of ambiguous formal suggestion, whether that's like the queer repression in something like Carol or whether it's like the literal systematic poisoning um, uh, of uh, in, in the uh, legal drama Dark Waters, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, another great movie that he did recently. Yeah, very good. Um, and in, in, in this case, he's done it again, but he's done it in such a strange way where he's taken on this very icky sort of agreed upon decades later repression of a foundational kind of transgressive horror that creates just this this uncomfortable off kilter haze out of Julianne Moore's uh, older actress uh, in this film named Gracie, uh, mm-hmm. and her very manipulative attempt to live in domestic normalcy with her own rape victim who she had sex with when he was 13, uh, years old, played by Charles, uh, Melton, a character named Joe, a, uh, a, a actual real life scandal based on, uh, a pedophile by the name of Mary Kay Letourneau, mm-hmm. um, which I would highly recommend if you've watched the film, looking up interviews with her to see her Ooh. say some of the exact things that Moore's character does on like live TV in this film. Oh, like wow. that whole thing that Julie, that whole scene Julianne Moore has of who seduced who, who's the boss, who was the boss when we were, you know, first getting together like that. She actually says that on TV. Holy um, shit. Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know how connected it was to, I knew, I heard that it was connected to a real case, but I thought it might've been more of like a general connection. Like it's, it's, it's just telling a similar story. I didn't know how specific it got to the, to the case itself, but yeah, some of it is, is just completely invented, but mm-hmm. the, the character is very much inspired right down to some of the details in her mm-hmm. dialogue by the actual woman. That's, um, it's wild. I, I do want to say, um, this, I, I agree that I think that there is an argument to be had that this belongs on the list. And this was one of my favorite movies that I saw this year. So in general, this would be like a top five for me. I just decided to just just spotlight a few more that were more in line with the like pure genre stuff that we usually do. But like this totally. May, December, I will say, especially as it goes, it, it, there's this like suspense that just kind of lingers in the air that never really even comes to fruition and it's and that is almost where the horror lies a lot of the time it's so off-putting just on like pure atmosphere exactly Um, and 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 also i will say it's like i mean some people have been calling it i guess like camp some people have been Mm. saying that there's something kind of um there is like a the, the, the true crime sort of like tabloid scandal element where it kind of turns it into briefly into like a, you know, almost a critique of like a lifetime soap opera duel where mm. it kind of makes the the, the, the the two women and sort of actresses um, in, in the film are kind of going through a bit of a psychodrama on their own identity and celebrity and sort of exploitative power dynamics. And, you know, Haynes is doing a whole bunch of that using, you know, visual reflections and a bunch of sort of pent up tension that kind of builds throughout the film. And I will say, like, there is a sort of satirical cynicism and, and, and humor to how kind of openly sociopathic and performative the uh, two, two women are in, yeah. in the film. Because the other one is Natalie Portman, because she kind of shows up as the witness of this, like, un, like obviously appalling relationship yeah. dynamic. And, and I love and her subtlety of, that, like, the distrust you have for her character, but it's not it's not nearly as obvious just given what Julianne Moore's character has done and you know she's done. Yes. But I love that it yeah. just like, like it's, it's genuinely difficult to watch 
like the Julianne Moore and and her her husband mm-hmm. scenes because there's just, there's such an obvious knowledge that we have of they may be hiding behind this veneer of like grown up childishness where like sometimes you know he has to play the domestic comforter to her who's yep. tearfully naive and pretends to still kind of be childish and you know uh, or or they kind of have to play the reverse where she's kind of briefly the overbearing mother to her husband in a weird dynamic yeah. because of the age gap and and either either way like it, it that stuff is so hard to watch that you in, you kind of intrinsically align with Natalie Portman who is coming in as the witness and kind of disrupting and kind of intruding on it mm-hmm. but over the course of the film and because Portman is so perfectly cast as like an overmannered, oh, like self-conscious actor, like I, people have been making the joke about it, but is like Natalie Portman just kind of playing herself and how she goes in yeah. and like researches a role or something like she feels so in tune with this character who is researching the Julianne Moore pedophile in order to make a biopic about her scandal. She's is all just like and find work research and for and her find truth. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. the, and then and, first and you're like, that mean, seems meanwhile, like there'd be sympathy or maybe some empathy there. And, 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 and in a way, I guess there is, but I won't spoil anything, but that, that truth becomes something incredibly perverse and just, yeah, just skin crawling. I mean, they let her in because they think that, well, more people hear about our story and there'll be more, you know, it'll, I think at one point he says, it'll be easier for you if like people like understand you know, understand you better. Who you are, and, yeah. And she's, and, and she's immediately offended at being like, it'll be easier for us, mm-hmm. you know, because he, he just implicitly separated her from him about, you know, who should be feeling guilt over what happened and all. It's fu- so fucked up. The relationship yeah. shit is so fucked up. Um, and, and Natalie Portman is not making it better by coming in and trying to like probe it and recreate this like lurid traumatic event out of one an almost like De Palma-esque like voyeuristic curiosity where you can tell she's kind of like she's into it. And there's a point where she actually goes to the location of the actual sexual assault and like starts like masturbating at the place and stuff like that. And yeah. well, I won't spoil the ending, but there's yeah, a whole thing not. to do with like a, like a, like a cheap entertainment quality that almost feels like body double esque in terms of talking like De Palma as well, where there's a little bit of just an astonishing kind of self reflexivity to it. That almost is also a gag. Yeah. Um, yep. And, uh, that ending and, and it's just horrifying. <laughs> That's all I'll say, but it's holy so, shit. <laughs> it's, it, it's so horrifying. And, and so is just Portman's slow reveal of how sociopathic she is about this yep. situation. Like that one scene where she's looking at all the audition tapes of the kids who want to play like the victim role of 13 year old Joe. Mm-hmm. And she's looking at them and they're going, yeah, these kids are all cute, but they're not sexy enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're just like, girl, are you here? And, and, and the lisp, the lisp as well and her trying to like recreate it oh it's uh, just like i this is one where i've been thinking about the details of it just over and over again as i've been watching it and i will say i think the most impressive thing about it and why it's so high up on this list for me is that it manages to do all of this kind of like really perverse kind of bleakly funny satirical like sort of true crime you know sort of lifetime scandal soap opera thing that it's doing and it does all of that without sacrificing the tragedy at the center of it all which is 
the the, the boy played by uh, I guess a, an actor from Riverdale named Charles Melton who I was so I was shocked at how fucking good this performance was and and he is tasked with a genuinely something I thought would be impossible yeah. which is making this character have like be realistic and have actual pain and heartache and so be so haunted by this experience that happened to him decades earlier and being and surrounded by Julianne Moore yeah, and, and just being surrounded by Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman's characters who are kind of being hammed up a little bit. Sure. And just being so just brutally sad in how these women have are, treat him and yeah. kind of exploit him and how, you know, sh- Julianne Moore did it decades ago and Natalie Portman is also trying to do it now. Well, actively trying, trying to like that be. she's not doing that and that, you know, there are yes. toxic things between his actual relationship that she's really just replicating. It, it, yeah, it gets so complicated. Yeah. So he, he, and, and his physical performance where he sometimes is like a scared, stunted child and sometimes he's like this weary old man with like the sort of like the the dad gut that he yeah. has and everything like that. It's it's just it's so it's so sad. And there's no scene that I've been thinking about more than the one where he smokes weed for the first time with his son on the roof. Mm. And it's his, his, you know, his, his son, he's only like 13 years older than his oldest son. Yeah. Right. Which is like insane. So they almost like there's, there's an age thing where it's they like, look like brothers and sisters, him to relating to his kids look like just siblings. Yeah. And, and she, cause she had one of the babies in jail too. It's a whole fucked up thing. And, um, and the, when, when he smokes weed and it, it hits bad and he freaks out and he just starts confessing how just uncomfortable and horrified he is by this situation and this environment that they all kind of implicitly ignore and repress and that we're experiencing through Haynes's recreation of it. And he just like cries in his son's son's arms and, and, and goes, I can't tell if we're connecting or if I'm creating a bad memory for you in real time yeah and it's just it's such an unreal piece of acting and staging and yeah it was just like this this movie kind of blew me away so i i needed to put it on the list yeah i agree i think it's amazing i really think it's incredible haynes is the man uh my number three is a godzilla minus one um i just oh yeah i thoroughly loved the the way that they use Godzilla. I think it was very cool to kind of go into a more classic time period with Godzilla, but then modernize it with the CGI and kind of change it from, even though I love the horror aspect of the, of the original, kind of change that into more of an action movie, um, but still using some of the classic Godzilla design and kind of just the way that the, the narrative operates. It seemed uh, a, a little bit more in line with the classic stuff. Um, and I like though that they switch, you know, the differences in the action from the first one to this one is kind of like, it's, it's very hyper-focused on, on Godzilla and just the scale of like how much bigger he is destroying all the buildings with this one, the way that they do the scale is closer, I guess, to like the 2014 Godzilla where they have a lot of the on the ground action and you're looking up at Godzilla as he's destroying everything. Um, and I, I thought that, that that kind of uh, connecting the two was was a really cool way of going about it. Um, and uh, 
it, it does get to some really cool places with how they decide to to kill Godzilla, which I don't necessarily want to spoil, but it's just a very um it it reminds me of something that they come image. up with in like the the seventies eighties era of trying to destroy him, and I think it's uh it's cool. And there's a lot of destruction to Godzilla in this, which is which is cool. And they I don't know if it's a power that he had in the older ones that I'm just misremembering, but they kind of have a hyper regeneration quality to him this time. So they'll have moments where they like totally destroy like a quarter of his face. And then he just starts to morph back into Godzilla again. And it just feels like this unrelenting force that can't be stopped. It's, it's a, it's a great way of doing it. I thought. And like I said, when Josh was talking about it, I also just love the, the facial design of Godzilla. It's this, it's the old school look of him, but um, but 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 scaly and wet because it's also that modern CG. But he's got the little smirk, that little evil smirk that he has, and I I adore it. So yep. um, th- there's a lot uh, a lot of great things here, and I and I did find the human uh, narrative to be actually very heartwarming, and and it worked uh, uh, really well. Um, the whole family dynamic and him processing his guilt for being the only survivor of the attack that you see initially. Um, I thought was 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 really well done, and um, I can find myself uh, uh, with a few of the the Godzilla movies really just itching to see more of the monsters. And I didn't necessarily feel that way the whole time with this. I, I was intrigued by the the character stuff too. So yeah, I thought it was just a very well rounded Godzilla movie. Um, and I still got to check out his uh, uh, his other one. Um, oh no, I'm getting that mixed up. That wasn't uh, that was the guy that did. Uh, Shin Mask Rider, the other one that I did. Not, um, I was thinking it was the guy yes. that did Shin Godzilla, but anyway, yeah, I think, uh, I guess this is the first movie technically that I've seen of uh, Takashi Yamazaki. Um, I haven't seen his Lupin movie. There's a Stand By Me here. This seems like one of the more mainstream films that he's gotten to do. So um, I'm glad that it's successful and I'm looking forward to seeing anything that he does after this. So, yeah, number three. Oh, yeah. And, and one thing I wanted to point out that I don't remember if either of us ever addressed Godzilla minus one shot by the same cinematographer of Haunted School. Oh, weird. That's wild. That's kind of, Yeah, we just that's covered weird, that. Right. Yeah, we covered that not that long ago with Trevor Henderson. So, yeah, way, just a thing I remember looking up one time and just being like, I had to put that fact out there somewhere. Now it's 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 hidden five hours into <laughs> f- how long? Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you'll find it's, it's, a, it's in there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, uh, my. All right. Well, OK, well, we're still going. We're, we're at the point where Jamie and I are our brains are on fire. Yeah, I'm and melting we're going to we're, we're going to stick it out. We're going to stick it out. We got we got two more. And I, I will say at least the last two that I've got, maybe the same for you. We did bonus transmissions on that. I'm pretty happy yeah. with. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I might even try to keep it a tiny bit short on on these two, even though it feels weird to be, uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> getting to the end and yeah. being like, but, yeah, whatever. This was the best one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> but you, you can guarantee that if it is in that top three, we probably have 30 minutes to an hour of it on a bonus transmission. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I wanted to go a little bit longer on Ferrari in May, December, because they were ones we'd never covered on the bonus yeah. transmission. So, yeah, but, uh, these yeah, two these, we probably these have last two reviews for. for so. <laughs> Yeah, so my, my number two, actually, which I, I will say I was a tiny bit surprised when I was crafting my list how high up it did end up for me. But mm. this is this is kind of what I felt about it. Uh, the Killer, directed oh, by David yeah. Fincher. Dude, I love that. I uh, I love that. I don't know. There was just uh, this one. I, I get 
for some people why this is like going to be a lighter exercise and maybe not one of his best movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it kind of calls attention to that almost by just like being such a, you know, like someone else absolutely could have directed the same script and it would be maybe a forgettable movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it just, I don't know. There's something for me so much in David Fincher's craft and like Ferrari, it did feel like the filmmaker's craft kind of merging with the character's craft in a really obsessive and a really special way. Um, and, uh, yeah, David Fincher just returning to the kind of forensically focused, psychologically perverse, you know, sort of like serial killer kind of genre fare he made a name for himself on, including even rehiring his screenwriter on seven, uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, uh, mm-hmm. a- after the brief detour into Mank territory, which everyone I think is just happy to forget about for now, even <laughs> if I don't, you know, necessarily dislike that movie. It's just like yeah. the pulpy paperback Fincher is back. That's what I wanted to see. That's what I like. Um, yeah, that's what I love. Yeah, and, and, and the killer absolutely follows in the cinematic history of sort of detached existential loner criminal subjectivity. You know, it's like the l- l- samurai or the driver or what a lot of people are pointing to just with a bucket hat replacing the fedora. <laughs> and its closest companions are, you know, things to like I thought about Soderbergh's Haywire in terms of how just kind of slickly banal and kind of brutal the international sort of industry of contract killing is kind of depicted. And also the strange kind of hypnotic architecture of single mindedly reversing your way through the crime network, which is something we talked about a lot in John Borman's Richard Stark adaptation point blank. Um and and then obviously uh, Hitman B movies like Blast of Silence and Murder by Contract, which have a similarly rigorous kind of focus on the Hitman protagonist's meticulous planning and procedure and his like openly sociopathic transactional philosophy. Um, and which, the contradictions uh, we ended up doing of his philosophy yes. and his actions. Yeah. Yes, which we ended up doing an episode on it literally inspired by this movie. Um, so yeah. if you haven't heard our episode on Blast of Silence and Murder by Contract, it was quite literally inspired because I saw this movie and was like, yeah, we need to do that episode because this is this is a, clearly a genre that I love. Um, so so even Fincher admits like this is a B movie premise. It's a pulp paperback kind of character. And I just think Fincher has really updated it for his brand of neurotic perfectionism. And sort of like disciplined sort of technician fetish. And as Jamie was mentioning earlier, the sort of dryly amusing political reality of placing what is a historically cool cinematic character into the dissatisfaction and tedium of like the modern temp worker gig economy, you know, like having him do things like, uh, you know, like the, the, the opening scene really much basically instructs you to watch it where it's like, you know, he's so it's very much about being bored and being committed to being bored. And it's like this whole like rear window assassin labor sequence. Um, and it, it really shows you this is a movie, you know, it's, it's not going to show you the scenes where he chops up the body. Because yeah. that would be too exciting. It's going <laughs> to yeah. be the long scenes of him watching from a safe distance, purchasing recycling bins with fake credit cards, loading them into vans and lugging them around while thinking about the statistics of where this chopped up body fits into today's global death toll. <laughs> yeah. And like it's it's it, and that's such a cool idea for a movie. The idea of like Alain Delon from Le Samurai scrolling his burner iPhone for like Amazon delivery updates and for using, you know, Postmates and 
we work and and Michael Fassbender is so fucking good as like the unblinking alien who just like devours a diet of just McDonald's and Starbucks and uh, hard boiled eggs that he buys at the store and Advil and whiskey. He does nothing but rock his Smith's teen angst work mixtape. <laughs> Uh, he rocks tacky tourist and service worker disguises that like Agent 47 in the Hitman video games might be rocking. And yeah, he spends most of this movie delivering like Sigma grind set, you know, <laughs> Albert Camus voiceover mantra about how little he gives a fuck and kills for dispassionate profit and is just like obsessively focused to, to a confidently controlled degree that then you know kind of breaks down over the course of the film as he misses his shot and he finds his entire network of people trying to kill him and has to kind of reverse engineer his 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 way through it but yeah i just think the commitment stylistically and you know to a character who just kind of has this you know, has this level of attention and is really committed to the labor of this job of the airports and hardware stores and storage units and motels. And, you know, it's 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 a it's a really boring job, ultimately. And, and it's, yeah. it's, it's something you really do have to commit yourself to. And it's just seeing this kind of guy who has such a pretentious mantra about how he's done Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours and, you know, and just, you know, at every turn, just being having his plan go wrong in some capacity and having to become more sort of impulsive and kind of awkward. And when it does go handheld and glitchy and the Trent Reznor score kicks in and, you know, he does have to wrestle with the fact that, oh, he's not one of the few who's actually up high and exploiting people and making money and a genius capitalist. He's one of the many he's part of a network that is completely expendable in the sort of market environment he's in and that's a realization the character kind of existentially has to make and it's really really well done portrait of a character having to deal with that so yeah the end result a movie that is for sure satisfyingly lightweight and, and trashy it's a fucking hit it's a b hitman movie on yep. the page 100 percent, no disagreement but fincher has a level of skill and amusement as a stylist and he doesn't sleepwalk through it he has he has fun with the specific toys he gets to do a shaky weighty fucking brawl scene in it where he's breaking the tv that's the only low light fucking in the scene and 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 very clearly this movie is also you know uh a, just a really weird very funny movie because clearly david fincher kind of relates to the control freak craftsman character who you know as well probably serves a cutthroat business of clueless money men and middle managers and you know and and here's a character who just has to wrestle with the fact that sometimes you commit yourself to a ground level skill or industry and you obsessively learn it and uh eventually you know the 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 end comes for you man (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah, that was it was a favorite of mine too. It's uh it's great. Um all right, so my number 2 is uh How to Blow Up a Pipeline, directed by Daniel Oh uh, shit, this is way higher than I thought it would be. Yeah, to be honest me too. Uh, Cuz we we covered this I don't remember. I actually have it logged. Why don't I just look at it? We covered it in like pretty- May, I believe. Um and um and I didn't, I, I've been thinking about See, it. See, that's why I love doing it, though. That's why I love yeah. doing it, though. I've been thinking you know, about I, it throughout I, I, the I, year. I get to learn things about Jamie live on the show sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've been thinking about it throughout the year, 
and it just has it's totally stuck with me and i and strangely enough too it was one that i didn't even get to rewatch but it's just it's constantly been been in my head and i think the the two major points of it that that really stuck with me is one just the procedural element of it is fantastic it really is from start to finish how these groups of 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 uh, uh, older teens, young adults are are going about this this eco terrorism, and I just I loved how they kind of have. There's a lot of nuance within the characters. Everyone is kind of doing it for a different reason. There are characters that are doing it for very pure reasons that you can uh, understand. Like you know, they have uh, connections to their uh, a death in their family. Um, their livelihood is at risk, that kind of thing. But then they also have these, like some of the the younger ones that are kind of doing it for more superficial reasons. Like there's a couple that that are that are trying to help, and they're monitoring a certain area, and they end up just like making out with each other and thinking that the whole situation they're in is very hot and steamy. And so I liked that there was kind of these complications within their characters of there's there's just very different motivations. Every single one of them also has kind of a different ideology in a way. There's even what seems to be a, a conservative couple that they're the the um, um, what's been going on has been disrupting their uh, livelihood on their farm, and so it, it gives all of these nuanced reasons for why someone would feel like they're forced to do something like this. Um, and I just thought the the mix of the procedural elements and the the character nuance was was really well done and um and then you get to the actual kind of the thriller and action elements of the procedure stuff when they're trying to tie the bomb up to the pipe and you know one of the things gets loose and crushes somebody's uh, leg or something i believe someone gets injured um, there, there's just a there's a ton of different steps uh, that that they take and and things that they have to kind of adjust as they're going and doing the job. And I just, I, I thought it was enthralling the entire time. Um, and like you said, I like that it doesn't like, you know, uh, it doesn't have this like super judgmental moralizing of it all. Um, it, it is complicated, but it's not, it's by no means saying like what they're doing is, is, is wrong. There's, there, there's an empathy to it. There's an understanding of why they would do what they're doing. Um, and I think that that is important and is, it, it, it's, uh, it kind of, like you said, it, it, it makes it a different film than what you would see in another film that's kind of, uh, uh, trying to capture the same themes. So, um, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. Loved it. So how to blow up a pipeline number two. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I didn't know that. So oh there yeah. You go. Jamie, number, number one, how to blow up a pipeline head. I'm I'm excited to make that list now and have and and be because I always I always start with our number ones and go down number two so that it's kind of weighted by where we put them on the list and so how to build pipeline is going to be very high on our list now. Yep. Um, that was number two. But right? uh, that was number two. Yeah. Okay. So we're at number one and now. Okay. So is this? Are we doing? No way. We're doing this again, right? No. No. See, I see. I think okay, I know. You, you left one ahead. off. Go ahead and say. You left one off. Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make sure because I was like, is this really going to be like, how many years in a row is this where we built the same? I was like, I, I was like, I didn't think so. I think you would have an, a different number one than me uh, this year. What I think uh, you're about I, to I, say I, is I, what I, I, I did it. I did it. Yeah. I put Oppenheimer on it. Let's I, go. You know, like, you know, I am who I am. <laughs> I have, I, I wrote a super long review about this that you can read. We did a super long bonus transmission that was like, what, like an hour like an hour. Hour, maybe yeah. even 
it might have even been longer than an hour, honestly. We might have just been going hard. I had a lot to say about this movie, so I honestly don't even want to, like, go that hard um, into it. And, and, and you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to uh, qualify it or not based on the fact that it's an obvious, like, again, another sort of biographical drama. Um, but but Nolan still basically just does bend this movie to operate craft-wise like another one of his sci-fi action thrillers. Um, so for, for me, the, the kind of things that we were comparing it to were stuff that we've covered on the show. So yeah. I went, yeah, fuck it. You know, like, I was comparing it to, you know, like JFK, for example. Example, um, sure. yeah. was 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 one that I thought about. Well, for me, uh, it's like it the, there's elements like, of like the because he's obsessed with time, right? The ticking clock kind of yeah. thing. And so yeah. there's just it's kind of similar to how I was. It's different, of course, the way they use it. But there's this again lingering suspense that kind of makes it feel like a thriller, even though they're you're still watching you know courtroom transcripts and and whatever else like that. Um, it's just yep. that ticking time that that really makes you feel like there's a bit of a thriller aspect to it so i'm 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 totally there with you in that sense yeah so i've 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 already made my case kind of like at 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 length for this one but 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 for me it really did come down to the fact that of just like how much it fits in the nolan catalog of characters who are just these professionals who are so tormented and again similar to uh you know as i was kind of saying about ferrari and the killer i think i have a brand uh technicians <laughs> as artists you know they, yeah. that's that's another kind of kind of thing that that they like to do they kind of relate it to their own sort of psychology as people who make movies um and there's an obsessiveness that when when these directors get into the single-minded characters like these there's just there's something that feels just totally in lockstep with one another um and this was just like another another case of that happening to me so it doesn't quite have like the you know, the detective element of memento or, you know, or, or I guess even Batman or, you know, mm-hmm. or even the literal magician stuff of, of the prestige or something, but mechanized construction in theory has always been a sort of motivating factor for him. And so Oppenheimer, who he kind of clearly depicts as this sort of like tortured contradiction, it, it very much clearly symbolizes for Nolan, this, you know, this excitement of scientific creativity and sort of like this left-wing academia that has been, you know, poisoned by the corrupted sort of pol- political gamesmanship and sort of horrifying military industrial complex might, which he, uh, you know, he he does by adding him into, you know, his rotation of intelligent, ambitious and sort of conflicted protagonists who have to deal with all these outside factors. And I do think that there were few films as densely packed with material as this one ended up being, but still yeah. moved with just like a clockwork kind of precision and propulsion um, to it and and still maintained that kind of doomsday annihilation kind of momentum to it as well. Because we, totally. we did an episode inspired by this as well, where we talked about sort of cold war anxiety merged with thriller logic so we did things like dr strange love and i mean fail safe is one we didn't do but that's another example of that um mm-hmm. but uh you know there's you know so you can see him kind of pulling from that as well as doing you know a, a little bit of precedent set by paul schrader's mishima i guess you could say which we also covered this year and just the way that he structures this the flashing forward and backward and the fragmented color and black and white like non-linear timelines and the re- repetition of images and recurring interactions and all of these you know various sort of scientific and political rooms that kind of interweave with one another as you know 
the subjective perspective of Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer and Robert Downey Jr.'s sort of Louis Strauss, whose professional ego rivalry and opposing attempts at sort of wrestling and grasping power are the organizing object for the film, making it just two very long dialectical montages. And some people even critique the last hour is basically just a hearing. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I'm like, that to me is, that's incredibly successful. The fact that this many people sat there riveted for an hour by a hearing is like, you know, it speaks to the uh, craft on display. And I think it's so well intelligently, you know, done that these two characters on a professional and sort of a personal level end up doing the sort of mutually assured destruction between the two men professionally as, as the film kind of, um, goes on and there's there's again I, I i can't go on too long here there's 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 too much to name we did a whole bonus transmission on this but i did want to give a special shout out to uh hoite van hoitema uh the cinematographer who this is his second oh, year in a row being my number one because he also shot nope last year the dude is a genius yeah um he has really pushed nolan into being more comfortable with experimentation and abstraction as an image maker which i think has been incredible and has made him a better artist totally um um I think so, I, there's so many sequences in here that I just won't even have time to name. But the the, the Trinity sequence, for example, the uh, sort of warmongering sort of propaganda speech he has to give where it recreates the Trinity sequence and all the horror in his mind in that moment is is amazing. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out to Jennifer Lame uh, editing. I think this is one of the most the finest accomplishments in editing that we totally. saw this year. It, like the way how sharp it is, how bombastic it ends up feeling, but still being kind of like intimately psychological with the characters and uh, the score, which is Ludwig Garanson. I have, this has been the score that I've listened to the most this year. Like I just, I have thrown this on while I'm just like reading and stuff like that. So I, it is just, He's insane. Yeah. And it's so and it's it, it's so crazy that he went to Nolan and Nolan uh, apparently said he had like no concept in mind for the music, except for he said he wanted the violin because he said the violin would be a really nice instrument to where you, you can do these very sort of elaborate, you know, sort of like note hitting with it. But you can also very suddenly go into like a piercing shriek with it, like a horror mm-hmm. sound. And he said, that was what I wanted. I wanted you to get the sort of the flittering of his mind at work, followed by this like screeching noise of like his world coming undone. Um, and so the fact that he took that to heart and then but still mixed it with Garanson, who I think is just one of the unreal composers working with synthesizers right now. Um, and I was just, yeah, this, this score just absolutely kind of, um, blew my mind and yeah, the whole aspect of this where it really does end up focusing on the, you know, Strauss's like McCarthy era, red scare, witch hunt for Oppenheimer and the, you know, the, the sort of level of, you know, sort of existential devastation he feels as the bomb gets, you know, you know, the accomplishment that it builds up to where it spends so long being like, the guys are going to get this job done. It's really important that they get this job done. And then you're like, Oh fuck, what did we do? Yeah. Um, and like that, that structure to me is so, subversive and so well handled by Nolan and so far beyond what I kind of expected him to do. Like the fact that two hours in the bomb is made and then the rest of it is just the gruesome regret 
mm-hmm. of having having done that, and and also the way that he builds up how swept up you get in this the the hysteria of wanting to get it done, and then the devastation of it all, and Killian Murphy, fantastic. Per- yeah, like I, I, what do you, what do you say? Like perform, like it, it, it probably still is the performance of uh, the year for me. Just in, in, in terms of like, I don't know why Nolan held him in his back pocket for this long. Yeah. Like the guy should have been the lead for a lot. I mean, I know that he almost was Batman at one point because he tested really well as Bruce Wayne, but they couldn't convince anyone that he would get buff, so <laughs> he didn't get that role. But that's, but that audition is why he's worked with him so many times, and he's always, you know, had a role for him. Um, in in so many of the movies he's done and yeah just the way that they use his face as like an IMAX landscape in this and the way that he uses like the sort of skinny dapper physicality of David Bowie as like a reference point as he just gets like increasingly gaunt and like hollowed out and skin tight as he's just like increasingly horrified at his lack of control and in the middle of these like American myth, almost like Western vistas that they really shot in like New Mexico and stuff like that. And yeah, I was, I was like Nolan doing IMAX shots that reminded me of like passion of Joan of Arc was not something I expected to see this year uh, of just Killian's face, just like, perpetually teary-eyed and claustrophobic and yeah so for me this was the most intimate and claustrophobic use of like a large scale like epic sized film and it was so tormented and it i and 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 devastating and yeah i was uh really really blown blown away by uh by this one and again still have a full review and a full bonus transmission where we go into even more detail about it but we're five hours in we need to I'm fucking. I am I'm gonna exhausted. Die. <laughs> yeah. So. so I'm. So I'm. So I'm gonna stop so that I can let Jamie do his. <laughs> my yeah. By the way, Oppenheimer, top top five for me easily. So, totally yep. get you. Um, well, now now I now I'm I gotta figure it out now. Yeah. Yeah. My my overall. I'm gonna do that eventually. Maybe. I don't know. It's so mm. torturous for me mm. to do orders. I just I can't do it. But anyway. Um. So my number one is uh, John Wick Chapter Four. I ended up just Woo! absolutely loving this thing. Um, I, it really Number is one. just an homage to a hundred years of great action cinema, and I love action. I've loved it since I was a kid. So to just see all of these references, including everything from like you know Buster Keaton, but to like Hotline Miami video games, um, is fucking awesome. They just have such an understanding of of where this these films come from and and they're just you know wearing their heart on their sleeve and i i absolutely adore it um and and i love specifically the finality of it i mean we're all obviously going to get more john wick-esque you know world movies like probably spinoffs and stuff like that but i am kind of hoping that uh, you know they're not going to do anything more with john wick that is at least in the timeline that would be after this um, I think that you can, you know, let the character rest in, in, you know, I won't, if you haven't seen it, I won't spoil exactly what that means, but um, I, I think it's well-deserved and I'll, I'll end it with just, uh, I, I read it on the review that we made, but I want to do it here again because this is for the, uh, the, the, the general audience here. Um, the director said this about like finally kind of letting the John Wick character rests. He's a John may survive all this shit, but at the end of it, there's no happy ending. He's got nowhere to go. 
Honestly, I challenge you right now. Here's a question for you. How do you fucking want me to end it? Do you think he's going to ride off into the fucking sunset? He's killed 300 fucking people, and he's just going to walk away? Everything's okay? He's just going to fall in love with a love interest? If you're this fucking guy, if this guy existed, how is this guy's day going to end? He's fucked for the rest of his life. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> that, I just love that quote so much because it's it, it, it's it's a it's very honest and I think it's you know it's a it's an understanding of of this character. It's like at a certain point, you, you, this kind of man just has to has to rest, has to has to stop doing what he's doing. It's it, he's he's created his own hell um, that's now after him. And so I just I thought that that quote is one very funny because of just how how crude it's put. I love that, um, but it is a, a deep understanding of this kind of character. It's like this can't go on forever. Um, and I think that this kind of this this if it is this final chapter um, is a, is a just a great way to to end it. So I I adored this film, um, and I love action, Hell baby, yeah. love it. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah. John Wick Chapter Four. You heard it here first. Genre movie. Uh, genre movie of the year. Let's go. We did it. But uh, but yeah, are we done? Is that we it? did it. We are done. Oh God. <laughs> Let's wrap <laughs> it up, boy. I gotta pee. I love doing it. I love doing <laughs> it at all. But how did we add another hour? I know. This is. I know. It is what it is. I hope. Hopefully, uh, everyone enjoyed it. And you stuck with us. Maybe, maybe yeah, listen to it in, in sound, sound off and let us know if you actually want us to contain ourselves next year. Or if you're cool with us just getting longer and longer. Yeah. Every year. Maybe no one cares. Maybe people want it. I don't know. Cause we have had multiple, we have had people say that they still love this kind of episode because it just, is gives anyone them a listening? Giant I'm list. checking the mic right now. Any, is anyone out there? <laughs> yeah. If anyone is listening, just let us know if this is just way too okay. much of an extravaganza. <laughs> yeah. But All anyway, right. We but that it. was 2023. Yes. Happy New Year, everyone. We, we 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 wrapped it up. There was a lot of movies watched this year. In a couple days, we're going to be starting. The, the counter starts over. The January new hits are coming. Is there going to be another plane? I hope you so. Know, I haven't looked yet. Maybe there will be. I sure hope um, so. You know, we got we got lots of great stuff coming up in in the new year plan that I'm excited about. Me too. Um, uh, but 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 that is 2023. That's a wrap on it. We're done. No one's talking about it ever again. No one's watching another 2023 movie ever again. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, nope. That's done. Back to the old movies. In uh, one week's time, we're going to be back over on the Patreon feed uh, uh, doing, as we mentioned, uh, patron DQ's voted episode that, uh, you know, it, it didn't actually win, but it's come second place like I don't know how many polls in a row now that I'm like, we just, we finally have to do this episode. Yep. So we're declaring 2024, the year of the lion. And we're talking roar and the ghost and the darkness, neither of which I've seen, but I have been assured involves lots of uh, violence with lions. Can't wait for roar. So excited. Yep. So that's what we're going to be doing in one week's time over on the Patreon feed. And then in two weeks time, uh, we're going to be back with a special guest, I think, talking about Jack the Ripper. Hell yeah. Which is I don't know if that's I don't know how that fits into Lion 2024. Um, but <laughs> watch there just you know, be a coincidental lion plot somehow in there. It just seems to work I, out. I mean, I'm, 
I'm not going to say Jack the Ripper wasn't a predator. Yeah. You know, we could maybe, you know, there you go. There you go. <laughs> got a little, we got something out. there. So we're going to be talking about the 1972 film, The Ruling Class, directed by Peter uh, Medak, uh, who also directed The Changeling. So I'm excited to oh, see sick. another film by that director. I really like uh, The Changeling. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to be talking about a film that I actually, Jamie and I watched together, I think just sometime last year, uh, called Jack's Back, directed oh, by yeah. Rowdy Harrington of uh, Roadhouse fame with... Uh, the god of the sweaty erotic thriller james spader as a, a guy who was dealing with a jack the ripper copycat um Very awesome. and he also plays twin brothers in it and it, it's hard to there's there's nerdy and sweet james spader <laughs> and also uh sexy smoking leather jacket james spader so you kind of get the two sides of james spader in that film that yeah. i'm excited to talk about it's a weird one but a fun one yeah but uh, as you can hear, Jamie and I are losing our voices, so <laughs> it's probably time to uh, wrap it up. Thanks so much for listening and staying with us into the new year. Ha- thanks to anyone who's listening for the first time and is going to be continuing with us. Yes. Um, hope. Uh, we promise hope that's not always this have- long. <laughs> I we do promise that. Um, so uh, thanks so much for listening as always, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy and happy new year, everybody. Happy New Year.